Oh. Yeah, you, yeah. Okay, let me hit the button. So, so be difficult with a pet. All right, we're going live. Hey now, it's your boy PSA Sitch here with another Tuesday stream with everyone's favorite advocate for dignity and free will. Yes. Adam Friended. Dignity <laughs> and free will should go hand in hand. And we have a very special guest here, Hans Georg Moller. And he is he runs a channel, Carefree Wandering, which is a great channel that everyone should uh, subscribe to. It's it's kind of funny. You've got this split identity going, Gyark, where a lot of people probably know you from the Carefree Wandering channel because you've had some really successful videos there and some some really interesting sort of video essays. Thanks. Yeah, it would be. Uh... Nice if some of the Carefree Wandering viewers would be there. Thanks, thanks for the kind words. Yes. So we've we've talked once before. We talked a bit about your book. I have read and I was telling you before the stream began that I recommend your book a lot. It's you and your profile, and it's a, this idea that identity creation is kind of a, a technology that has evolved over time. And you chronicle going from a, a period that you call sincerity, where we're kind of bound to our family unit. Our, a lot of our identity comes from where we're placed in the family and in society. And then we've kind of adopted this individualist idea of identity where we, we kind of are curating and creating our own identity. And now you're saying that we're moving into a, a completely new phase of identity where we're building our identities around profiles like Facebook profile or an Instagram profile or a, right. a YouTube channel profile. So, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's super, super fascinating to me. I don't know if you know, but I'm an artist. That's, that's my background. So your, your videos on art and, and, uh, conceptual art and stuff like that are really awesome to me. I, I like to look at those, but I don't know that we're going to talk a lot about the profilicity stuff, but I do like his, your book is amazing. I recommend it a lot, uh, to, to a lot of the people in the YouTube sphere that are real thinkers, readers. So, um, thanks. Andrew. But, but I think we're going to, we're going to talk more about, I think Sitch believes that you are a socialist. And as many times as I tell him, no, he's, he just, he's not I thought you said you were last time we talked. I could be misremembered. Yeah, I mean, I sympathize with socialism. I don't know mm -hmm. if we talked about this last time. I was thinking about, um, I don't want to repeat myself, but, you know, I'm not really a hardcore political thinker. Uh, so uh, as uh, Adam just explained, I come more from what I would call basically an existentialist approach. And... Um, so I don't really consider myself like, a, you know, a, a political theorist or anything like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do have a certain sympathy for socialism if pressed. But that's more a, a personal, almost biographical thing. Um, because of my experiences in Germany, where I grew up, and also in China, where I spend a lot of my life. Uh, and I think it's a kind of myth uh, that socialism doesn't work. I think it actually works better than both liberal, neoliberal capitalism and communism, economically speaking. 
Like, you know, when I grew up in Germany in, let's say, the 1980s, Germany was still pretty socialist. And that basically means for me that a lot of the economy was public and a lot of society was public, especially like the core things like education, um, energy, uh, public transport, the postal system, um, and uh, even more like, um, um, uh, well, um, like in China, for instance, um, you have even parts of the banking system that are kind of public. And you had something uh, similar also in Germany. So, um, and that actually functioned, I guess, very well. Like Germany had its kind of best economic and strongest economic period when it had this kind of very socialist um, setup. Uh, and that didn't only work well for people who were in the public sector, which a lot of people were, right? You could just like spend your whole life and have a good income working as whatever for the for the post or, uh, you know, for the public railway or something. These were kind of, uh, to use the word yet, that you uh, earlier used, um, Adam, jobs with dignity and jobs with a very good, very stable income, right? And then in the course of privatization, this was all gone. So I think a lot of people lost out through this privatization. And actually, just to to, to cite the rail, uh, the German kind of rail, what do you call it? Rail uh, system as an example, like it kind of, kind of is now much worse. Right, it's 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 uh, unreliable. It's slow. Uh, it's dirty. Uh, it's uh, and it was much better uh, when it was still public. Uh, so that's just a that's just a a, um, a personal experience from Germany. And then um, you know I was like, uh oh. Well, oh, I think he might have froze. Oh no. Oh no! Pretty good. Oh, you're, you're okay. You looks like you're coming back. Can you hear it? I was gone. Yeah. Yeah. Last, was I gone? We lost like the last twenty seconds of what you said. Okay. Your um, video's down. So I was Another saying thing. when I was like, uh, I don't know when, when I was cut off, but I was saying like, <laughs> <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I just gone from the Zoom call. Oh, oh back. he's back. <laughs> okay. I was Welcome gone. Back. <laughs> yeah. You got kicked out for a second. I, I, I did. I didn't know. I did. Uh, I, the connection has been okay. Shall Shall I start again with what well, I said? Or talk well, about you, you were. Um, what I was going to ask you was you were you continue. That, yeah. You thought socialism worked better than communism. What's the What is the difference that you're making there between the two? Well, as I said, like for me, socialism is basically that a large part, but not mm -hmm. all of the economy is public, that the essential part of the economy is public. And that uh, you also have, uh, let's say, um, a very solid, uh, like whatever, public health insurance and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Uh, so, so as I mentioned earlier, I don't know where I was cut off. Like with large parts of the economy, I'm thinking primarily about um, education, um, public transport, and even uh, energy. Because I think and perhaps that... even financial services, like you know, um, 
um, insurance or um, um, stuff like that. And that has worked really, really well for Germany and uh, also for the for the private sector. The private sector was also doing, I, I guess, better at that time, large parts of it, at least like, um, you know, the, um, what do you call them? The, like the, the smaller businesses. Mm-hmm. But but things um, and then, things course, have changed. The, the other the the other the the other difference between socialism and capit- uh, um, communism is China, right? China had a very communist system, which, by the way, economically also wasn't really that bad. Uh, but then they switched to a more socialist system, like a mix between, um, you know, a state-run uh, economy and a capitalist economy. And that led to huge creation of wealth and a huge, never seen historically anywhere, um, erasure of um, poverty. And it opened up, uh, you know, all these opportunities for education and uh, basically a much better life for hundreds of millions of people. Well, like today... So that's just my experiment. And these are the two countries that I spent right. most of my life in, right? Um, Germany and China. And they did very well with socialism in during my lifetime there. So they both flourish. When I hear, you know, a lot of the uh, streamers today, the young streamers who refer to themselves as socialists, you know, usually when I'm hearing them talk, they're not referring to simply having uh, the public or the government run certain industries. I mean, you know, in a lot of states in America, you know, you can have either a public or like a quasi-public private, you know, power company or insurance company. Uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, in Europe, obviously, there's you know, government-run healthcare. A lot of people in America want something similar to that, or at least a public option. Mm. And I think, you know, all those things to me, you know, those things can exist, you know, in, in a, outside of what I would consider socialism. All those things can exist in a mixed economy. Um, but when I hear the the streamers today talk about socialism, usually what they're referring to is they want a system where private capital is abolished and every private business has to be run as some kind of co-op model. Well, that would be more communist, right? I don't where know. You have like <laughs> the com- where you have the, the complete uh, abolishing of, of private property or private mm-hmm. businesses. And obviously that didn't work either at least not very well it also wasn't a complete failure i mean if you just look uh regard it disregard all the human rights issues or so um and wow. disregard uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, no i mean just like looking economically at the soviet union mm-hmm. um it, it wasn't to describe it as a total failure would be wrong I mean, uh, Russia was large parts of Russia, like Russia was economically very backwards and just in pure. Numbers, I mean, they had major famines and so in the 1930s still, um, uh, as I'm still there. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're you're in Serbia Uh, right now. That's where yeah, you're I'm at. in Serbia. Yes, yeah. yes. Which also is basically has a, a great socialist past, right? They were a socialist, a kind of a liberal socialist country, Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. Not not part of the Soviet bloc. Well, I mean, still socialist. They were. I don't want to cut you off. Central. If you wanna, 
I have a question. I mean, I I think part of the the issue is, you know, regarding the, like the economic efficiency of something or efficacy of something is, um, I mean, I feel like you have to take, you know, how the average person is doing or or the human rights into consideration. Cause I feel like, you know, you could theoretically create, you know, decent economic outcomes with like horrible systems, you know, like slavery, I'm sure the South and America, you know, did decently with slaves, but you know, just the economic outcome, it shouldn't be the, the metric there, right? Sure, sure, sure. I agree. The, the question I would have for you is, you mentioned that you felt different institutions were run better when they were publicly owned, when they were socialist and not in private hands. And then when they turned over to private hands, they didn't seem to function as well. And I wonder if the... Uh, the level of collectivism in the society just culturally affects that. I know America is like a very individualist culture. And one of the problems that people perceive in these kind of government institutions is that everybody has this individualist mindset that they're like, uh, you know, I can slack off at work because this is a government job. Do you think that plays a role? No, uh, I, I do think that um, uh, Germany was as individualist as America, okay. if not more. If not more, I mean, Americans like to tell themselves, you know, they like to describe themselves in terms of this super individualism. But whatever, I mean, uh, uh, look at whatever the McDonaldization of the world. Right, looked like uh, the 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 uniformity of the Fordist mode of production and so forth. I think that's that's largely a uh, a myth that the Americans like to tell themselves that they are super individualist. <laughs> well, look, I'm super individualist, but I don't. I like I could definitely be an outlier. So what what do you think? Well, I mean, wait. I, I think American culture, at least, it seems like has been rooted in the idea of kind of like the individual who tells, you know, the government to F off and they're going to go do their own thing. I mean, that's, I can't, you know, I, I don't know what it's like in Germany, but in America, there's definitely, that idea is rooted deeply in our mythos. And I think it definitely seems to, to be how people feel about things and definitely affect how the political, uh, the political lens is shifted. That's, that's part of why I think in America, there is such a resistance to, you know, having a public option and having some of these uh, things be run by the government is because of this kind of like very strong individualist uh, leaning. Well, I mean, I would say that the um, uh, that the capitalist interests very much feed this narrative because mm-hmm. it's it's in the interest of 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 sustaining this hyper capitalist system, which. As I just said, I don't think is is in is uh, is ultimately in the best economic interest of people. Not yeah, it might not majority. be. I'm just saying in terms of like I think it's definitely true that even if the capitalists are kind of taking advantage of the rugged individualism inherent in right. America's culture, which they very well might be doing, I still think that rugged individualism exists and has been a part of America's DNA for a very long time. Yeah, they're taking advantage of it. Well, I mean, I lived in America for a year. I lived in Canada for nearly 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And on the one hand, I know what you mean. I don't want to belittle that. But again, on the other hand, as I said earlier, 
Um, if you just look at, you know, uh, as I just said, like McDonaldization, like all the cities basically look the same. And um, um, the um, yeah, there is. And again, also the the uniformity of, let's say, the mode of production, that's that's not really an individualism. Uh, okay. you know just because people uh, just because people um whatever uh, uh let the hair grow long and stuff and then write a um it's like this marlboro myth like you know what i mean like i don't know you know the marlboro advertising mm -hmm. Right, yeah. That plays that that plays to this kind of rugged individualism, at least traditionally. I don't know that now they don't do the advertising for the cigarettes anymore. That's maybe 20, 30 years ago. Uh, but that's kind of an iconic representation, I think, of this what I would call the fake, uh, the fake, uh, the fake simulation of individualism. It's a simulation of individualism. Um, the well, I mean, the Mm -hmm. Marlboro, the Marlboro Man is for me an icon of that, even though the Marlboro right. Man died like 20 years ago of lung right. cancer or whatever. Yeah, like, I mean, America isn't, you know, an ANCAP country, and it's not one of these, like, super libertarian anarchy countries. But, you know, when you look at, you know, the kind of the founding of the country you know, rooted in this fear of federal government's oversight in, in trying to incorporate that with the Bill of Rights and to have such a strong view about the individual rights and everything. It's just, I mean, again, as I said, I, I definitely think you can argue, and I would agree that, you know, capitalism and, I mean, and look, businesses look at the reality. are sort it's of using, taxes. are sort of using all these, that all, Sorry for it, interrupting you, but the individuals have to pay very high taxes. I mean, America right. is a high tax country. And it's specifically well, not as high, as high a lot taxes. of European countries, right? Uh, in effect, yes, I would say, at least in my experience. What do you mean? Uh, like I lived, I mean, only one year in the U.S., right? But mm -hmm. uh, uh, all the taxes you have, like um, uh, the property taxes are much higher. And also, you know, the the the, the income taxes, I think, uh, for a lot of people are, are are pretty high. And then you have to pay, you know, yourself for education and so forth. And uh, you, so... Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't, I don't think America is a low tax country. Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, my understanding is that it is lower than a lot of the European countries that have a lot of the services you're talking about. Um, but even if it's not, then, I don't see mm. what that really has to do with kind of the idea of the, you know, individualism being a big part of the culture just because you pay taxes. I mean, as I said, it's, we're not living in Ancapistan, <laughs> so I have a couple of questions. Uh, yeah. So you said that Germany mm, was right. just as individual as culturally. Another, yeah. Well, um, what what do you what do you want to ask? Do you have a comment or something? I I want to know. I just like want to play the bad cop a little bit with Steve. Sorry. The, <laughs> oh, go no go go look go then, ahead. That, that, yeah. Then look where the taxes are going in America. They're going like to to fund the military. Is that individualist, right? That you have like this huge military that is like all over the world that is like, you know, how hundreds and hundreds of military bases, right? Uh, I used to travel a lot 
because of my work is China related, as you know. Um, and um, when I traveled from Europe to China, there were two kinds of people on the planes, tourists and engineers, people who like, you know, specialists working for companies there. And when you travel from America to China, it's two different kinds of people on the plane uh, because the planes stop over in, in Japan or somewhere, military and missionaries. And um, that's none of this is individualistic. The military is like the opposite of individualistic and the whole military culture you have, which extends into so much, you know, for instance, sports, football. I like watching American football. But it's also the opposite of individualistic. And the same with religion. America is the most fundamentalist religious country in the Western world. I like to compare it with whatever the Islamic places are. So given the degree of religiosity and the mandatoriness of being religious, that's also not individual individualist at all. Both the military and, the, and religion are highly collectivist. collectivist. Mm-hmm. So, and, and America is much more militarist and much more religious than Germany. And therefore, Germany is much more in this way individualist because it doesn't have these huge, huge collective cultural factors that until today dominate uh, American society to a great extent. So I don't think the fact that America has a large military should have really anything to do with whether the culture has an individualist or a collectivist uh, bend to it. Because obviously, when you have the situation where America is like supposed to be the superpower of the world that is sort of playing mm-hmm. world cop, that just kind of necessitates that there's going to be a large military force that exists all throughout the world. And obviously, a military itself, I don't think anyone would ever argue that a military could or should be run as anything other than a collectivist organization. You know, I mean, I think you even talked about this in one of your videos about how like, you know, the, you know, when you're in the military and someone's giving you orders in the moment, you kind of have to follow them. And then you can kind of talk about, you know, after the fact later, (laughs) you can kind of talk about whether that person should be in leadership or not. Um, So I, I don't, to me, that doesn't really play into whether America has an individual's culture or not. And I, but I do, you know, regarding the religion aspect, which is kind of interesting. I think, I, I don't think there's, I don't know if if if, all, if a human society could exist that doesn't, that exists as like a purely individualistic society. I don't think a society like that would function or, or work in any capacity. Humans do have to exist as cooperative animals living together. Um, and I think America's individualism really, in my mind, in our, in our culture really plays out in terms of how America's how Americans view themselves in relation to the government well they'd be fine like kind of existing in a little community or a religious group but they don't feel necessarily a collectivist with the federal government specifically mm. yeah sure I get I get your point that is the uh, um, that is like the standard narrative right that uh um small government somehow, uh, is is the basis for people to live an individualistic life, but I don't right. think that that equation is is correct. Well, sure. I mean, listen, I'm not 
I'm not a libertarian either. So, I mean, I, I can, I'm in favor of a public option for healthcare. Um, so I'm not saying that that's necessarily like the correct way. I'm just saying that is, seems to be the dominant idea in America. Yeah. And, and actually also going back to Germany, I'm, I'm not a big fan of Germany. Uh, so don't get me wrong, especially mm -hmm. not of Germany today. I don't like living in Germany very much and I don't like German politics. Um, but, um, and also not German, whatever, like the, the the national narrative that is spun nowadays. I'm very critical of that. So, um, but again, uh, like in Germany, all of the 1970s and the 1980s where I grew up, um, that was um, a lot of the economy was publicly run. And yet it was not big government. The taxes mm -hmm. were relatively low. And it's not like, like, you know, that you have this had this surveillance state or so the government was pretty be, very benign, very benign it was and politics was like, not such a big thing. And it, you didn't mm -hmm. fear that somehow the government would 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 strongly intervene with you. It, it was just like a a relatively well functioning society um, that, uh, yeah at the time well it sounds like like when you're kind of describing socialism to me it sounds more like the the term that i hear thrown around is like a social democrat you know someone who believes that we should have you know an overarching capitalist system but there could be within that capitalist system like well you know a strong welfare state or a lot of you know entities owned by the government like public transportation or something to that effect so that, I mean, that term seems to be more apt to what you're yeah, describing. Yes. Again, I'm not. I'm as I said at the beginning. I'm not really claiming to come up with a political theory here. Right. And the and the forms of socialism I experienced in Germany and in China are, of course, very very different from one another. Mm -hmm. The very different circumstances. Well, I what mean, is China is like a one party country too. So I mean, that'd be very yes. very different than Germany. So yes. What is it like in China? Ooh, um, that's also a very difficult question to to answer. It's not as the media portray it. <laughs> that's yeah, that that's my big question because look, yeah, we get conflicting yeah. reports. We get uh, various media portrayals. I don't know if you know of Peter of Peter Zihan, who is basically saying China's on the verge of demographic collapse and. They're going. Their economy is going to collapse in the next ten years. Is that? Is there any truth to that, or what is your take on that? Again, I'm not an expert, but uh, I do think there are major threats to the Chinese economy. I'm not. On the one hand, of course, you know there is this uh, problem now that uh, the birth rate is very low. Um, I'm not so sure if that's actually really a problem. I tend to think it's also a good thing. Um, but again, I, I, I do not have a very informed opinion of this, but there are definitely other factors of the economy that are worrisome, like the housing market bubble and stuff like this. And of course, the, the so-called decoupling that, that is taking place in a worldwide and a global economy, right? So yeah, it, it looks like, um, uh, like there are major dangers to, to the Chinese economy. Yes, uh, that's, but you know, like let's say, like whatever the positive things, you know, for instance, um, 
I always had the feeling that China, just from like a daily experience, was much less of a police state than America. Like America, in my experience, the United States of America has a much higher and aggressive, higher police presence, much more aggressive police. Hmm. Right. So, because we hear a lot about like, you know, China, there's the social credit score thing. Like, what's that? Is that not a big deal? Yeah, this is also, no, it's not. Uh, uh, first of all, most Chinese people are in favor of these elements of social credit system, but the social credit system is in effect not more, there's not more of a social credit system than you have in Western countries. Um, in the sense that whatever, you also have credit ratings and you have kind of constant surveillance of what you do online and stuff like this. And um, so it's it's not the fact, not the case that, you know, there's one central computer and everyone is somehow constantly uh, in it. This is not to say that there isn't whatever that, for instance, social media are not censored. They are cens censored. And mm -hmm. um uh, but Chinese people in general um, uh, are strongly in favor of those social credit kind of mechanisms, which exist in a wide, in a very, in, in, in great diversity. There is not one central credit system, but simply because it, um, it improves um, uh, reliability, it improves uh, security. Chinese people are very much concerned with, with safety and security. Mm -hmm. And that's another big thing, another big difference between China and the US, uh, that there is basically, basically, even in the big cities, no violent crime. And again, without strong police presence. Uh, so um, you can basically walk around at any part of um, a city of tens of millions of people at any time of the day without even spending a thought about your personal safety. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there's always going to be... Without police presence on right. the street. Right. Right. Well, I guess, and, and this would be kind of the interesting part here, is that, you know, there's always a sort of uh, push and pull between, you know, uh, safety versus freedom, or at least that's kind of how it's been sold. Um, so you can have we can have a yeah, conversation but about like also. But well, Chinese let me just say people... this: you, you can have okay, a conversation about like the prescriptive nature of whether people like the social credit system or things of that like that. But and that's fine if people like that. I guess you know we can have that conversation. But when but when you say that like America's a, a bigger police state than China, I don't understand how that tracks when. You know, yeah, we have like a, a financial credit score. Like if you want a credit card or you want to take out like a private loan, then sure. Mm. But it's not like there's no government, there's no private organization that's keeping track of like you doing various things in the social world to just determine like whether you're, quote, a good citizen that can have access to transportation or banking or anything like that. Um. Well, I mean, you have criminal records and stuff like that, don't you? Yeah, but I mean, it, just because you're a criminal, you, if, if you've been convicted of a felony and you go to jail and you get out, I mean, you can still get a bank account and use public transportation. And like, you don't, I think the only thing that is kind of up in the air is, you know, it can be hard to get a job because they'll say like, oh, have you been convicted of a felony? And in some states you can't vote. Yeah, but again, like, um, I don't, I'm, I'm sorry, I cannot provide you any concrete number. 
Mm-hmm. But in my estimate, the, the percentage of people in America who are in jail and who, because they have been in jail, have kind of records is like, I don't know, 10 times or more higher than in China, probably more than 10 times. Yeah, that, that, that well, I don't <laughs> know what the, I don't know what the exact prison population in America. No, I don't know. China. No, but, right, the Amer- but they have the prison uh, population in China in America is considerable it's one of mm-hmm. the highest prison populations in the world right and people spend very long time in prison and and that that kind of follows them through uh, through all of their life right it's not like, the case in China yeah but like so and, and this could just China, be China not a lot of people are in prison this could just be my this is my perception of things is that like I feel like I can sit here and I could criticize America all day every day 24 7. And there are a lot of YouTubers who do that. And it's like, that's just literally how they make their money. That's how they do their job. I don't know. I wouldn't feel comfortable sitting in China, spending all day on the internet, talking about how Chinese government sucks. I would assume that that would not be allowed. There are other YouTubers that do that and have been, I mean, they had to move out of China because it it became a security threat. Right. So, I mean, when you say police state, uh... that's what I think of as like a police state. Well, and this this is why the streets are safe at night with no police because everyone's terrified to do anything. No, that is not true. That is not true. Okay, okay. Well, tell us this. Tell us the situation. Why? Why is that the case? So again, uh, again, people are um, uh, in China. You don't have the level of free speech you have in America. No question. Right. Okay. Nevertheless, China and Chinese people are. Ex- extremely active on social media. They're on social media all the time. There's an extremely vibrant social media world. And they talk about everything from cats to personal life, to job issues, to you name it, education pressures, right? Um, There is also, I've just been, I know I live in Macau, which is technically part of China, but very independent. I've just been across the border because I have to go across the border to go into mainland China. And um, there are offices on the street, I saw them, I speak Chinese, I read Chinese, where people can go and complain about working conditions. So um, because the Chinese government is concerned that people are unhappy and whatever, they don't get paid and so forth. So there's lots of like um, efforts that the government makes to kind of keep people happy and to let them voice their concerns, their real-life concerns. I'm not saying it's the same in America. And if you say, again, as you said, it's completely correct. If you, like, uh, ask for regime change in China, that's not okay. That's not tolerated. But that doesn't mean that people cannot, you know, uh, speak about the things that actually do concern them in their real life. Uh, and um, uh, the uh, that they are kind of you know just like completely suppressed and um, in in academia, which is my field, uh, I feel that again, with the exception of criticizing directly the government and asking for regime change, uh, there is a lot of um, um, freedom of speech mm-hmm. in some ways more than in, in Germany. Um, and like, if you go like to, even though on the one end the internet is censored, it's all very ambiguous, right? They have the great firewalls. 
So a lot of like, including YouTube is censored, but everyone can access it with a VPN. <laughs> so it's, it's ambiguous, right? Uh, and um, um, uh, so um, my, that's another thing. I mean, if you let me talk, right? I, I think it was, a, I think it was a very, in a way, uh, an absolutely necessity for China to impose this um, uh, internet censorship regarding the blocking of YouTube and whatever Google and you name it, because otherwise they would not have the big Chinese internet companies that all the Chinese people use, you know. You have your Chinese uh, uh, YouTube and you have your Chinese Google and you have your Chinese, you name it. And these are huge, huge companies. So in Europe, you don't have that. Germany, look at Germany. Germany is kind of economically uh, getting like super backwards. It has an economy of the 20th century building, uh, you know, get gas. <laughs> Uh, cars, electric cars, like the Chinese, and they have no, you know, uh, top of the notch IT industry. But you have this in China, which is absolutely essential for them. And they have control over their data. The government has control of the data. Just like in in um in oh, you're edward snowden and everything whatever you i do in germany on the internet and what germans do on the internet including the german government is watched by the americans <laughs> and, and uh, the chinese basically had no other choice i think uh, in order to maintain and to basically build um their let's say it power uh, other than through through these censorship measures, I'm not justifying them. I'm explaining their uh, their rationality. Mm -hmm. There's cool. a, there is a very pragmatic rationality behind it, which is not simply you know to suppress the people, because as an effect of this, China has a very strong IT industry, which offers a lot of job opportunities and thereby economic and thereby also other social freedoms for Chinese people, for instance, to travel all over the world or to study all over the world. Everyone in China is free to study anywhere. You look at the American universities. It's full of Chinese students. Mm -hmm. Everyone in China can travel basically anywhere. If they have money, and why do they have money? Because the government has implemented economic policies that made hundreds of millions of people making that kind of money that enables them to travel to Europe and to the United States and to get degrees there. It's complex. It's it's very complex. It's not the it's not this kind of simple media uh, story that has always been told and retold ad nauseum, if you know what that mm -hmm. means. Well, it's just, it's, I mean, you know, when you look at America, when you look at Europe, you know, this obviously in a lot of these countries, uh, middle class exists and people are able to generate the wealth to do all these things without having a one party government system that essentially controls everything or has the capacity to control everything and in terms of what that's going to look like really true well well wait a minute the in, chinese in communist the chinese 
The Chinese Communist Party has a has 100 million members, uh -huh. and as already Mao Zedong said, uh, there are many parties within the party, and okay. it is very difficult for the for the party that's actually one of their main problems because the country is so big and it has so many members and so many different party branches to have this kind of totalitarian control one of the major problems of the chinese communist party is that it is split into so many different factions which are not ideological factions they are different kind of provincial based power factions and so forth I mean, is, um, is there... A but the party's everywhere. It's also like in the university, right? The most powerful people in the academic departments are the party secretaries. But they're not evil people. They're actually just working, for, in many cases, for the benefit for the benefit of, of their colleagues and the students. Is there... They're not, they're not, not, more, not right. worse or... They're not better or worse than... Uh, um the corporate uh people who uh, govern the american universities sure and I, I mean i'm not making the argument that you know anyone in china is you know ontologically evil or anything but i mean is, is there a possibility is there a way that you know xi would not be president or not be the ruler of china or is he basically just set there for indefinitely indefinite time period that's also difficult to say like uh, based on history, there mm -hmm. are, there are um, continuous power struggles within the Chinese Communist Party, which are highly intransparent. They are basically not transparent to right. the outside. Yeah, but see, that's what's concerning. I mean, because it's like, I understand what you're saying, but if you have a system of governance where, you know, you basically, the, the people have uh, limited control over these things and it's not really even transparent who is in charge of things how they become in charge of things and if they do become in charge of things how to change that leadership i mean I, maybe i am just uh pessimistic but you know i don't know if you've read the book you know the dictator's handbook uh, which is something you know or selector <laughs> theory which is kind of what i buy into how the world works but i wouldn't really trust a system like that to produce the best results for a society do do you well you again, support like democracy, if you, if right? Garrett, you democracy, you're in favor of democracy, correct? I don't think it exists. <laughs> okay. Would you be theoretically in favor of it if it did exist? So do, uh, do you no. think democracy is a what what do you mean by it doesn't exist? Like we had an election, obviously, 70 million Americans voted for Joe Biden, made him president of the United States. That that happened. Yeah, but it was rigged, wasn't it? Well, well if you so, believe Donald Trump. That's a joke. That was meant to be a joke. That was meant to be a joke. That well, you, look, joke. you should make sure that. <laughs> well, what, 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 do, what do you mean by democracy doesn't exist? Just, I mean, I understand well, if you're saying people's. Look, Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I, when you, if you ask me what I am, I'm not a socialist. I'm basically two things, given my, you know, educational background. One, I'm a Taoist, the Chinese philosophy Taoism, which I studied for decades, mm -hmm. and I'm a social system theorist. So I'm strong. My, I, I read a lot and actually wrote several books about the German social system theorist Niklas Luhmann, and a key element of social systems theory is that society consists of various social systems, politics, the economy, media, 
religion, uh, academic system, system, and so forth. And none of them saying democracy doesn't exist because it is based on the counterfactual assumption that the political system is in control of society and that somehow the government is in control through the people who are in government of the political system. Both assumptions, I think, are blatantly false and have nothing to do with the social reality we're living in. Neither is the political system, at least in China, you could arguably make the case, but let's leave China aside. And we're talking about America or Europe and Germany. I do not think the is you're, 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 running this running society or running the country and again i do not think that individual uh, uh people um are so to speak um you know that the, that the, that the, that that the power lies with the people with individual people that's a humanistic traditional uh, 18th century narrative that along with the along with individualism that we talked about earlier well, well uh, let me let me like push back just a little creed. bit here Garrett. Go ahead, let me go ahead. so right. so it, my in my understanding of democracy and it's it's super interesting that you're talking about social systems like democracy in my understanding is a social system where politicians or, or people in charge, policymakers, people who make the rules of society are kind of forced to develop policy that will help a large number of people because that they need to convince that large number of people to show up at a polling place, you know, every couple of years, every four years to keep them in power. So their incentives are to produce good public policy or they lose power. And since they want to keep power, status, you know, uh, fame, whatever, all the trappings of power, they try to come up with policy that will please these people and keep them coming back to the polls. So that, that's a social system, right? No, not, that, not in a theoretical of course, you can call that a social system. I don't want to monopolize the term. Okay, so but not in this, not in the sense that I in in the in the in the very narrow sense of social systems theory use use that. I would we have we would have to have a, a whole whatever hour to explain that. But basically, the uh, is that. Uh, modern keep, society consists Garrick, of different what he calls function systems. Yeah, you keep cutting. You keep cutting out. Maybe if you turn your camera off, it'll be like a lower bit rate. I'll just bring a photo up of you. Okay, okay. let's try that. You keep cutting out, and you're. I want to hear what you're saying. Yeah, let's see if this works. Okay, so so Luhmann defines the a, a social system uh, through having its own way of communicating and having basically its own specific, for instance, media, like money in the economy. And politics has power and science has truth. Uh, and um, so, and these are, and, and media produce information how, how modern society functions. And none of them, and they're basically all 
kind of um, do their own thing. All of them do do are doing their own thing and are constantly influencing one another, but none of it is central and makes the simple whatever politics is as much dependent, for instance, as on, on the economy as the economy is on politics. Politics is as much dependent on the media as the media are dependent on politics. Politics is as much dependent on law as law is dependent on politics. In all these different systems, law, media, um, uh, the economy, politics, uh, they um, they constantly, they are in one another's environment and influence, influence one another, but none of them is in control. The po politics cannot control the economy. Politics can cannot really control a functioning legal system if you have one. Politics cannot control uh, the media. The media as much controls politics as, as politics controls the media. Yeah, I accept that. That seems true yeah. to me. Right. I don't. Why does yes. that mean that there's no democracy, though? That's not. What I'm, I'm not following that. The line the, it democracy. means when I'm saying democracy, it's not the case that people have the power to establish a government that then, um, you know, um, represents the will of the people and imposes this will of the people on all of all of society that's a story that we like to tell ourselves it's a 17th century or 18th century story that has nothing to do with the reality of the 21st century it's not the case that people use the democratic system in order to have power over themselves that is not the case even though that is the the the, the, the story well and I think it's it, it it's it's it, it's good that it's not the case because if it was the case we would not be living in the twenty first century. But uh, mm -hmm. so yeah, we could. Well, can, can you give me like, the highly complex to, modern society? It's hard mm -hmm. for me to visualize what you're saying. Can you give me like an example of of where that like where that doesn't happen? So I know what you're talking about. Well, um, you know, um, it's it's whatever like. Uh, a political like what would be an decision, example of like the people not having control over some facet of society that would, if they did, it would make it more democratic or something. No, it's it couldn't be it couldn't be made more democratic. And it's if whatever again, like the political system functions in the way it functions, and the media functions in the way the media system functions, but it's not not the case that people somehow set together whatever in a room of a million people and decided okay now we establish the media system in the way it works or now we establish the economy in the way it works oh okay i understand and they also right. Right. yes and they okay. also didn't set together like um, the 100 i don't know 250 million people oh yeah in order to really realize our will we need to meet this mr biden to be our president <laughs> it's, a, it's absurd it's Right. So like, I think there's like a black mirror episode or something where, you know, like society was basically run where everyone had a little watch and like for everything, they just like, everyone would just like randomly vote on like every issue. And, and like, yeah, I agree that we don't live in a society like that. Um, but, and I don't think that's really what most people mean when they say like, Oh, we live in a democracy. I think they mean that, you know, like, especially in America, the idea is that there's certain principles of free markets and free blah, 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 that we all kind of live according to. 
And then if we decide to make changes to governance, the changes in society, the changes in governments follow a democratic principle of you voting for someone who's supposed to represent your values, who blah, 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 blah. Like, so I, I wouldn't say that just because we don't live in this like ultimate democracy, that doesn't mean that democracy doesn't exist. Well, there certainly, there, there certainly exist uh, election processes, which mm-hmm. have a certain importance uh that is that is that is sure but like you know in the election you can also make that point which people like chomsky make that the election is just an opportunity for uh, uh the you know the big corporations and the big politicians to manipulate people to manufacture consent that's chomsky's point Elections are a big exercise in which the big political and economic powers use this opportunity to manufacture consent to their rule. That is basically Chomsky's uh, point. Mm -hmm. I'm not a Chomskyist. I'm not saying that. But it is also uh, a kind of uh, a way of explaining the function of elections that is not irrational. Shouldn't like it is not less not less convincing to me than the the um, the mainstream narrative that you uh, that you um, mm-hmm. presented. Yeah, but like I don't perceive of, and I don't know if you do, but it's hard for me to imagine a world where you know free of sort of you know individuals climbing power hierarchies by building coalitions of people around them. That will then try to use influence, whether it be through persuasion, whether it be through money, whether it be through some corrupt action. Um, it's hard for me to imagine a world where that is not like the human behavior that's manifesting in society. And so we kind of have to build a political system, a cultural system that tries to that tries to take you know these actors, these bad actors, and incentivize uh, antisocial behaviors into pro-social behaviors. And I think that kind of the liberal democratic society that we live in currently does the best job of this. So I can't really conceive of a society where human nature has changed the capacity where everyone's just kind of working together in harmony under some sort of like very idealistic way. So when we talk about like whether democracy exists or not, I'm not sure it's uh, advantageous to think of it in terms of like a utopian way as opposed to just sort of the more realistic way which is, yeah, there's always going to be people trying to, quote, manufacture consent. There's always going to be people trying to persuade people through various you know, ways. But at the end of the day, people still have the, the capacity, the free will, possibly, to go into a voting booth and kind of decide how they're going to vote. And that's what democracy is. Well, my point is decidedly not that the liberal system is bad. I think it works pretty well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure, though, as that brings us back to the earlier system uh, question, if it's really like so much better than non-liberal system. I doubt that, for instance, in the case of China. Um, and, you know, could again, whatever, look at the Philippines in comparison to China. Philippine has a liberal democracy. And nevertheless, a lot of people live in very bad circumstances. And uh, the Philippines had 
the we're basically the richest country in 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 that region, including China, in 1945 after the war. And they have always had a liberal political system, except a few dictators in between. But basically, by the Americans, like they have like a, a free market society. And um, yeah, that, that doesn't work better than 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 China's one party system. Doesn't make the people happier. Doesn't give them more actual freedom. So, so well, I doubt that. Nevertheless, as as you said earlier, I agree. America overall works pretty well. Germany also works pretty well. I wouldn't right. want to change it. I'm not saying it's, and I'm not like Chomsky who says, you know, it's it's kind of a sinister thing. I'm not asking for more dem democracy or. For less democracy, I just, in the sense that you're using the term, I just don't think that democracy, actually, even in Germany or in in uh, in the United States, functions in the way the narrative presents its function. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess, I guess that is its own. I also topic, don't believe in free but... will. I just did a bit long interview on my. Channel I know you. Do. I know. The, uh, I know. Yeah, uh, with a guy who uh, t basically proves uh, Robert Sapolsky um, uh, scientifically that there is no such thing as free will. Right. And well, maybe we I could talk about that. Agree with it. Um, and I, I just, basically it, agree with yeah. it. It's just it, it's hard, and I guess I don't know how. I don't know. Listen, I don't know what is American propaganda or not. But you know, when I think of you know China, and I think of you know suicide nets at Foxconn factories, and like the possibility of the government doing black market organ harvesting and things of that nature. And, and, you know, you combine that with the surveillance state, you combine that with, you know, there's a woman recently who, you know, accused someone in the communist party of sexual assault. And she was like a famous uh, tennis star. And then she like disappears and then comes back and it's like, Oh no, I, that, that wasn't accurate. You know? And then all the stuff yeah. with the Uyghurs, it's just, it's hard for me to sort of conceptualize. Like you can make the argument that like, okay, like, you know, they've made economic development, but it's hard for me to to conceptualize that, you know, the freedoms of the people in that country are not heavily infringed on when compared to you know, Western democracies. Uh, yeah, and I, I think that's a, a very one-sided picture mm -hmm. because I think if you, uh, as I said earlier, if you want to, uh, I think, it, uh, you know, it, it is important um it's also an aspect of freedom, whatever, you know, that a large part that that uh, that a very small part of the population is in prison, much smaller than the US. And um, um, a lot, basically, there is, for instance, um, at the same time, for instance, no homelessness. Right. And uh, that all has to do with with liberties. I mean, what are the liberties of the of, no of, homeless of the people homeless in China? people of the no, very few, very few. What 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 happens to people that are? So what are the lip? They don't. They don't. They don't. They, everyone had. Uh, that's also, of course, socialism. They all have homes. No, but is it just like so? The government just like says, "Here's a home." And it's not social housing. They used to have to because that was in the that was when the country was still run communist. Everyone had a home, and then then you have a fu functioning social fabric. And they they may they take care that that, that because there are now hundreds at least tens of millions if not hundreds of millions of migrant workers uh, that they're also all housed. Well, um, I mean, like a lot of the homeless uh, issues. There, there's people have yeah. They, the, they like have the no issue. drugs. They have no drug problem. 
how 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 much how how uh, how much you know what that has also a big effect on actual freedom. If you are like a drug addict, mm -hmm. right? How how much freedom do you have? No, I mean I don't disagree with that. Um, I don't think every drug should be legal. But I mean it's just kind of ironic because you know obviously a lot of the drugs in America like fentanyl come from China, so China's kind of like fucking with us intentionally by sending this shit to Mexico to send that, to us. That may maybe possible maybe possible, but yeah. why do they why do these people why are these people addicted in the first place did you hear about you know the opium uh epidemic and so forth that comes mm -hmm. from your uh comes from your pharmaceutical industry sure yeah there are definitely problems where the pharmaceutical industry gets people hooked on painkillers and then they kind yes. of shift to illegal drugs i mean i'm not you know i'm not here to say that every corporation does everything ethically or morally um i just no, but i'm, I'm just I, saying I just but i still it, think that's very, different it's a than, very limited it's a well, no, but limited. there's a difference between like a corporation doing something bad where the corporation doesn't have the monopoly on violence. Like I can do something to go against the corporation. Like it's, you know, so much harder for me to go against the state when the state has a monopoly of violence. And at the end of the day, they can just, you know, take me out. Well, again, like, of course, the, the Americans, the Chinese don't have the, the freedom to vote for either Trump or Biden. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have that luxury. But, you know, again, like hundreds of millions of people have the freedom not to be in prison uh, and uh, to have not to be on the street and not to be uh, addicted to a drug. Well, I mean, you have the free I mean, people so in America I think have the freedom that's... to not be in prison or be addicted to the drug. People are making decisions to break the law or to do drugs. Like, Yeah, again, like I'm not so sure that that is true. I'm not so sure that people make the decision to, you know, to lead to, to the conscious decision out of free will to decide that they, you know, commit crimes that that um, uh, uh, and to live out on the street or to uh, be a drug addict. So is this is this these, tied these, to your free will conversation of that people are basically just acting upon their environment in specific ways? They don't have the capacity to make choices. I'm not as radical as Robert Sapolsky. I think, of course, we make choices all the mm -hmm. time. Uh, but first of all, we do not know why we make the choices we make. Right? We no, don't yeah. know why we that, make yeah. most of the choices we right. make. I and, know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And secondly, so our choices are not very informed. And secondly, mm -hmm. we also do not know what will follow from the choices we make. So on the one hand, the choices we make are not well informed, and the choices we make ultimately don't really decide much either. So these are like very, very severe limitations to free will. And that give you the same argument about your democracy stuff, uh, Stitch. We don't know why we vote for a certain politician. And we have no clue what will follow from the decision that we vote for, for that politician. And that means we are not in power. We are not mm -hmm. empowered to make a completely 100% informed decision that represents only what we want. Because again, we don't even know what we want. And secondly, we have no fucking clue what happens afterwards. Right. But, but wait a second. After That's what I mean. This is, but this is the iter the iterative process, though. Like, if we vote for one candidate and that candidate turns out to be a massive mess 
at least we can vote for another candidate next time and say, oh man, we shouldn't have done that. But if you, if you don't have that option, like in China, you're, yeah. you're screwed. You're not necessarily screwed. Again. But, um, but, do, but um, do you acknowledge that you can like course correct? Of course, it can be catastrophic, and it was catastrophic in China, whatever. You know, there have been catastrophic political periods. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, they, they were. Yeah, I agree. But so, okay. I do not think that 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 um, that necessarily a, um, a democratic system is inherently more immune to that. I mean, mm -hmm. Adolf Hitler was the democratically elected yes but the first thing he did the first thing he did was end democracy <laughs> he's like yeah. look uh, i don't want any chance of me losing yeah, power but he, here. If, if he had like they had votes and uh i mean it is ultimate it is absolutely clear that a large part majority of the part of the population was absolutely absolutely fan of his they would he would have easily won any free election no doubt right mm -hmm. Um, it, I want to bring up this thing that Adam hates, but I think it's very relevant. No, to yeah. bring it up. What, which a, what is the, the hell? I, I, no, it's the free. It's when we're talking about free will. I think part of the trouble around the conversation is that people are defining free will differently, and so I kind of conceptualize that the two forms of free will that people are talking about. There's local free will and there's universal free will. And I don't know. Maybe there's some actual person has a better name for this, but. What I'm talking about is like local free will. An example I use is if you come up to a fork in the road and you can go left or right, mm. and there's no person, there's no you know police officer, there's nothing going on there that's that's telling you what direction to go, and you can just go left or you can go right, and it's just up to you. That's local free will. So that's one mm -hmm. form of free will. And then there's the universal free will, which is when you go to the fork in the road. Even if there's no person, no thing, no animal chasing you, nothing dictating which way to go, you know, maybe in the past, whenever you've gone to the left, you know, you've been punished. So unconsciously that like pushes you to the right. Or maybe you look to the right and you see there's like, I don't know, like the color of the clouds in the right, you know, hits you in some way emotionally. So unconsciously you go to the left. Right. And so that's the universal free will is that like, well, you know, maybe even if you don't have a person or something, you know, physical telling you what to do, you have all this past experiences, all these things kind of directing your life in ways you're not familiar with. And that's universal free will. And it sounds like you're you're sort of alluding to the universal form of free will that, you know, because people are not free from the various forms of causality in their lives, free will doesn't exist. No, I also mean this in a very uh, individual way, like the first example you gave. Um, when you are, in, you know, choosing this way or that way, go left or right, um, you don't really know why you choose to go left or right. right. There are many, like, factors that, as this guy Sapolsky would say, determine you, I would say that condition you, and you have no power over these factors that condition your decision. And yet, of course, you feel that you're making a decision. And it's somehow important that you have that feeling that you are making a decision. Otherwise, we couldn't function in the way in the way we function. That's actually Jordan Peterson's point. But um, uh, and 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 that makes sense, right? Um, 
so it's again it's it's complex it's complicated mm-hmm. um there is an element of making choices and this element of making choices is very central to you know our sense of ourselves and yet at the same time every single decision we make as individuals is by no means free there is not a single free will decision that that we make we're always determined or conditioned by a myriad of factors that we have no con- clue and no control over mm-hmm. yeah no I, I agree with that i don't think i don't think a universal sense of free will could exist unless uh, the individual believes that God exists and there's some kind of like super supernatural element to things. So I, I do agree mm. that there's all these things that are playing on people's minds and emotions and unconscious biases that direct, you know, the direction they go. Um, but I also agree that even though that may be the case, I don't, and I think you kind of sound like you were saying the same thing. There's still a useful fiction that we at least operate under the guise that free will exists because I'm not sure that yes. we could construct a society around the idea that free will doesn't exist. Like people still need to be held accountable for the actions that they do. Uh, except for the, yeah, I agree. Basically I agree. Yes, I agree. Okay. So what is the, how does pro-felicity relate to the transgender stuff that you're kind of working on? <laughs> well, I'm still, I'm still, uh, I'm just in the beginning of mm-hmm. early stages of writing this book on, on pro-felicity and gender and transgender. And uh, so it's all a little bit raw at this point, And I might, might change the way I talk about this, but Basically, my, my main the main idea for this book is that, um, of course, you know I regard um, sincerity, authenticity, and profilicity as the identity technologies that Adam uh, said at the beginning, and of course, our our identity has a lot to do with gender. So I think gender is a very good example to explain uh, these different identities technologies and also to make the main point that I already tried to make in the you and your profile book namely that um, uh, we're no longer in the age of authenticity but we're in the age of profilicity and that means that gender now is a profile uh, right in the past which is easy to show gender was a role gender there were gender roles that sincerity you sincerely commit to the roles you have, right? These are like the traditional ideas of the male and the female roles. And then you identify you, through your building like sincere commitment to your gender role. So you 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 build your sense of identity by being mm-hmm. whatever, you know, fulfilling the, the male or the female roles, for instance. And uh, then th- that's the basic idea. There was like this period in the age of authenticity, which I think has clearly come to an end, um, that gender was basically regarded as um, contingent. We were, we were all individuals, humans, and it didn't really matter for our pure authenticity it, what, what what gender we had. The idea was that we need to make gender equal, uh, right? We need to have equality between men and women, for instance. 
so that uh, gender doesn't define you. Because if it's unequal and you're defined through your higher gender hierarchies, then you cannot be authentic. Mm -hmm. So basically, a, a core idea of the age of authenticity was uh, that gender is somehow to exaggerate here in the way of being authentic, specifically mm -hmm. gender roles. They are an obstacle to becoming authentic. If we're too much focused on our gender, we cannot really become authentic, right? Mm -hmm. And now that has changed. We And the, the, the curious thing is, which is what I'm currently writing on, um, we are still very much using the language of authenticity, right, of finding yourself and being a true self, especially in the transgender discourse, which I find is is the most glaringly paradoxical, right? Uh, that uh, where now gender becomes essential to being your true self. But at the same time, it's a gender that you're supposed to determine, like you determine your profile. So it's really important how you are seen, how people address you, right? That they use the right pronouns and everything. So uh, I think therefore it's, it's pretty clear um, the gender and, and transgender is exemplifies this um, has now become, as it was in sincerity, very important for our identity, but no longer as a role, but as a profile. And we want to we want to build, as I call it in my my language, true investment into a profile. And we kind kind of demand of society that it that it validates our gender profile. And I think that's that's a very interesting switch from the, let's say, authenticity relation to gender, which again, to exaggerate, saw basically gender identifications as a form of obstacle to becoming truly authentic. Mm -hmm. Whereas now, in order to be truly prophilic, we again, as in sincerity, where gender was super important because of the role identification now gender becomes super important as as a profile uh, as yeah as a profile that's mm -hmm. the basic idea for the book was that i'm interested was that clear to you because i'm still trying to yeah it. well it, it sounds like we're saying which i think is a very interesting observation is that we used to have this idea in our you know western liberal society that to find your truly authentic self we had to kind of throw away you know, like your gender or your race held you back yes. from, from finding your true self. Exactly. And you, yeah. And you had exactly. to like, you had to like throw those categories away or society had to exactly uh, downplay the importance of society. So you could find like there's a, some true spirit inside of you, some true consciousness. Exactly. That, yeah, that exactly. you have to kind of find. And now yes. there's been yes. the shift to the exact exactly. opposite where it's like in order to find yourself, you have to embrace your gender. You have to embrace exactly. your race. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's the point. And this this specific thing, this is for me the most glaring, concrete example for the switch from authenticity to prophilicity. This is right. why we're no longer in the age of authenticity, but in the age of prophilicity. This shows it. So, because like to me, I would describe that the reason that shift occurred was the shift from, you know, individual liberalism to wokeness is right. is that how you would describe it or do you think there's something else going yes on? i agree with you i think okay. that's 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 definitely related to it mm -hmm. i mean that's another it's another it's another manifestation of this what do you mean by that such well see to me and i don't know if, if you agree doctor but wokeness to me is a form of like 
and we talked about this the first time you were on is Mm. this philosophy of taking, you know, elements of, of Marxism and then removing the class elements and kind of shifting it through the lens of like race and gender. And that's what wokeness is. So I don't know if you agree with Mm. that perception. No, I wouldn't, I would not go the way via Marxism, but that's Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. So what, so what is wokeness then? <laughs> well, it's a civil religion in my in my in my view. I agree. I agree with that. Yes, and um, it has. Uh, it, you can explain it exactly as you explained uh, earlier. This shift, right? That mm-hmm. um, uh, these kind of public proclamations become like super important. Yeah, that, but. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why it's like a civil religion, right? In a civil religion, uh, you also, in a religion, like in the traditional religion, you basically find your identity in professing the faith, in becoming the community and accepting the identity of this uh, ultimately collective, um, brings us back to the topic earlier thing. <laughs> and and something something similar happens like, like now with, with wokeness. It's kind of um, a public uh, faith. Uh, in which to which you can publicly uh, commit, uh, and then um, you can shape uh, a, a certain profile. Um, I mean, I, I agree with I agree with all that. I, I do agree that this the people creating this profile. I do agree that it is a civil religion. Um, virtue but, signaling, right? Right, and As that's you, a vir- yes, one hundred percent virtue yeah. signaling. Yeah. Um, but I guess and my virtue, question... virtue signaling, virtue signaling means that it, it has this emphasis on the signaling, right? That mm-hmm. you have this kind of send out this public signal and then you get validated, your signal gets validated and you get validated by the signal getting val- validated by by the public, right? Right. It's right. this kind of mechanism. Yeah. And and um and um yeah and so wokeism is a civil religion under conditions of profilicity Mm -hmm. so yeah no i agree with that completely um and i would imagine that most people that are engaged in this that are virtue signaling like they don't they're just kind of doing it intuitively emotionally they don't have like a good underlying conceptualization of the philosophy that's under well the the thing is the thing is we're being forced to virtue signal Right. Like whatever. If you apply for a job at a university in America, (laughs) you need to demonstrate your capacity that you're willing and able to virtue. Right. Because you need to write a diversity statement. Right. And you need to write the diversity statement to show again that you're both able to do that, able to virtue signal and willing to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's even more. Right. You you have to, you know, uh, you, you have to be able to be truly invested in the profile of that you signal when you're writing the um, the diversity statement. Right. So the, yeah, and, and, and thereby thereby you show your willingness to commit to the profile and contribute to the profile of the university. Mm hmm. I don't know if you saw recently there was, you know, and you have to do basically, basically the same in in any job nowadays. Mm-hmm. That yeah, I mean, what you're saying was, I think, was very on display recently with the hearing where, you know, they had the presidents of Harvard and MIT and Penn, you know, come to Congress, and they were kind of asking them, you know, whether uh, people advocating for the genocide of Jews violated the student codes of conduct, 
and the presidents couldn't even give a clear answer <laughs> on that question. And if people were sort of like, oh, it's like the like the public is kind of coming to grips, I think, with this kind of clash of the the woke virtue signal and the DEI statements and how that actually kind of doesn't function with the ideas of, of liberalism that people kind of subscribe to. Um, yeah, but then on the lives. other hand, on the other hand, you also need to virtue signal. Um, it's very tricky, right? You also need to virtue signal in a sense that you publicly condemn Hamas, sure. and that you publicly accept uh, Israel's right to exist or mm -hmm. so. Right. Yeah. Um, or you lose your job. Like you, we had this one or two football players in Germany. As I said before, I follow uh, sports. And there's one football player of, of Muslim origin. He posted something and uh, in critis critical of Israel, and then he was fired. And um, mm -hmm. <laughs> the idea is that if <laughs> if you don't even it, it, it was very tricky. He now went to there's no court case, so it's not clear if, if the firing was legal or not, but uh, or not. But the assumption was basically that the club made when firing him uh, that if you don't uh, you know affirm the right of Israel's existence. Uh, actively confirm this uh, or to uh, condemn the acts of Hamas, mm -hmm. that then basically that is a reason why the club can fire you. Right. So all culture... Even you're, you're not a politician, you're a football player, right? right. You're a soccer I, yeah, player. I, I see. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, um, you know, all culture has a sense of gravity or stickiness to it where you have to, because culture perpetuates itself, and society kind of perpetuates itself, otherwise it wouldn't exist as a culture society, people have to affirm uh, whatever the cultural values are, you know, to an extent, like obviously if, you know, the president of Harvard came out and said that they supported, you know, cannibalism, <laughs> I think, you know, people would be like, wait a minute, I don't know if this person should be the president of Harvard, but I guess, but my question is, so like when we're talking about virtue signaling, I guess kind of embedded within that is like, how is or why to you has there been this shift from people sort of finding their authentic self free from their identities to people have to embrace their gender and race to find their authentic self? What has caused that shift? Well, again, uh, the idea is very theoretical and I stole this idea again from the social systems theorist Niklas Luhmann, mm -hmm. and the term that he uses is second-order observation. And he has like his theories, and I think this makes a lot of sense. That a defining criterion of uh, modernity, modern society, is actually this switch to second-order observation that is now ubiquitous. What does this mean? I think the best example for this is brands, brands, right, in the economy. Until, uh, I don't know, 120 years ago, people were just buying stuff. They were buying things like shoes, right, or whatever, salt. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, now everything that you buy is branded 
right? So you can't just buy a shoe, you buy a whatever, an Adidas shoe, right? And so you don't just see the shoe, but the identity of the shoe is defined by how the, so when you look at the shoe, you look at the shoe, not in the mode of first order observation that you look at what you see with your eyes, you look at the shoe by at the same time seeing how the shoe is being seen through its brand. Does that make sense? So right? like when you know, you, look you just at... see the public perception of that shoe. Right. You're not just so, seeing the shoe. Right. You're seeing so like... the public perception of the shoe through its brand. Right. Right. And you do the same thing nowadays when you watch my YouTube video. You're not just watching my YouTube video. You're also at the same time watching the public perception of my YouTube video because it comes with all the comments and it, you see how many viewers it has and blah, blah, blah. So what, and, and thereby you can see that what once 150 years ago was applied to things, to the things we buy, like shoes, is now also applied to people. Why do you, you know, why do you, why do you talk with me right now? Because you're familiar with my profile, and mm -hmm. you 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 understand my profile because you don't just look at me. You look at how am I being seen. You look at my brand, okay? And you invite me to your show because you're interested in my brand, not in me because you never knew me. That's not true. We're interested in you. <laughs> yeah, but through look, my profile, look, which is perfectly fine. It's yeah, but not this, a it's not this, a problem. Sure, but there's it, a difference between right? like an Adidas shoe where someone's like, "Listen, I'm going to buy these shoes because I don't really care how I look at the shoe. I care how everyone else looks at the shoe, right?" Like, I'm going to be like, "Oh, no, you know, that guy's cool because he's got the shoe, right?" Like, you like, can't understand the shoe without understanding the brand. No, no, I understand that, You're but. What I'm saying is and like it's like the same thing now happens to people. Uh -huh. We we are all we are also just you understand me, and there's nothing wrong with you because you understand the shoe correctly by understanding the brand. Sure. You're not understanding it wrongly. You understand the shoe is more complex now. Right. It's not just a shoe anymore. It's it's more complex than it used to be because we're living in a more complex society mm -hmm. so if you want to understand me i'm more complex than a person that you would have met 100 years ago or 200 years ago because in order to understand me you must understand my profile uh, right. mr wandering we take this actually <laughs> a step further because we actually do second order observation in front of an audience we do react videos yes. which is yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So we're teach we're teaching people popular. how to do. Yeah, exactly. We're teaching people how exactly. to do second order observation. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And you have to do this anyway. You buy stocks, right? It's pure second order observation. Sure. It's pure politics is all second order observation. Right. Your whole democratic politics uh, is all works through second order observation. You want to identify with the brand and wokeism is the same. You are when you when you are woke, you're concerned with your profile because people don't observe you. They also observe how you are being seen, how you are yes. being observed. Yeah, I I agree with that completely. Um, but what I think you're describing is not like you're describing the mechanism of why a profile that maybe is rooted in a more collectivist approach would become 
a dominant theory or a dominant mode, I guess, that people are operating under. Yes. And I'm kind of asking, yeah. yeah, but I'm asking like, why, like, what is the essence of the, of the wokeness specifically? Because when I read, you know, CRT. It doesn't have an essence. As such, I, it doesn't have a content essence. Well, but it but it does though, because like when I read CRT literature, when I read queer theorist literature, when, when I read the yeah. academics that are that are pushing, that are creating the theories of what we call wokeness, I mean they're all operating yeah. under some idea. It's an idea that I would you know call cultural Marxism. But so yes. that's what yeah. yeah. So that's what I don't. I guess that's what I don't understand. Uh, I think there is some truth to that. You know, and that's of course again Jordan Peterson's point, and that's the point mm -hmm. of Pluckrose, Pluckrose, right. James Lindsay, yes. yeah, and Pluckrose, yeah, yes, Pluckrose and Lindsay, and so forth. And I wouldn't say it's kind of, but again, like this cultural Marxism is basically a profile Marxism, sure. which is, as you said yourself, that's a good way of, of categorizing from, it. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's dissolved from the actual authentic Marxism, mm -hmm. which was concerned with uh, class and economy right. issues. Right. Would you okay. say that it's collectivist superficially and it's really individualist? And of course, it's, uh, yeah, I would say it's it's profile. And of course, the actual, the only surviving actual Marxists mm -hmm. uh, in China, uh, they laugh about it. They call it the white left, the Baizhou, right? Mm -hmm. The because uh, <laughs> it's yeah, it's kind of absurd for them, right? Because okay. it has nothing to do with Marxism. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting because it's it's antithetical to classical Marxism, which was sort of like you know we need to throw away these uh, categories of you know race and gender to an extent and just sort of right. unify along class lines. Um, so I mean, right. I, I understand. In why... order to abolish the classes, in, right? right, right, right. Of course, yes. So I understand that, why. Also, you don't want to, you're, you're not a Marxist in order to affirm your class identity. You're ultimately a Marxist to abolish the class identity. Sure, right, and uh, yeah, and uh, you know, obviously, I don't. To me, that's utopian. But putting that aside for a of second, of course, I don't. I'm not right. a Marxist. Yes. I know. I know. I'm just saying this cultural Marxism is profile Marxism, but is a, it has nothing to do with Marxism. Sure. Right. But that's, and, and I understand that's kind of like the weird irony of the situation, um, but it is what it is. And we kind of need a word to describe whatever's going on there. Um, and I mean, I but think profile Marxism I mean, is a, <laughs> a good way of putting it. But. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, it is true that these, that's why the Chinese call them white left, right? That yes. they are like these Americans who read like the Marxist stuff and so forth. And they are these these Westerners who um, who were all no no work not workers but uh, elites. And yeah, mm -hmm. do do what? they make fun of Hassan Piker in China? <laughs> I don't think they know him. <laughs> That's fair. Well, it, it seems like there was, and I don't know if this is everyone, but it does seem like there was an idea from certain uh, more classically Marxist theorists that they felt that the way to sort of imbue the revolutionary spirit in America, because they've been kind of trying to do it through class consciousness for years, it wasn't really holding mm -hmm. on, was to kind of hitch it onto race issues through the civil rights struggle. And that seemed to be kind of the mm -hmm. beginning of this prophylactic Marxism that we're talking about. Mm. Yeah, that makes some sense. Yes. So I mean, they kind of screwed themselves over, I guess, in the long, in the long run. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We're we're running out of time. Is there any super chats or anything 
Any questions for Mister um, Wandering? I mean, there's a lot of anti-China stuff. <laughs> okay, okay. Probably um, by people who have never been to China. Sure. Uh, Mark Twain's Revenge, thank you, says, My father-in-law grew up in Croatia. It was rural about 45 mm. minutes outside of Zagreb within Yugoslavia. And he said the only thing run better than the West was their schools when it came to STEM. He said that rural parts, he said that the rural parts dealt with the worst corruption. It's kind of interesting because you were talking about how, you know, in your experience in Germany, you know, the things that were run publicly were run better than the things that are run privately. And I feel like in yes. America, people... I mean, I don't know if it's true or not, but people feel like it's the opposite, that they feel like things that have been run sure. privately were run um, better. Though I wonder how much of that is just, it seems like in, it seems like there was like that time period from like the 50s to the late 70s, where at least in America, things seemed to, the perception was things were better or were run better. And then yes. once kind of like the neoliberal economic world order kind of came right. in, there was kind of the breakdown of all things. So I don't know if that's necessarily indicative of that or if that's indicative of a shift from, from government to private ownership. Yeah, and I also, I'm not really sure, but I think it is obviously a fact that from the 1950s to the 1970s or 80s, mm -hmm. um, you know, there was like a constant um, rise of real wages and so forth. And that stopped then. And you have a much... And then really what, what happens is this great, um, you know, uh, fast-growing uh, inequality and uh, um, the, the, the lowering of, of uh, real wages mm -hmm. significantly. And whatever, people getting more and more debts and stuff like this. Right. right? These are objective facts. Uh, Christoph Keating asks... Uh, is Dr. Moeller saying that social democrat is the same as socialist? As a German, uh, he should be aware that the abolishing of private property was by the solicitous, I don't know how to say this, solicitous and the socialist unit, the socialist unity party in East Germany. Uh, sorry, I, I couldn't hear. There was a connection was interrupted. Oh, okay. I did not hear. Uh, someone said, um, is Dr. Moeller acting like social democrat is the same as socialist? As a German, he should know that the abolishing of private property was by the, and I don't know how to say this correctly, socialist and Heisen Spartal, the Socialist Unity Party in East Germany. Oh, Socialist Einheitspartei Deutschlands, yes. There you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, of course, we had communism in East Germany and... Uh... I was I grew up in West Germany, mm -hmm. not in Eastern Germany. But did they call themselves so, the Socialist Unity Party? Of course, of course, they called themselves the Socialist Unity. And but you know, in the West, the party that was in government during that period were the Social Democrats, mm, right? And of course, the Social Democrats, uh, the Social Democrats were forced to join the Communist Party in Eastern Germany, and that's mm -hmm. why it called the Socialist Unity Party. It refers to the forced unity of the socialist social democrats who had to join the communist party in eastern germany right yeah i'm, uh, I'm very much aware of that and when i'm talking about germany i'm talking about about this kind of socialism again i'm talking about the socialism in western germany she must being a social democrat yeah yeah 
Uh, Magor says, glad to see Carefree wandering back. Ask him what he thinks of Height's critique of social media and what parents ought to do. Yes, I think this is a very interesting study by Height, and uh, that's very, you know, um, Height's basic idea is that there is this sharp increase of depression and suicide among teenage girls since around 2010 in America and Europe, and it, that it's directly related to Instagram, but in particular, and social media in general. And yeah, I do think that has a lot to do with what. Uh, I'm doing in the sense that I think, um, in essence, height would profit if he had, if he would uh, know the notion of profilicity, because I think what these girls in particular that height is concerned about, rightfully so, are struggling with is uh, the building of profilicity. And um, I think uh, that's that's what what they are struggling with. And I think it would help Height if he would understand, if we wouldn't for, try to force these kids, which sometimes seems what he's trying to do, to stay authentic, because it's impossible to stay authentic. And instead, I think the focus should be on understanding better how profilicity works and um, not just in, in simply... Um, uh, and simply bemoaning, it's definitely existing a huge uh, dangers and problems. Do you agree with him as far as taking social media away from young people, like limiting social we, media it, to it a makes, certain yeah. age? Go ahead. I think it. I think it's very important to be careful, and I'm trying to be careful myself actually with that. Yes. Okay. Um, but uh, on the other hand, I mean. Of course, uh, we are on social media right now. Uh, and um, so I think the, for me, the way is to better understand how profilicity works and um, to promote uh, genuine pretending. We haven't uh, talked about this yet, namely understanding that uh, it's best not to over-identify, no matter if it's through sincerity or through authenticity or through profilicity to kind of be more at ease with your profiles, to not take your, you have to have profiles, but don't be, you know, too much um, over-invested in them. Don't take them all too seriously. Mm -hmm. I think that's the way to go. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Mark Twain's and so I think I yeah. if I would talk to Hyde, I would kind of, you know, um, try to, you know, uh, encourage him to, to, well, instead of taking away social media, trying to find a way to deal with social media in a way that you deal with them more playfully. It's kind of a sticks and stones approach to profiles that we often encourage to people as individuals. Right. Is that kind of what you're saying? The, you, I mean, you might get an opportunity to talk to Height. Height's book comes out in March and this book is supposed to be all about social media. So he's uh, working on finishing it up now. And like it might actually be done now, now that the release is so close. So, you know, yeah, I mean, he's published already, published already, like in newspapers and on YouTube and so forth. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that book. I yeah, yeah, me too. Super interesting. I, I kind of push back a little bit on on him. But uh, look, I we're in a, we're, 
kind of in a privileged position with social media. We have somewhat of a social media following. We have curated a semi-popular right. profile. I do I do think that it could be harsher on kids. I mean, I do my experience yes. wasn't pro felicity in high school. My experience with authentic was authenticity right. in high school, but I did understand where I was in the hierarchy as far as the social hierarchy, right? I knew where the popular kids were. I was not one of them. I was very uh -huh. envious of the popular kids, like many people were. Mm -hmm. And I just right. I I think in the paradigm of pro felicity this could be even more magnified because the Absolutely. popularity of the, the popular kids at school can be astronomical. You're talking about, you know, I had to deal with kids that were just popular with my, my school group, my friend group, my area. But I mean, there could be kids at people's school that are, you know, have millions of social media followers. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, Mark Twain's revenge asks, um, he says, in America, the prisons, <laughs> he says, <laughs> at least we don't have a black market organ harvesting industry connected to American prisons. Can China say the same? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Dude, there is, there's also a, there's two really popular YouTubers that used to live in China. They lived in China for 10 years and they pushed back on a lot of the narratives. They made a video recently talking about how there are definitely homeless people in China, and that's kind of a myth. Maybe I'll send you the video. I'd be curious to see your response to that. Okay. I mean, yeah. I haven't really seen many, and I'm I'm regularly in China. I'm not saying there are none. And I, as I said, there are lots of migrant, mil millions and millions of migrant workers, and they, uh, they live in, um, they're not homeless, but they live in, in difficult conditions often, mm -hmm. yeah, like in containers or so, right. but they are provided with. But still, I mean, it's like very, very different from American cities. Well, right. in American right. cities, the homeless people, to my understanding, they're not migrant workers either. It's usually people with like- No, no, drug problems of course. Or yeah. Exactly, exactly. Right. Um, Libertarian Sasquatch says, does Donald Trump winning the election contradict your point that was the will of the people not the corporations or elite your <laughs> opposition to him proves that how does trump happen if democracy doesn't exist yeah okay i mean as i said yeah you can you can choose between trump and and biden mm -hmm. but doesn't i or mean as i like to the, say um, between fascism and right, democracy. but i mean in terms of and i know you said that you're not an, uh, a noam chomskyite but doesn't that show that like there isn't this top-down control of of the message? If Donald, if every the top was all against Donald Trump from both the left and the right, at least at first, yeah. and yet he still won the election. Isn't the first Donald election. Trump also pretty rich person? He is. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Who so, uh, right. used the uh, I don't know how much money to manipulate people into voting him and all kinds of psychological tricks to appeal to them and well, I agree with the second part. You know, I don't know if the money like made that much of a difference because you had like Bloomberg, you know, last election he sunk in I think the most amount of money as any candidate and he didn't do anything because his rhetoric and his charisma were bad. So I mean I agree with you that mm -hmm. Donald Trump is very charismatic and he has very good command of sort of like painting images in people's minds when he's kind of right. you know 
talking and he's very good at kind of putting his finger on the pulse to figure out what people want to hear. Um, but again, it just shows that to me, at least it shows that it's not necessarily like a top down messaging that has the power over everyone's minds. Do do you think China is manufacturing uh, consent through TikTok? Um, <laughs> for instance, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's definitely very capable of making people think that they really want uh, him to be president. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Look, it, but is it, this what they really want? It's it's I'm possible. So sure. mm-hmm. It is I believe it is possible to manipulate people. I'm not sure if it's infinitely possible to manipulate them, but so a, a big controversy is over TikTok. Do you think China is using TikTok to manufacture consent to make certain ideas popular in America? No, I don't think so. You don't think so? Do you, do you think that no. would be possible for China to do through TikTok? No, they wouldn't know how to do that. They wouldn't even know what to do. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Libertarian Sasquatch says, what is the average quality of living standards between China and the U.S.? Sorry? What is the average quality of living between the average person in China and the U.S.? That's very difficult to say because, as you know, like uh, in America, the the differences are so stark. I I heard this recently, like in some states in in, China. in uh, the the United States, the the life expectancy is like in some countries in Africa, and I mm-hmm. think China has now for the uh, first time in modern period um, exceeded America in life expect- expectancy or so, which is a big part of life quality, right? And again, like uh, if you um, so of course, like if you belong to the top ten percent in America. Uh, your life quality uh, is very high. But uh, if you belong to uh, the lower kind of 40% in America, it's not that great. Mm-hmm. And in China, uh, the thing is that in the past 20 or 30 years, there has been like like in America, maybe in the 1950s, but it now came to an end, there has been this period of extreme growth. So that now... Um, most people are so much better off than they were before. And most of the children are so much better off than their parents. And in America, that's not the case. In America, lots of the children nowadays uh, are worse off than their parents. And these are all uh, factors that also have a big effect on life quality. You know, where where the country is going, where where you're going. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because I'm but looking... Yeah, I'll say I'm looking up the life expectancy difference, and it's true. Uh, China has slightly overtaken the U.S., though it looks like the U.S. life expectancy took a big uh, drop from COVID. Um, so, yes. I mean, part of the part of the issue, I guess, too, the the weirdness about like China is that you know, from my perspective, I wouldn't necessarily trust you know Chinese China statistics on life expectancy and COVID deaths and things of that nature, as well as I would be a lot more trusting of the United States statistics and European country statistics on that. Yeah. But Chinese people, again, in general, you know, there's very little drug consumption. It's basically mm-hmm. absent. Look at the drug death, the, the epidemics, look at crime. This are, these are big factors you don't have in China. There's no violent crime. There is no, uh, there is no drug. 
uh, and look at the at the number of people who died from this in America. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to see. Um, Maybe we Anton should. Tiger says any insight as to and why look the at people... look at the yeah. look at obesity. Look at obesity in America. Look at the, the quality of um, uh, what is it called? Like the food, what people eat. Lots of mm -hmm. people, right? They eat junk food. Sure. People in China cook. They 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 have a high um, uh, you know they 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 value cooking very high. Okay, I mean that's good. It's a different lifestyle. <laughs> right. Sure. We have about uh, five minutes. Okay. Said, so. well, this is a very important question. Wonton Tiger asks, any insight as to why the Chinese people seem to love the dumbest bear in the animal kingdom, the panda, because they're adorable, obviously. How, who doesn't like pandas? Have you seen them? They're so cute. Come on. Yeah. That's an easy question. Nice. Right. Yeah. Okay. What do you want to say? Is anything else you want to say, Adam? No, this was a great conversation. I just, it's all, it's all over the place from things yeah. that, I mean, I completely disagree with the things that I 100% agree with. So, mm -hmm. but it's always, it's always fun to talk to you and, uh, you know, I hope you'll come back and talk to us again. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading your next book. Great. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be with you and to see your cat. <laughs> you haven't introduced, you haven't introduced the cat yet. This is, this is Wormy. He's, he's part of the profile. Look at that. <laughs> Adorable. so hopefully one day yes. you'll be able to get a, you'll settle down and you'll be able to get your own pet there you go okay okay yes <laughs> maybe i will maybe I will. <laughs> all right i used to have dogs when i was younger okay uh so take care thanks, thanks a lot for having me yeah. yes thanks for coming on okay bye 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 okay let me read some other super chats before uh what if all his come on comes on. Uh thank you so much, Mr. Ubercross, for the 20 gifted memberships. Thank you so much. Uh Brick Nose for 20 for a hundred dollars. Thank you so much, Brick Nose. That's very generous of you. It says, uh, this is a drop next to the two thousand dollars in vet fees. My yellow tabby cat Daisy passed yesterday. I saw she looked sick on Sunday and scheduled the vet next day, thinking simple illness. 24 hours later, put down after ruptured tumor in the spleen. I'll be A-team for life if Adam plays Daisy out. What does that mean? Um, I don't know it, but look, I'm, I'm... I mean, we'll play Daisy out. Do you, you want him to play a harmonica solo for Daisy? Oh. Is that what you're suggesting? I think I have to turn my thing off first. Go ahead, read another super chat. Okay, well, we can do it at the end too. But I mean, I'm sorry to hear that, Brick Nose. That is, you know. That's, yeah, that, yeah. That's let's give a send. Let's give a send off at the end of the show. Yeah, that's, not that's very good. unfortunate. So, I'm very sorry to hear that, Brick Nose. Yeah, look, uh, I'm. I mean, Wormy's getting up there too, so mm -hmm. I'm. I, I know it's going to be hitting me. Right. Yeah, it's probably within the next couple of years. So, and you guys mm -hmm. will all be. Yeah, we'll be here my... when it happens. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I do, obviously. Yeah, that's that's tough. They become members of the family. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, 
Jonathan Smith for $20 says organ harvesting from political dissonance or women having forced abortions performing them is in a police state. You're conflating police enforcing laws with police that enforce the will of the state, civic versus party rule. Yeah, it's, it's always weird if you're talking to someone who is Chinese or goes to China a lot, because then I feel like it's like, you know, can, I mean, can they say, can they even say if they like, you know, like, oh yeah, sure. The Chinese government is doing Orban Hargis thing. Can they even like say that? Can they have a conversation about that publicly? I would assume not. Right. Even if they believe it's true, whether they believe, I'm not saying that he believes it's true and is cowed. I'm just saying if he, even if he did believe it was true, I don't think he, I mean, would he feel comfortable saying it publicly? Yeah. So it's kind of like the difficulty of talking about that. I never know. It's serpent, serpent, za, mm -hmm. serpent, za, is his channel, right? Yes. And I never know how to pronounce that. Serpent, za, serpent, za. But he, yeah, he's a guy that lived in China. They do the China show where they look at stuff, stories from China. Mm -hmm. But I mean, they're they're definitely in the China is falling apart camp. I like watching their show because it makes me feel America great. Right? Yeah, there you go. Obviously we have our biases here. Yeah, yeah sure. exactly. So, um, but I just, yeah, I don't, I've never been to China. They did a, he did a video recently where he was going around looking, filming homeless people and mm -hmm. the Chinese authorities were on top of him for filming homeless people. Sure. Because sure. they're like, these homeless people don't exist. Well, that's his narrative. His narrative right, is that right. they're getting angry because it, the homeless people make them look bad. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we've seen plenty of that in our situation in America, right? Of what? You're allowed, well, to, look, you're allowed to film homeless people in America and complain about them all day. <laughs> no, but people do downplay the extent of, of, homelessness our politicians always down yeah politicians do but yeah. like people i mean that's like a huge talking point and will be a huge talking point maybe in the coming election if gavin newsom ends up subbing out for biden will be the homeless problem in california true uh jmac our surrogate father thank you daddy jmac for the 20 dollars says in china um can can i take a bunch can can i up a bunch if Zinny the Pooh posters, oh, maybe can I make a bunch? Can I make a bunch of Zinny the Pooh posters decrying his policies and the state atrocities against the Uyghurs? If no, then I'll stick with the good old U.S. of A. True. True, true, true. I tr tried to make a thumbnail when we were covering Hassan of uh, G President Xi as Winnie the Pooh in mm -hmm. mid-journey. And it wouldn't let me do it. it really? Like, you can't use those. Yeah. You can't use those keywords. That's hilarious. Yeah. And I was You should try to be like president of China, yellow bear, honey. I'm like, just trying to get around to it. Right. You know? I bet you could. I make enforce it. People have done this to get around certain copyrighted images with AI. Like they'll want to make a, a picture of the Hulk flying like superman mm -hmm. and the ai is like those are copyrighted or those are trademark characters really i can't do that what? so they ask the ai they say 
what keywords would I have to use to make yeah. a picture <laughs> of the Hulk flying like Superman? Yeah. And the AI gives like him. a full description, you know, yes. a red cape and a S on the chest and like With a giant, so the, you know, big buff green man, you know, like, yeah, exactly. Yes. And it. then they put those keywords in and guess what? Yes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> they get the perfect image. Yep. Hi. It's hilarious. Hey. Oh, what's, what's up? up? How you doing? Good. How are you? Pretty good. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Um, I've been watching a lot of your guys' recent content on the Harvard scandal. I just mm -hmm. watched your video that came out today uh, where they go through uh, Brianna's, um, the, the <laughs> anchor Brianna and her massively coping yeah. about President Gay, which well, a funny name. President <laughs> Gay's uh, basically massive, um, not copyright, uh, plagiarism. And mm -hmm. she said that why doesn't this relate to this case that happened 20 years ago? And you know that you're in the wrong when you're stretching that hard. Sure, sure. Did you see that they said they weren't going to fire her or discipline her in any way? The president. Yes. President yeah. Gay? Yep. Yes, they're trying to get her fired, but... <laughs> Harvard came out and they I said they support her. Yeah, I should be surprised, but at this point, I have no expectations for the left whatsoever <laughs> when it relates to disciplining their own people. I thought I knew that would happen. Yeah. Um, or I don't, it, would be too, it would be too far to say that I knew it would happen. I'm not surprised at all. Right. Uh, right. But it's um, it's just remarkable to see how these things where growing up. And I'm a pretty young guy. This wasn't long ago. Uh, growing up, these were institutions of respect. Harvard, CNN, the State Department, the BBC. Um, and now they're complete jokes. And you assume a degree of honesty and truthfulness out of them that's absurd. That's something you'd expect out of a Soviet country. And it's mm -hmm. funny where whenever a Netflix documentary comes out, my first assumption is this is going to be complete bullshit. And I trust some rando on YouTube, like for Cleopatra, if Metatron made a video on Cleopatra, I would assume a hundred percent higher accuracy than Netflix. Mm -hmm. It is wild that there's been this complete breakdown of quote, like the elites or like institutions, yeah. even of Netflix. And yeah, I mean, you're so right. I would go to YouTube and trust a random guy in his room far more than I would a Netflix, you know, million dollar fucking produced series. It's funny that growing up, um, I thought the libertarians were, because I was a centrist, I was like a centrist liberal when I was a teenager, mm -hmm. and I would listen to the libertarians say every single institution that the government runs or that doesn't have free market accountability will be corrupted, and I thought they're overstating their case, that can't be true, and look and behold... That has been the case. Every single, including institutions that do have free market. I was going to uh, say Netflix. I mean, yeah, like, free market. Like, yeah. It, it, it's, I find it shocking where these companies, they'll work. I mean, I had a tweet about this yesterday, but they'll pay their employees minimum wage. They'll do mm -hmm. all, they'll cut all these corners to make more money. But then they'll go on this giant diversity binge where you think to yourself, most people in Western countries don't support this. Western countries are less than 10% of the world's population. I know this isn't selling in China or the Middle East. So 
you know you're not going to make money off this. And these people have budgets of millions of dollars with people who have spent far more time in these fields than I have. And they could have given me five bucks for me to tell them that this would be a bad marketing move. It's so, it is bizarre. Did you see the IBM leak video where the president of IBM was basically saying like, no, I haven't. fuck, he, he like, it's like, uh, he basically said like, fuck affirmative action, like uh, Supreme Court policy. Like we need to just, he was going to penalize yeah. people for not hiring, you know, more diverse people. And he was telling them not to hire white people. And it's just like, and, and you're exactly right. Cause you're like, why, like, why are they doing this? This can't be, they can't be making money off doing this. I have two ideas. Um, one of them is that when you read enough history, you just see mass delusions. And there are things that <laughs> time to yeah. time yeah. where um, the South Sea Bubble is an example, where in the 18th century, they had this idea that the British Empire would start trading with Spain, where the way the Spanish Empire worked was you couldn't trade with it unless you were the statement, the state-run company. And then so there's this idea that Britain would start trading with uh, Latin America. And there was no evidence for this theory. People wanted to be true. And those are the, the budget for the South Sea Company became some ludicrous part of the English economy, like over 10%. And then they realized it was all, there was no evidence for it at all. And mm -hmm. they had never, and then the entire company fell apart. And it was just people got wrapped up in each other's emotions. Or like back in the Middle Ages, entire towns would break into dancing. And so I think it's partly a mass delusion where you just hit critical mass where every single other company is doing it and they mm -hmm. removed all the people who would have told them no. I think the second thing is just ESG scores. Uh, and I don't know right. if you guys or your audience knows about that. Um, but with We're the kind ESG of skeptical of ESG, to be honest with you. I just, I want to, yeah, well, we can talk about it. I just want to yeah. bring up on the, why we accept content creators over like, yeah, institutions is this because it's like we think of content creators as like friends and family and just it's a perception thing i think it just oh. is more accurate like <laughs> i'm not sure it is I, I just i think it's like you accept it because you know like your friend tells you oh you should go to this place they have you know they get have yeah. good deals on whatever. what i can say is that as my level of judging if things are accurate is there's a handful of fields where I've read enough where I can know if someone's telling the truth or distorting things. And so a big falling out I had with the mainstream media was they would cover topics that I had studied well, and I knew that they were lying about it. And that right. like, John Oliver was my favorite show in middle school. And John Oliver covered three topics that I knew he was lying, so I couldn't keep watching it because I thought if this one thing's not true, everything else might not be. And... um what I find, because I, I do know history. But, I do but know there are prolific liars on social media that have huge audiences that believe everything they say. Yeah, that's true. Where there's, there, it's, it's really, a, it's, really um, it's a combination where there are channels that are truthful, where I definitely trust them over Netflix. Yes. History, I don't know if I'd do that with Vosh. I feel like Vosh, I'd be like, okay, well. I guess I'm is... biased because in history, there aren't that many channels that are like that. In history and anthropology is what I do. And so in those fields, you end up in them not because you wanted to make money. It's because you had a passion for it. Right. For politics, it is just mass lying. Like Hassan. Shit right. up. Um, and it's similar to the mainstream media. For academic content, it's different, though, where no one goes into YouTube to falsify academic content. So if I see a documentary on Cleopatra, I'm going to assume that it's someone who's actually obsessed with that topic. And on Netflix, I assume they're doing it as a cash grab.
Right. Well, so what's your take on ESG? Um, with it, I think, um, I mean, it's definitely a thing. It's, I mean, we have like a lot of factual evidence for it. And oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's a thing. I just, I question, it seems more like greenwashing to me than some nefarious plot to make it, all these companies woke. I mean, I think it's a combination and I think it's the ruling class is scared. And so they want to do this exactly greenwashing so that yeah. the public trust them more. And I think Larry Fink thought if we can wokeify these brands, we'll get more investment. And so I agree with you. I, I don't, it would surprise me tremendously if Larry Fink cares deeply about the struggles of queer people in BIPOC. I would be <laughs> deeply surprised by that. Um, but I think he basically has a self-interest in pushing this because it looks good. And um, what we've done is the last couple of years have been the most government printing ever in history. And what happens with the government prints money is most goes into the stock market indirectly. Um, and so you have all this capital flowing around and that gives the people with capital inordinate amounts of money. And so I think inordinate amounts of power. And so with firms like BlackRock and their very powerful financial firms, by creating, by controlling the metrics that they control investments for, it can have incredible effects on the economy because um, the power of capital is so strong versus the rest of the economy. And this will take a second for me to explain, but there's a socialist author I respect a lot called Thomas Piketty, and he compares when actual labor and production is worth capital in the economy. And we have so much cheap money flowing around that the whims of the people with capital actually dictate what the economy is. And so we've printed so much cheap money that people like Larry Fink have the ability to call shots because the strength of the of getting the investors to buy into your product is more important than actually selling the product. That's my guess. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, yeah, I, I generally agree with that. Though I do think that the CEOs, like like Larry Fink, I do think they care to an extent. I think a lot of the boomers who are kind of now running the things, yeah, they grew up in the '60s and '70s. You know, they've been kind of you know, especially in America, we've been kind of like, you know, inculcated with this idea of the greedy, you know, evil right-wing CEO. And I think they're yeah. all kind of like hyper-cognizant of that. It's all yeah. like exists there in their mind. And then that kind of gets combined with, I, I think it's kind of similar to Putin invading Ukraine, where a lot of people from the West were like, oh, that would be a terrible, that's like, that's such a bad idea that Putin's not going to do it. And then he does it and it's like, oh, well, you know, we're not taking into account necessarily the fact that he's surrounded with a bunch of people that are all, you know, corrupt or have their own incentives. Yeah. It's not necessarily the incentive to paint the picture of reality to Putin. And when you look at like IBM and all these other CEOs, you know, they're surrounded by people whose jobs it is to do this DI garbage. And it's there. So like they're incentivized to basically paint a false picture of reality for these CEOs to tell them like, oh, all this stuff is great. It's just evil racist pushing back against this and kind of create a cocoon of like fake, like a fake yeah. worldview to basically surround the CEOs to get them to do all this dumb shit. I think that's that's a great way of putting it. And I'm, I'm going to say the quiet bit out loud where if you look at a disproportionate amount of their billionaires, they are Jews who grew up within 20 years of the Holocaust and on a purely self-interest basis, if you are in that demographic, you have a pretty good reason to hate the nationalist right and to be paranoid about it. Because the thing with the Holocaust, and this is true with our current wave of anti-Semitism, is that the society had portrayed itself for decades in, beforehand as 
having moved past hatred and anti-Semitism. Right. And um, then what happened is just immediate reversion back to so the most brutal anti-Semitism ever. And mm -hmm. so understand if you're a guy like George Soros or Larry Fink, where um where you grew up with that in the background, you would dislike the nationalist right. And also the people who who benefit disproportionately from globalism are that social class. And I say the the reason for our society cares about multiculturalism so much is that multiculturalism makes a globalized economy cheaper and a globalized power structure cheaper because by depressing the cultural differences between groups, it means that this T-shirt, which was this T-shirt is probably made in six countries or 10 countries. It makes this cheaper to manufacture. And that ends up indirectly benefiting the people who run those companies the most, rather than if that factory was in Ohio, it would benefit the guy working there. Right. So they construct a worldview where they're still moral for doing this immoral yeah. action, essentially. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think what you're saying, you know, I'm sure that's true that, you know, especially I know, you know, my uh, parents and my grandparents were like a lot, especially my grandparents were like a lot more like hyper cognizant of a sort of a Holocaust fear, which yeah. I, you know, as a younger person never really had experience with that, even though I was like, you know, oh, taught about the Holocaust and all that stuff. Um, so I definitely agree that that would that would definitely play on, you know, uh, rich Jewish people's minds. But I also think even like on, you know, rich people that are not Jewish or just America yeah. overall is because in, even though like in America, we kind of had the Cold War going on for years and years and years, we never really experienced directly in our country a like fear of a violent leftist government yeah. violent leftist revolution we're obviously so like imbued in our history is slavery and segregation which is all perceived of as like right-wing you know far right-wing racism and so i think that makes people in american culture a lot more sensitive to the threat of those things from the right and just completely blind to the threat of that from the left yeah that's i think that's a very good point and one of the things I'll say is that the process of becoming an adult is realizing you don't get everything you want and you're responsible for the people around you. Mm -hmm. And when you're a teenager, you rail against the world and you <laughs> want to be able to basically change it, but right. you don't have responsibility. And once right. you become an adult and to take care of your family and maybe run your own small business, you realize life sucks, but I have to deal with it. And you have to make compromises. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Hopefully you don't go too far and become jaded, which is a problem with a lot of people when you maintain at least enough of that youthful innocence to not become completely cynical. But you look at the baby boomers, they never went through that aging process. For boomers, they're permanently stuck in that period of teen rebellion. And the video mm -hmm. I just finished, um, I'll give spoiler alert from, I'll give spoilers for my people who watch the show, but mm -hmm. the video releasing soon is Will Israel Spark a World War? And the video that I just uh, sent over to the, the guy who had stock footage is um, why did the public school system fail or why did the American education system fail? And one of the points I make is that no one in our society is trained to take responsibility for the management of the society where um, the baby boomers, no one ever sat them down and said, you can't be the counterculture forever. If you seize power, you have to take the responsibilities that come with power. And so the boomers are LARPing as like counterculture hippie rockers when they run the world and what it's doing is it's tearing the society apart. That's interesting because I, I think what I think what you're saying is true in terms of 
there was, there is always this idea of the boomers, like we need to always be hip. We need to always be the counterculture. Yeah. But at the same token, there was they there was a massive sellout period. You know, like the eighties was kind of like the boomers selling out to to neoliberalism, wasn't it? Yeah. The thing is, that the boomers did sell out, and the boomers justified it every step of their life mm-hmm. with what they they were doing was cool. So in the sixties, <laughs> when they were doing drugs and like. uh promiscuous sex and that was cool but that then was, wall street was cool rebels. Yeah, yeah. when it was the 80s it was american psycho when they were selling right. it was like it was chic in the 90s the 2000 in the 90s and the 10s um suburban ennui was cool like that was what fight club in america uh, that's a bad example and then now the establishment is cool interesting i think yeah that's an interesting i think you could be right it's a very interesting idea this like yeah. boomer hanging and so out the coolness. boomers construct yeah. whatever self-serving their life as being cool and being the chic thing to do and so when they sold out like that was the reagan era where greed was good and so they've never been honest with themselves where because if i was a boomer i'd be like okay it's the 60s i'm gonna have a lot of sex i'm gonna do drugs i do it because it's fun not because it's moral in the 80s right. i'm gonna sell out and make money not because it's good because i want money and the boomers yeah. don't have that degree of self-awareness that's you know i've never thought about that because it's a very interesting idea because i'm thinking like the obsession with always being cool and hip that's on the boomers mind where the generation you know the silent generation the great generation before it like that definitely did not seem to be playing on their consciousness at all it was much more like we need to be responsible we need to do something that is what they thought of as right as opposed to what is cool yeah um, one of my favorite anthropology books ever is The Lonely Crowd by David Reisman, and it was written in 1949, but it very accurately explains how our culture works even today, where it's the What's same, it The Lonely Crowd by David Reisman, mm-hmm. and the thesis of the book is that American society is a lonely crowd where everyone's looking to each other for approval, but no one actually feels fulfilled, and so that's why it's called The Lonely Crowd. And um, the book is about how American society has turned into a desire for approval and to be cool in the eyes of your um, your peers. And so we go through every facet of American life, whether school, child rearing, um, workplaces, etc. And he wrote this in 1949, but he predicted the culture war where he said the older America was the Christian America. And in my system of I have seven emotions that determine society. Um Traditional Christian societies are guilt-driven, where you try to do what's right with God and objectively true, and if not, you're a sinner. And our society is anxiety-driven, where you try to do, you try to get the group's approval, either by having the right politics, wearing the right sneakers, etc. And he said that this would create a culture war between rural guilt-based America and urban anxiety-based America. And um, and I, the book I think is just wonderful. And the thing that he says that's incredibly interesting is that, or the thing that make clicks for me is if you look at our society, it's all about doing things that make you look good. Mm-hmm. And there's no point where in our society you think this is an unpleasant truth that we have to swallow. And so we're just stuck in delusion and we're stuck in silliness. It's, it's funny because we were just talking to uh, someone named Dr. Hans Moller. And you know, yeah. he, wrote a, he wrote a book about uh, this idea of profilicity and authenticity where, you know, he was kind of talking about how the, you know, the boomers were kind of obsessed with this idea of like finding the authentic self. And yeah. now everything is about like your your profile, your social profile. 
And it's kind of exactly sounds like what you're alluding to here. He's the guy that wrote that book I sent you, Rod. You're the you and your profile book. You looked at the summary of it. You said it looked interesting. So. Yeah. Yeah, Adam um, sent me that. I'm, mm -hmm. Oh, please. Well, I was going to say, so I don't know if you want to tell us or if it's a spoiler, but uh, will Israel yeah, spark tell a us. world war? <laughs> <laughs> we want to know. Come on. What should I do? Should I uh, buy gold, beef jerky? How bad is it going to be? Do I need to stock up on alcohol? Do I need to build a bomb shelter? Yeah. <laughs> you got your sword? It's a, it's a Russian cavalry saber. I keep nice. it in case. Just I, nice. I sword collecting as a hobby, by the way. It's a lot of fun. Um, I mean, probably not. I mean, I don't think it'll cause a world war because mm -hmm. I don't think anyone really has the incentive or is desperate enough to pull the trigger. Right. Okay, that's good to know. There we go. I'm Listen, not guys. here to lie to you guys. If, if I was full hype channel, I'd just go in. Within 15 hours, the world war could start. <laughs> you guys need to buy my specially my special Patriot meal kit in case right. Yeah, break stuff. Right. Well, you have to be yeah. careful because like that could like usually the best thing to do, the best grift is you have to make like the vague down the road predictions. Like this is too close. Like we'll yeah. see in a month or two whether this starts a world war or not. <laughs> I, I try to not, I try to be honest with my audience. I try to not treat them with contempt. That's good. <laughs> the thing is like, I, I hope to be stuck with this gig for a long time. Right. And you want to have a good relationship with your audience because whatever you put out, your audience will reflect back into you. And all of this short-sighted stuff eventually, because I watch for my hobby, I watch the lives of content creators and all the ones who do these short-sighted tactics, it gradually catches up with them. Oh yeah. I totally agree. Anyone you want to name, or is that too? Uh, oh yeah, I can totally name them. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's most in the drama community and uh -huh. in like the hype community. Um, I mean, did you guys watch the documentary Boogie Two Nine Nine Eight? Yes. No. Oh, I'm of course. I think that was one of the best documentaries of the last couple of years. Honestly, like no joke. I think that was so perfectly filmed and shot mm -hmm. and stuff and written. But Boogie. You can tell that he gets off on hating himself, but he stopped making the content, so he lost his fan base. Yes, definitely. And he did, I mean, he did dive into the e-begging thing, which I just think is... He's all like James Cage White. Do you guys know who that is? Who? James Cage White. That's his real name? Or? No, no. James Cage White is a Twitter influencer, and he is considered the most pathetic man. Uh, the YouTube channel Ghost Gum's got a good video on him. Uh, James Cage White. He's um, this he, he e bags. Is that the connection? Yeah, he, his whole thing is he e bags, and he's this unemployed loser. He <laughs> was like a virgin at <laughs> age thirty five. He um, so that's his profile e begging, e begging for. Uh, yeah, it's his entire job. And so he'll go in these very intimate details of life where he'll, he'll talk about like when he masturbates, like he'll say like just masturbated. And he's an addiction to buying Steam games where he'll buy four Steam games a week, every week and not play them. And so oh, he's just this complete loser. His right. entire Twitter is him e-begging. He'll randomly, like, please give me $5, I'm broke. And you can tell it's not going to his wife and kids or to anything positive. Oh my God, his wife and kids, that's terrible. He did. His parents arranged a marriage for him and uh, bought what? a wife for $10,000. And then she left him because he was too much of a loser. Oh my God. Yeah. So why do you, what is the attraction here? I would think people like this guy because he makes them feel like they're not losers. Right. Basically, like it, it's fun. It's I mean, one of I love um. Do you know the room by Tommy Wiseau? 
Sure. Yes, of course. I was. I really loved that in high school. I went to five midnight showings, and I even met Tommy Wiseau. Like I was wow. And it was funny to watch because it made you realize how difficult it is to do actual stuff. Because we take movies for granted, but it's actually really hard to make a movie. And with James oh, White, you realize it's hard to be a normal person. <laughs> um, and it, the, the line, the barrier to entry is so high because so many people don't really have a job. They don't get into a relationship. They can't do basic life tasks. And it gives you a little bit more pride that you've, you've gotten this far in your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's awesome. I don't think his life is not awesome. <laughs> well, it's it's awesome that this kind of life can exist in in our current social environment. Yeah, you, you never would have saw something like this before the internet. I think. Like, well, look, I'm pre- fascinated by the diversity of life. Such I, I look at these things. <laughs> you and want I just, to look at all these people in a pre-industrial society. This guy would exist. And he'd be the town fool who people would give gruel to, so he'd keep going, and people right. would keep him around. Because right, but now he's the town fool in like a thousand cities, and it actually works. Like the economics of it makes sense. It's hilarious. And outside my high school, there was a homeless guy named Kevin, and Kevin was super cool, and he'd just sit outside, and the local restaurants would give him food. So he had three meals a day because he was so universally loved. And I would, I, I was friends with Kevin. I talked to him all the time. Kevin liked to talk about religion and philosophy, and like he would just sit there talking to random people. He was kind of a modern day uh, Diogenes, although mm-hmm. no one here is like brilliant. Hmm. So I looked up your Thomas Piketty guy. I was trying to see if he was a yeah. subscriber to modern monetary theory. So yeah, he's I, I, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, he views everything. It's funny. There's like a shoe. There's like a horse. This guy's a total. Look, this guy. He's he writes books about income inequality. You don't think he subscribes to modern monetary theory? Come on now. Oh, look, he he left the call. He's he's running now. <laughs> plug plug your mo- plug your modem in or what something. What do you randomly plug? Oh. I know. Oh fuck! Uh, is my Wi-Fi out? Just- Oh, so the yeah. thing is, my office. I normally do. I normally do this call out of my office, but the Wi-Fi is on the other side of my house. So, mm. if you another issue, I'll be in the room. Grab a cord, or uh, they like they have those little extender things you could plug in. Those anyway, are... this isn't 1983. You're in luck, What's Thomas. <laughs> Thomas Piketty has not made a a uh, a statement on modern monetary theory. He so did write safe. a book, though called time for socialism yes yeah well he did say he was a socialist so as i said there's horseshoe like i am libertarian conservative and there are things where i can read socialist or leftist anarchist authors and agree with them um where it like circles back around and there's a decent amount of socialist and leftist anarchist authors that have actually done a lot to build my worldview really right I guess they're very skeptical of a lot of elite uh, power as yeah. well. So there's a lot of overlap there. I haven't read anything. I've gotten a lot of into like. Okay, I'm gonna go to my. I'm gonna go to my. All right, let's read a super chat. Okay. 
Okay. Uh, JMac for twenty dollars. Thanks so much for sharing a follow for JMac. Says my grandpa used to go to China all the time for business trips. He said it was wonderful to visit when doing business, but he'd rather move back to California than have to live there. Everyone would love to move to California. What are you talking about? Go. We're just getting some bad press. We've got some True. bad optics. A bunch of homeless people light a freeway on fire, and all of a sudden, LA gets has a bad rap. I know. Uh, you got it fixed pretty quickly. True. Fate of Morality for $20. Thanks so much. As my last name is Moeller. Nothing to contribute. I just thought that was neat. Well, that is neat. Go. Okay. Great. Uh, Spencer Harmon for $20. Thank you. Says, why are we talking about politics with someone who admittedly doesn't know much about politics? Well, I mean, we it's a political channel. I don't know. We did talk about other stuff, we too. We did, yeah. We did. Look, I kept trying to change the subject, but it kept coming back he, he yeah. kept wanting to talk about that kind of right. stuff so right. and i look i checked my internet connection and my speed is zip 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 so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. rudyard has already admissed, admit, admitted that he's on wife <laughs> well most people are probably on wi-fi i mean it's the 21st century right right but uh you gotta get but the you're, you're plugged in what are you talking i about? am but i could yeah. buy they have the little things you can plug in that like boost the signal both uh, receiving and, and producing, so, and sending. Chad Power says, Adam brings up MMT and the internet breaks. Coincidence? Uh-oh. It's a conspiracy, obviously, yeah. It's not uh, J-Mac, our sur- surrogate father, thanks so much for $20. Says, now that the guest is gone, I can derail Sitch. Sitch, have you seen the next chapter? Oh, wait. Oh, I'll talk about that later. Hi. Back. You can derail the conversation for... Oh, look, he moved. <laughs> I know. You're back. Nice. What's up? What's up? Final Fantasy Seven fan, Rudyard. Uh, sorry. Have you played Final Fantasy Seven? No. Oh, okay. Never mind. Like, wait, um, what is the shirt you're wearing? It's like, MSNPC. Oh, okay. Why are you wearing MSNPC? Oh, I, NPC. Uh, ordered, oh, I, okay, I ordered a bunch of NPC shirts when I made the video on NPCs. Nice. That's a good shirt. Okay. Thank you. I've also got. I support the current thing too. Wow. Nice. Okay. I mean, I do support the current thing. Roger, do you believe in the apocalypse? Not really. You don't um, think, do you don't think the world will ever come to an end? No. I mean, it's been going for 7 billion years already or 14 billion years already at least. Well, the sun's going to burn out sooner or later, so come on now. I mean, in f- another 4 billion years. <laughs> okay. So we I have mean, 4, the thing is, we have I'm four billion years. Okay. Because I've read enough history and every era thinks the world's about to end and it never does. And bad things happen like the Black Death where half the population of Eurasia dies or the fall of Rome. And then, I mean, the thing about life is bad things happen and you just keep on living. And Mm -hmm. I mean, the irony is if we got into a world war, we would still have to go to jobs. We'd still have to wake up in the morning and brush our teeth and... I don't think the world's going to end because people have always said it will, and it never has so far. Is there going to be a civilizational collapse? I mean, yeah, all civilizations fall. The question is, when does it happen? Because for me, I look to the past, and if something's happened in history repeatedly before, I'll say it'll happen again. And if it hasn't happened before, I say it won't, because the only thing that we can really judge the future off is the past. Because the past is the only thing that exists. So if you're not judging the future off the past, you're basically making stuff up. So if civilizational collapse is a zero 
and Utopia is a 10. Where are we at right now? Uh, three, three or four. We're three or a four. We're that far away from Utopia. Wow, look how look how depressed is, Adam sounds. This is great he news. Lives in a utopia. The the mid the mid to late twentieth century was a utopia. We're at least at a seven. Come on, let's be optimistic. Other era of history. The mid to late twentieth century was a utopia. We had no major diseases. People could grow fat. Uh, we had no major wars. Um, we had mass literacy. The water was whoa 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 drink. whoa. You're saying like. Some other time in the past was higher than a three. So let me finish the point. Okay, in go ahead. Mid to late 20th century, we had okay. what in previous eras would have been a material utopia. And the thing is, we threw it away and got bored with it. We got utopia and then we were bored of it. And then we destroyed the society. And so it's, I think the, the lesson from that is that humans don't deserve utopia because the thing is, when we did make it, we got bored of it and then stopped caring about like any of the values to maintain it. Hold, hold on. What? So this was like 1950. We had even 1990 in 1990. We had all of the things I just mentioned. Okay. So in, in 1990, we were at a, a what? Like a, a seven, we were a, like an eight. We were at an eight <laughs> out of 10 in 1990. Wow. That's pretty good. 90s okay. was based so I for, agree with for that. the second half of the 20th century we were like an eight out of ten wow awesome so it was so, so good we thought it was the end of history we thought that this is so good it can't get any better um and so we thought this was just like because francis fukuyama said that unironically that's something you'll believed like lib liberal capitalism solved all problems nothing else to worry about the world will never change past 2005 yeah, but mo most people accept that he was wrong. Well, they no, I'm though. Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. He's he came up with a concept that we had already made it to kind of the liberal democracy utopia. The world was going to be yeah more individual freedom, more more stuff, more economic success. Yeah, so we went from an eight to a three that's like we yeah. lost five points we're not doing so good a here. three or a four um in 30 so, years so yeah like, i mean are we gonna are we on the when do we hit zero are we gonna are we gonna turn the ship around that's my question i don't know i i'm stuck between two opinions where what we're seeing now if you study history is pretty normal where you go mm -hmm. through phases of the good times bring the bad times and i mean sure you all know the story of Hard times make strong men, strong men make good times, et cetera. Um, <laughs> and no, this is something you see again and again in history. And no, no, I'm just, I'm laughing about the et cetera part. I mean, we all know how it ends. I, yes, I'm totally. Give you guys time. And so, where, where are we at now? Are we at the good, at strong men are making good times? That make strong men that make strong men. Um, okay. So we or, need a hero generation is what you're saying. Yeah. And so the thing I'm stuck at is for the civilizational cycles I normally look at, um, we are the fall of the Roman Republic, which should mean that Western civilization has another 600 years left. Um, and we might even last longer and just keep going for thousands of years because the thing with those cycles is that India and China hit, they went through our phase 2000 years ago before the birth of Christ. And they're still civilizations. It's possible that your civilization can last for thousands upon thousands of years. Um, 
And then the other thing that worries me is mouse utopia, where I think we've spoken about this before, where I'm seeing all these symptoms of mouse utopia, and I don't know how we pull back from that. And this is one thing where we don't have the president from the past. We don't have any degree of change in the past equal to industrialization. However, mm -hmm. um, however, we do have the president from running the mouse utopia experiment over 30 times, and it looks exactly what's happening to us. What just for people who might not know what the mouse utopia experiment sure is? Um, the mouse utopia was an experiment that was run. Um, it was run over 30 times in the 60s. And the way it works is that you put nine mice into a cage that can house 5,000, and there's no diseases and no food problems. The mice breed exponentially until there are over 2,000 mice, and then their social structure breaks down at that point, where, um, what occurs is that the mice stop having children. They stop being able to form social relationships. Female mice become very aggressive. Male mice become very effeminate. And they spend all their time... There's a class of male mice called the beautiful ones that constantly groom themselves but don't breed. You right. have crime and homelessness issues. Um, the mice stop having the ability to function. They become these kind of zombies because they're not raised correctly. And then the birth rate crashes and... The mice lose their adaptive uh, behavior, their social skills, and so the birth rate crashes and the mouse colony fails. How many of the mice have OnlyFans? <laughs> I think about half. I mean, the thing <laughs> is it's difficult. They had to change the phones in the 60s. They changed the iPhones in the 60s so that they could press the buttons more easily for their little paws. Mm -hmm. What? So... Well, so what the well the idea with like the mouse utopia, if I recall correctly, it's been a while, but it was like that because the mice had no external threats or things to deal with combined. Yeah. So they had like all these like infinite resources essentially, but then it's combined with the overcrowding kind of creates this hellish situation where they eventually Basically. end up all dying off. Um, which I agree that, I mean, I think it's happening to an extent um, though. I don't think obviously we would never die off because we, we don't have unlimited resources as things get worse that creates an environmental concern that people do. But I also, but the thing is the mice, even as our society fell apart, their birth rate continued to collapse. But right, I think but, for humans, but they have still the external forces, you know, giving them everything. They're never like forced to go out. There I mean, on their own. I don't think human societies would fail because we're conscious where even right. if we have to do absolutely horrible things, religious fanatics will survive <laughs> right. will realize there will always be some group of fanatics in the desert who keeps breeding the amish will survive yeah basically right. it'll be the mormons though the utah their birth be rates like... went beyond past replacement um right but i mean some people will survive people will realize what's happening uh there will hopefully be people like me who will share share this to the public as it's going on people will gradually understand what's happening um so i think and the thing is, mouse utopia is just decadence on a bigger scale, where since every major civilization has gone through decadence, and it's mouse utopia on a smaller level. And um, and so we've always made it past decadence and survived. And so mouse utopia could be very unpleasant, but the human race will be fine in the long term, well, at least. It's also weird, too, because it's like a different form of decadence, because right now, you know, so one of the biggest complaints is people can't, you know, get a good job, can't make yeah. enough money, can't buy a house. 
And yet there's still, so what is like the decadence? It's not this quite is like... one of the things that you see that because I've made a video at decadence and each mm -hmm. civilization has gone through a phase of it. For the Muslim world, it was a thousand years ago. For the Greeks and the Romans, it was 2000 years ago. The Chinese and the Indians went through a phase of decadence a thousand years ago and a couple previous ones. And the thing with decadence is it's not that everyone in the society is rich. It's that the elite is completely detached. Where in loads mm -hmm. of phases of decadence, like the Romans, the average person was dirt poor and they had mass slavery, but the rich people were insane. And there was a lot of economic struggle even among the rich people. And so decadence is the outcome of a wealthy society. It ah. doesn't actually have to be wealthy in the phase of decadence. And there gotcha. are two forms of decadence. I call it hot and cold decadence. And one follows the other. Hot decadence is... People are fucking and doing drugs and having giant uh, feasts. Cold decadence is after that, when you're numb to it. And keep, that's decadence based off delusion, sadness, uh, lack of hope, nihilism, etc. And both of them are fundamentally split off from what the reality of the human condition is, but in different ways. And an example people don't know is that, and this is something that, uh, my former researcher is one of my best friends. His expertise is medieval Persia. And so he was telling me about this, and I had no idea it before, where the reason the Muslim world is so bad to women is they actually had a feminist phase a thousand years ago where they gave women equal rights to men. And their cities ballooned, and then their population collapsed. They had a moral – they um, – they, they they lost a lot of Islam and they stopped becoming an Islamic society through a period of agnosticism. Their birth rate collapsed, their population fell apart. And then they became the, the religious conservatives were the ones that bred and got the society back together. And so that's why the Muslim world is so religious today, because beforehand they were the most capitalist and scientifically advanced place in the world. But what happened was that the religious fundamentalists took power, and then the Turks came through, and the Turks conquered the Middle East. And the mm -hmm. Turks were barbarians, so they didn't care or respect the previous culture at all. That's interesting. So yeah. all, basically all the non-religious people died out and got bred out. And this is something you see in history. where, For the Romans, as an example, the, um, the Greeks and the Romans were the civilized core of their empires, but most people in the Roman and Roman Empire weren't Greeks or Romans. They were Celts or, or Anatolians or Egyptians. And so the educated city population stopped having kids. So what happened instead was the Christian religious fundamentalists took over the empire. And then the barbarians on the edges, like the Arabs and the Germans, bred more so that the uh, they took over a large part of the empire. So it's a common process where the more civilized populations have less kids. And then religious fanatics and frontier peoples replace them, mm -hmm. or at least gain predominance. In history, have all these um, times of like the civilizational collapses, they all have like a barbarian group kind of come in and conquer them? I mean, it depends where some of them, they pull it back together where the, I mean, the thing is societies can go through multiple phases of decadence. And so for the first Roman decadence, they went through a civil war and then Augustus, was one of the greatest leaders in history. He pulled things back together and had another golden age. I think that's something that could easily happen to us, where we go through our decadence, we pull our stuff back together, and then we have another golden age. And that's what with what the historical civilizational cycle would suggest happens to us. Um, that's good. Where, where are we at on the decadence? Are we almost done? I mean, the thing is that the decadent people are so stupid 
<laughs> I don't know how they can keep going. They have no <laughs> skills. They have no practicality. We're I, like in the roaring 20s right now. That's basically what you're saying. Yeah, but we are in the depressing aftermath of the roaring 20s. It's like, it's not like Gatsby anymore. Like young people aren't, people aren't like, oh, I, oh my God, I made so much money in the stock market. Let me get hookers and like start. Gats, Gatsby was the 90s is what you're saying. Yeah, Gatsby is the 90s and we're like mm. the 40s, except this is a really not good metaphor because there's a lot of differences, right. but I think we're depressed decadence. And my worry is that after this, um, we'll see a period of, because the thing with mouse utopia is the population goes crazy. I'm worried the population will go crazy, but I'll also would guess a religious backlash would happen to the nihilism of what we're seeing now. And I would be very surprised if gen alpha isn't very, um, community oriented, um, in maybe even the generation after gen alpha generation beta, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's your generation. generation maybe, maybe generation beta is the alpha generation where they're very <laughs> oriented, very religious, very aggressive. Um, mm -hmm. because the thing is imagine, and I've joked with friends about this, where our kids will be like, daddy, why are you on the computer all the time? Uh, why are you, why don't you have friends? And like, <laughs> I want to hang out with my buddies and like not be online. And I'm like, no son, you have to play world of Warcraft. So you can become a successful streamer. That's what they're trying <laughs> to get me to do. <laughs> we are literally trying to get Adam to play uh hardcore the, vanilla. <laughs> my, um, I, I've got, I've just gotten back. I let myself let go when I moved to Texas, but I just gotten back to, into going to the gym. And yeah. the joke I have is that every single guy who's really jacked is a former World of Warcraft player who, <laughs> like, is that true? It's what I've seen. He's <laughs> turned his life <laughs> around. On a statistical, factual basis, it's wrong. That's but hilarious. all the really jacked guys I know are former yeah. World of Warcraft guys. Um, I mean, that's pretty based. As, a, as just a, a thing, yeah. On all the previous conversations I've come on before, I've done the Doomer. I've talked about Doomer topics. So, do you mind for the next hour if we don't cover Doomer? No, I have, we have to finish the Doomer talk first. Okay, you I can said six. You said six hundred years left. Like, wh what happens in six hundred years? So these cycles are kind of arbitrary, and I don't think they'll. The world is so complicated that anything I say, I want you all to realize that that will probably not be the future because the world right. is so infinitely complicated. Right. Uh, right. But is it is it Mad Max or is it Wally? That's what we. This want is what I'm telling you about. It, there's multiple scenarios. I don't think Wally would happen because that society we are already so stupid and damn it society that we're going to fall apart. Um. Where and, and so like we've reached peak. We have reached peak. Uh bad times, weak men. We have to start getting strong men again. And that could be a lengthy process. It could take different time. Um, but I see two different scenarios where if you look at the civilizational cycle and my my Rome, comparing Rome to America video covered this a lot, where the parallels between Western and Greco-Roman classical civilization are very close. And the era that we're most similar to is the fall of the Roman Republic, where I've talked of this in previous podcasts, um, Superpower Republic takes over the world through two major wars. Um, they unwittingly have a giant empire they didn't really ask for. Um, giant mega corporations own everything. Equality is massive. Religion's gone into decline. Feminism is really big. Um, degeneracy is big. Um, 
the there's two very disparate political parties that have gotten really polarized. Uh, one has been concentrated around the elite and one turned populist. Um, that is since being transcended by cults of personality. Uh, there is a candidate, the Grocchi, the Grocchi brothers, who promised to bring back the old Roman middle classes. Uh, and then the establishment hates them for being populists. Mm -hmm. And um, as Rome has these internal issues, its allies, its neighboring regional enemies are to turn against it. So there are wars of Rome's, Rome's regional enemies turning against it as Rome has these civil wars. And so there's all these very deep parallels between the fall of the Roman Republic and our current society. So we were to follow the, through this parallel, America will go through a period of civil wars in which various charismatic strongmen seize power. Um, they'll gradually kill off the ruling class. The Democrats, um, the Democrats basically get slaughtered, and then the Republican warlords start turning on each other as different <laughs> factions of Republicans kill each other until a socially conservative dictator seizes power. And then America becomes a functioning military dictatorship while pretending to be a democracy. Then there is 200 years of golden age and peace around the world as the Americans grow more decadent than the military. The military becomes its own vehicle of the military goes corrupt and then various military dictators fight each other. And then this is all happening 500 years in the future, by the way. And then 500 years in the future, the American empire falls apart. You're saying this is what it would look like if we followed the if, Roman So, model. So far, we've followed the Roman precedent pretty closely. If we okay. continue to follow it, this is what will happen. Okay. And I'm all skeptical. The reason, but okay. the reason, I mean, I'm also skeptical of these cycles. It's a meme among my friend group. Right. right. What if Altist's fans take his ideas more seriously than I do? Because <laughs> I'll look at maps I'll make where I'm thinking, I'll, I'll see people on my subreddit or friends hyper-analyzing of order, and I'll be like, you guys have no clue how arbitrary my decision was to put that border there. <laughs> it's something where a lot of people don't know this. About that always me. happens. Yeah. It's something, it's funny where, and it, actually that's the case how borders in the third world were actually made. Um, some some white dude arbitrarily put it there, and now mm -hmm. people have to fight over it. Um, but the thing people don't get at my personality is that I am by nature a very, I'm a very- Don't say optimist. I'm a very fluid and uh, like flexible person mentally. Very so if you fluid. prove my idea wrong, I will immediately change my idea and then develop a new worldview based off you proving my idea wrong. I don't really care. Like one of my friends pointed out this detail in your map is wrong. I, I, I said, I don't, you do not understand how little I care. Right. And so the world, my worldview is very flexible and changeable. And that's not something a lot of people realize when they see the videos that they can point out something wrong if it's wrong i don't care i'll immediately change it for whatever right. and so what i say is that i say i'm betting against god and my worldview changes every single year because it does and i'm not ashamed of it i get new information my worldview changes mm -hmm. and that process of change is part of the channel and it's part of my own personal journey um and so um I don't really trust all these historic cycles because the thing is the future is impossible to predict and anything you say will not be what it's actually like. And that's something where I've made predictions. Some are right, some are wrong. And that's part of the game. And um, what I would say on top of that is if you compare the broad strokes of the previous cycles to the current one, 
you find that there are similarities, but it's not in the way you think. Where, for example, if you were to the parallel between Western and Greco-Roman civilization, and for fans who are interested, I have a full 40-minute video about this, is Napoleonist Alexander. But if our history were to perfectly follow what the Greeks and the Romans had, it would be that the world wars occurred, um, that the world wars occurred a in the era of the Napoleonic Wars, that where the closest parallel would be Germany, which is Sparta, beats Britain, which is Athens. So Europe becomes monarchist, which is what happened with the Greeks. And then some country like Sweden or Russia conquers um, the entirety of Europe, which would be the, um, that would be the rise of Macedonia. And then after that, America, a hundred plus years later, conquers Europe. But that's not what it actually looked like. These things can follow each other in rough parallels. But if you try to get too nerdy into the details, it just doesn't work because these mm -hmm. are living processes that are affected by the actual history. And for the Romans, I know I'm taking a while to explain this, but I've got one last point where if you compare the Roman Republic to our current society, one of the biggest differences is that they had two processes, the dehumanization of labor and the rise of women into higher social status. And for us, we have sweatshops in Southeast Asia. We import millions of Mexican immigrants, but nothing is as bad as Roman slavery. In the Roman Republic, a third of the population were slaves where um, where their masters could whip and rape and work them to death with no legal repercussions. And I thought slaves didn't have it so bad. That's what I heard. Um, it depends on whatever era of history you're in. There were eras where the slaves were treated very well, and it also depended on your social class, where, for example, there were slaves that were accountants or slaves that were the, the teachers for the master's son. They were treated very well and educated, but if you were a Syrian or Gallic slave who worked in the fields, right. you were treated like absolute shit. And it also depended on the master too. Um, and so their treatment of their working classes is much worse than us today. And if you look at the Roman Empire, I see this in multiple videos, the biggest thing that killed Rome was slavery because it just destroyed their entire social structure. And I can explain that in further detail if you'd like. And they also, the Romans had their own feminist movement where women gain much higher social status and women gain complete equality with Roman men except for the right to vote. And if you look at us today, it's flipped where the Roman um, dehumanization of labor and cheapening of labor, that process isn't as big, but the rise of feminism is much bigger in our society where the Romans never would have had wokeness and they didn't give women the vote. And so this process is much bigger in ours. And so it's the same rough ingredients but the emphasis that you put upon them is very different. And so the problems the Romans faced um, due to the rise of slavery, we don't have, but also the Romans don't have the issues we have due to um, having more of a feminist movement. Where wokeness, for example, wokeness is statistically and intellectually driven by women. The Romans never would have had wokeness because they didn't give women as many rights. But also at the same time, we don't have the... Um, the, the the giant slave wars where half a million people died and the slaves revel, revolted in the early republic or it slavery really killed the roman social system because you had a small class of slave owners who never had to do anything they had infinite if someone wanted to grab a glass of water they'd ask their slave to do it they had infinite luxury infinite sex 
infinite because the Romans, you were, you were allowed to sleep with any of your sex slaves whenever you wanted in Roman society and your wife couldn't say no. That was an expectation. And so what you had is this class of upper class Romans who were spoiled and became horrible people because they were surrounded by slaves at all times. And then the general average Roman working class was forced onto welfare payments because he couldn't compete with slaves. So there was an interesting video a while ago um, from History Civilis. Yeah. I used to watch a lot of his content and he made the kind of like anti-capitalist video. Yeah. He wasn't really talking about slaves. I guess he was talking more about like medieval peasants. And he was talking about how like, oh, you know, actually the, the ones that worked the field, you know, they actually had like a much better life than we have now. You know, do, We've talked about this but I'm happy to explain this again, where I like talking about this. So the thing is every, this is something I really do not like leftists for. Leftists mm-hmm. categorize systems as good or bad. Well, the reality, bless you, um, the reality is that certain parts, the human condition will have certain issues like poverty, hierarchical oppression, war, et cetera. And certain systems go through good and bad phases. And so what History Civilis is doing is comparing the medieval equivalent of the 1950s to today, where if you com- the high, and this is, we found this on a statistical basis, the mm-hmm. high point of Western standard of livings for our system was 1971. And it's been in straight decline since 1971. And for the Middle Ages, the time period he's looking at where, and I've seen these studies because my area of speciality is the Middle Ages, is that the average medieval serf only worked so many, like many less days a year than our current um, workers. They paid a lot less taxes. And that was true in the period of the Middle Ages where there was a lot of wealth, which was the 13th century and 12th century. In that era, your average peasant lived a pretty good life which was why the population of Europe doubled to tripled because the people could afford to have a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. The equivalent period we're in is the early 1300s. That time period, people were working themselves to death and still starving, where your average medieval peasant would work his farm, but he'd also have a side job as a full-time job. And even everyone was struggling in the early 1300s. And so what we're looking at now with our system of capitalism is he is comparing the best part of the Middle Ages to the worst part of our society. Well, the the fairer comparison would be to compare 1971 to the 1200s, where in 1971, mm-hmm. your average American works one over one mo- more month a year than he did in the 70s. So people would work nine to five and then get one hour lunch breaks. You could drink in the afternoon and um, your wife was a stay at home wife. So you'd come home and all the dishes were done and you would just grab some drinks with your buddies and watch the TV. And so what they're doing is artificially making capitalism look bad by comparing the worst time periods of our society with the best ones of past. Right. So like if you took an overall view and compared them, what do you think it would look like? Um, the average person today definitely has an easier in modern history. The average person has an easier life than the Middle Ages. Um, that's uh, I I I'd be very. That's an easy thing to say. Right. I will I say so. medieval, the medieval social norm was more sustainable. Where the mm-hmm. social order we're talking about lasted for four hundred years and then it fell apart. The social system that we have and the broad amount of cultural technologies we have today are side effects of the world wars where um, almost all the social structures we have came about 
through something called the managerial revolution, which was related to the world's wars, where beforehand, American society was perfect libertarianism. Um, we didn't have income tax. We were based off a gold standard, all that sort of thing. And we didn't have bureaucracy. And so now we have all of these bureaucratic structures that come from the world wars, but they have fallen apart within 70 years. And we it's very apparent to me that we have to completely reorganize our social structures because none of there are no institutions in America except the military, which work properly. And so if you look at the medieval society, it was a harder society to live in, but also it lasted five times as long. So it was much more um, it was much more attuned with human nature and a much more sustainable system. Mm -hmm. What so like because like the golden age, I guess we're talking about like the 50s to the 70s, you know, that was obviously, you know, post World War Two. Yeah. So these managerial systems were in place. Like what like what shifted from that to, to what we have now? Uh this is actually relates to the video I just made about uh the American school system, where in pre-industrial societies, there was a concept that human nature was cruel by design. And it was or not cruel, that's not the right word, self-interested by design. Mm -hmm. And so in pre-industrial societies, everything was built around different social classes in opposition to each other. And that people were expected to push their class's interests, where in medieval Europe, the church, nobility, monarchy, and bourgeoisie were all fighting against each other. And so they balanced each other out. Or in Islam, the warrior class and the priest class were supposed to fight against each other. And so um, there was this expectation that different social structures were naturally self-interested, and in our society, because we believed that human nature was good and perfectible and the blank slate meant that um, human nature could – we could engineer it, we didn't have any protections against that. And so we created all of these social structures and bureaucracies with no protections against them pushing their own self-interest. Mm. And so that happened. And you look at schools, for example. Um, schools teach what is useful for teachers to teach them, not what the society needs. So first of all, teachers are much more left-wing than the general public. So schools teach them left-wing values. It teaches them the skills that are being transmitted in school are not actual life skills. No one remembers French or algebra from high school. What they're teaching is the ability to memorize skills and be quiet because those are the things if you're a teacher, your incentive is to keep students quiet, pass them along to the next year. And because you have to do you have to do this for 30 years and 30 new brackets of kids. And so with teachers, as an example, we create an incentive structure for teachers to not have a duty to the rest of society, but to push their class interests. You look at the government bureaucracy. The government bureaucracy is incented everywhere is to grow, and there's no incentive to push back against it. And so we have all of these social structures that have, no, or Hollywood, we have no countervening force to Hollywood. Um, and so we have all these social structures with no countervening forces or no assumption of um, that in human nature, they'll naturally be corrupted. And from that, our social structure, um, it fell apart very quickly. Because we're at the mm -hmm. point where the people who built the current social structure are still in living memory. And for Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, the, the literal guys who fucking founded it are the guys in charge now, but it still collapsed. Silicon Valley went from founding to decadence in a 10-year period. That's astounding. <laughs> so, yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, we talk about how, 
you know, we think the right wing conception is humans are inherently evil and must be civilized. Yeah. And the left wing conception is that their humans are good and society uh, corrupts them. Like, so how did this idea of the blank slate, yeah. how did that sort of like worm its way into American culture in this time period? You guys are asking a lot of great questions for this podcast. Um, well, thank you. Of That's course. Because we rule. You do. Great podcast. Um, the um, What I'd say is that, first of all, although I am right-leaning, I don't consider myself a... I'm not like other conservatives. Um, where, <laughs> I'm not like other conservatives. <laughs> the thing that I don't like most, most conservative mainstream culture is very normy and very... It doesn't like human culture. Because mm. the thing is, in previous societies, the people who are on the left, you didn't have a right-left divide in pre-industrial societies. Everyone was on the right. But you look at Michelangelo, he was a very artistic, open, creative person who inside that socially conservative society did art and he did a wonderful right. job. And so the the right by not taking in the people who are high trait openness and creative went to the left. The modern right is very um, stolid and it doesn't see a lot of good in the world, which is why right wing art isn't good. You look at the stuff that everything the right puts out is super cringe um, and <laughs> And so it, that just, it got me your point about. You don't like lady ballers? Did, yeah. Did you see lady ballers? <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, like I admire Ben Shapiro's management abilities. <laughs> uh, I, I really do. I admire. All you have to say. That's all you have to say. I, I, I am not going to watch a Daily Wire movie soon. <laughs> anyway. Um, because I don't like things that are. Like I, I think the Daily Wire, they, they've they have done a good job of holding back the hordes of barbarism from further right. Mm. Um, but the yeah, I don't like things that are explicitly counterculture or explicitly conservative. I like I don't want to buy my brand of razors because they're conservative. I want to buy my razors because they're good. Right. Yep. And so that's my conservative culture will always position itself to not be woke, but don't do that. Make something good. And that's something that, and I will give, I, I haven't seen Lady Ballers from the reviews. It's not, it doesn't look like it's a bad movie. So I, I will give Ben and his crew admiration for that. Because it's it's hard to not make a bad movie. Sure. But what if autists, one of the things I struggle very hard with is I don't want to be a right, I want to tell the truth and to explain my vision of the world in my best attempt. Mm -hmm. But I don't want it to be a right-wing thing. Right. I am a person who happens to lean politically right. But at the same time, I um, I don't want people to watch What If Altist because of that. I want, and I think that's something that all creatives believe or or want. But I want people to watch What If Altist because I I am doing a good job independent of politics, not because of politics. But right. to answer your initial question, um, what I would say is that the blank slate kicked in. And I, I bought a really interesting book about this because I've been going on a couple different research rabbit holes. One is that um, a lot of these decisions were made for occult reasons. The people who decided to make the blank slate were people who were deeply steeped in the occult. And that's a whole different story where there are religious reasons for doing it. But the first people you see pushing the blank slate publicly are the French Revolution, where um, – where the French and the American Revolution were both politically classically liberal, but the American Revolution had the closed view and the French Revolution had the open view. We still have the same constitution as 250 years ago. The French Republic fell apart within like four months. And so the French Revolution were the first people. Marx had it afterwards. Well, wait, what is the open-closed dynamic? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, 
I just assumed it's so know. close to the concept that I, we were talking about that I assumed mm-hmm. you guys knew. Uh, this is a term Thomas Sowell made where um, people with the open view think human nature is perfectible. And so they think that you can train people to be perfect. Mm, and okay. They think human nature is full of openings, which is why it's called that. And so, for example, and they think if there are failings in the world, it's due to someone's conscious judgment. So this is from a conflict of visions, right? Yes, That's exactly. Like, yeah. And so if there's two ethnicities and one's richer than the other, it's because one oppressed the other. For the closed vision, they think that human nature is inherently constrained by its own negative flaws built into it, but also by geography, history, culture. So they wouldn't look at those two in, two ethnicities with different incomes as that. What they would see is that um, – is one has better geography, one won a war and had a bigger empire, one um, has more intellectual centers, it's closer to trade routes, uh, it has a culture that prizes education and hard work. So um, that's the open and the closed vision, and it correlates with um, with what I described with the right and the left, with one thinking human nature is perfectible and the other thinking mm-hmm. it isn't. And there are right-wingers with the open view where Nazis, for example, have the open view. I think there are some libertarians that are open view. Um, and is there, I don't think there's anyone on the left with the closed view, but um, the first, you start hearing about in the Enlightenment where I was reading uh, about Frederick the Great and he was a German leader of the 18th century. And he, he was talking about how already by that point, there was the idea that human nature was good and perfectible. And it's one of those things where it was big among intellectuals, but I think if you talk to your average German guy in 1850, he would still be religious, where it'd have a closed view of the world and view humanity as inherently sinful, where with all of these, I'm working on a video of modern civilization right now, and with all these ideas of modern civilization, they were batted around by intellectuals for centuries before they became mainstream ideas. And so for the first place that occurred with the French Revolution, then... Um, communism, and it became mainstream around the time of the world wars, where I think in World War One, the pre-existing establishment fucked things up so much where people were like, literally give us anything else. And so I think the reaction to World War One was when the open vision became the biggest, it became the mainstream view. So how did, yeah, but so, but it's interesting because America had its golden age after that time period. Because- it didn't happen. It's it's a partial thing. And it's one of the lessons, the biggest thing I want to get out of what a fault is, is the world is complicated and multiple opposing things can happen at the same time. Right. So uh, what happened was that the American average person and the government and the mainstream were closed view, which is why we still cared a lot about uh, the checks and balances or religion and that stuff. These social engineers and the bureaucracy were open view. Mm. So, and this is actually the origin of the political divide we have today, where you have a bureaucracy which is open view, where they want to change the world, and then a general previous society which is very different. And so, progressivism in America, which progressivism, as I say it, is nothing to do with uh, what it means today. The progressivism of the Teddy Roosevelt era was which Woodrow Wilson pushed. And people of his sort was we need to standardize education. They were actually very racist and very pro-eugenics. Um, they wanted to improve the moral character of the society and have more government control over the economy. So it was this combination 
it was it's in retrospect it's vaguely nazi actually and i don't say stuff like that lightly where it was this combination of we want social engineering with we want genetic and racial engineering too and so they were the first people and it was mostly social progressivist new england yankees who formed america's education system its bureaucracy its universities so they had the institutions and then over the course of the 20th century they gained more and more social control and became the managerial class. So when we had to wage world wars, those kinds of people were the people who managed the bureaucracies of the new big government. And we had social programs. It was the same kinds of people. And um, they moved from, they flipped their position where they moved from being socially, um, they moved from being genetically conservative to genetically progressive, and they moved from being uh, economically conservative to economic or economically progressive to economically liberal because mm -hmm. that's the politics of the New England Yankees who ran the organization flipped in that time period as well. Um, and, and so our society, and this is the same political divide today between this open view managerial class versus the general population and what's occurred is that they have become openly resentful of the rest of the population. Because if you look at the left's managerial power, their entire thing is they view the population with complete contempt because the population won't immediately go on with their social engineering. Right. Well, also, I wonder, you know, because it's interesting, you were saying in World War One, you know, people, it was like, it was so bad that people were just like, give me anything. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if in World War Two, it's kind of like the opposite, at least in America. Yeah. It's like America um, views itself as like the great winners. So everyone's kind of like bought into the government or the system. And then they get hit with the Vietnam War, which causes all the kids to basically say, well, fuck everything. We can't trust anyone over 30. We can't trust yeah. the government anymore. And they kind of go in the exact opposite direction. That's a really good point you made. Um, and my reaction to it is something I have said and also my right-hand man and manager has said. I say that everyone's a good guy in World War II, World War One, and everyone's a bad guy in World War II. And what that means is that not America. How dare you? In World War One, <laughs> the worst faction were the Russian czars. Mm -hmm. The Russian czars look like they look like the UN Peace Corps compared to the Soviet Union or the Nazis. <laughs> in World War One, there was no or very little just burning entire cities, slaughtering the population, committing genocide. Everyone in World War II, were, World War I were basically nice guys who are forced into this horrifying conflict that they feel guilt about. And the best guys in World War II were the Americans. And we still firebombed. We firebombed the most beautiful cities in the world. We burned Dresden down. We burned all of these amazing cities in northern France down. We fucking nuked Japan. And uh, we interned the Japanese. And so we are the nicest guys in World War II. And we still committed far worse atrocities than almost anyone in world war one. And was that like a philosophical difference or is there just a technological or environmental reason for um, that? I think it's a, it's a philosophic difference because I actually think world war one is a historically much more important war than world war two. And with the mm -hmm. modern civilization video I'm working on, I have the argument because in, in the video I'm creating, I, I make the argument that modern civilization is independent from previous ones because in modern I say modern civilization is a civilization that's based around rejecting the previous culture. If you look at the modern West, our cultural identity is based on rejecting what the West was 100 years ago. You look at Maoist China, their mm -hmm. cultural identity is based on rejecting uh, what their culture was before. Same with Soviet Russia. And um, 
I say the traditional West died in World War I because when you look at what the young men in the Psalm or Ypres died over, they died for their ethnicity that had gone back a thousand years. They died for their God. They died for honor, duty. And the cultural trajectory, you look at architecture for this, that went into World War I was a very similar culture to what the West had in the Middle Ages. All of the foundations for what young men, except for, I mean, they actually had, they had science in the Middle Ages. All of the cultural foundations that young men died for in World War I were the same as what the West had nearly a thousand years before. And so this is a whole process you saw around the world where all of these ancient cultures were destroyed by the Industrial Revolution. It happened through colonialism in um, the developing world or the undeveloped world as it was at the time. And it happens through the world wars in the developed countries. And um, so World War I, you have this blank slate. And World War I was a war explicitly designed to give people horrifying PTSD. Because PTSD is psychologically caused by a sense of helplessness. And in World War I, everyone's stuck in their trenches. You can't fight. There's rotting bodies. There's rats. And so people felt betrayed by their elites because everyone was told that because before World War I, people thought it would be peace and progress forever. And as if they got one of the most horrifying wars ever. So everyone mm -hmm. felt betrayed by this previous culture that was what Europe had for a thousand years beforehand. And then you try to figure out what you're going to replace it with. And so it was a lot of these um, secular religions like liberalism, like Marxism or fascism, where each of them promised a technological utopia through engineering people to be better. And um, what happened with the world wars was that because they were all new, each of these ideologies justified horrifying atrocities to reach their utopia. Because if, you, if your utopia is on the other side of this, Anything is justified to get to utopia. Mm -hmm. And that's how the Nazis viewed the world. That's how the communists viewed the world. And, and so in the world wars, because there was this breakdown in traditional values and senses of moral morality you could be judged against, it was just this collapse into brutality. Hmm. Okay. That makes sense. So I think I asked you this, but I don't remember the answer. Um, so, because you were talking about how, in, you know, yeah. comparing America to the French French Revolution and the American uh, founding fathers, they believed in like the closed system of human nature. Yeah. And they kind of, even though they were, you know, using liberalism, it was a different version of this. Um, so how do you feel when we talk to some people who make the argument that liberalism is doomed to fail because embedded within liberalism is the idea of open blank slate human nature? Um. It makes me sad because I'm a classical liberal um, and I am a liberal. There are two forms of liberalism. There's classical liberalism and progressive liberalism. And I think they're basically different ideologies nested inside the same worldview. But people can jump between them mm -hmm. where even as far back as the French Revolution, I think the things the modern left believes today are pretty similar to the French Revolution, where in the French Revolution, they thought equality between men and women, removal of previous social customs, removal of hierarchy, um, social engineering. And I think what I believe is pretty similar to what the founding fathers had. And, um, and so it's these two separate trends. And you could make an argument where Classical liberalism will naturally degenerate into progressive liberalism. But I also think classical liberalism could degenerate into fascism, uh, which as you saw in Germany. Uh, the Germany before Hitler was 
This is the thing we forget. Every major country in Europe before World War I was some degree of classical liberal. And Germany had a lot of classical liberal institutions, but it degenerated into fascism. And for someone like me, I dislike the open, and this is something the left doesn't understand, where faction inside factions, competition can be as rife as outside of it, where um people on the left might not understand that I have gone after and criticized people further right than me. And I've criticized the blank slate liberals and the blank slate liberals as well. And so I, I think that you can't put liberalism in a single category. And we've expanded the term of liberalism so much as it's borderline useless, where mm -hmm. inside liberalism is everything between Victorian Britain and modern Sweden. And like right. the friggin' like uh, the like legit socialists today, legit socialists or communists call themselves liberal uh, <laughs> because like because if you were a liberal a hundred years ago, you would be okay with incredibly religious laws, monarchy in a lot of cases, um, restricting the voter franchise to rich men, um, imperialism, nationalism. Um, white supremacy, these were all things where if you were a liberal in 1910, it would be completely reasonable for you to support those. Mm -hmm. Isn't, but what's, so what's going on there? Cause I would assume that'd be people basically existing under a system that contradicts the principles of liberalism. Another good question. Um, so what I'd say with the original form of liberalism is that it prioritized freedom at all costs. And so there's a the big thing I see on the right even today called minarchism, where if you have a king with very little authority, he can maintain freedom. And there's also the concept that um, for the most of the original liberals and the founding fathers were this way, they thought the only way you could maintain freedom is by restricting the voter franchise, because the second you give the lower classes or women the vote, um, they'll vote away freedom and create a welfare state that infringes upon people's freedoms. And what mm -hmm. all the original liberals said, because they got this from Aristotle and Greek writers, because we had already done the democracy experiment thousands of years ago. So when people built the American Republic, they were reading about what the Roman and Athenian republics failed at. And so what they said is that the first step that republics fail is welfare payments. Because once you cross that line, and the public realizes that they can vote from one, they'll give money from one part of the population to the other. It creates a, sl a slippery slope of using democracy to um, using democracy to underwrite what the public wants. And then what the ancients and what the founding fathers said was that that eventually resulted in a tyranny because that leads to people just voting whatever is inside their self interest, which breaks down the collective society. And I was reading I was reading some authors from the 1700s and they hated democracy. Democracy was a bad word for most thinkers at the time of the American Revolution because they said it naturally led to mob rule and tyranny. And so the founding fathers were really jumping out on a limb for supporting democracy because it was a, a political bad word. But um and so what, what happened over the course of the 20th century was around World War I, liberal meant exactly as I describe it. It's libertarian or classical liberal. But then the left co-opted the term liberal. And due to alliance structures in America, where FDR said, I'm a liberal, and he gradually moved it over to more socially left wing. And 
So liberal became more and more synonymous with left-winger and the right didn't want to be seen as liberal. The right developed an alliance under in the 60s between Christian fundamentalists and capitalists. Right. And so the right didn't have an incentive to identify as liberal, but the left did, which then resulted in the term liberal being co-opted as just general left-winger. And this is something the left does where the left takes a term, applies it for their own purposes, and then it evolves into its own um, something completely different. And so you have no idea what the term means. Like the left mm-hmm. co-opted fascism from its original meaning to just blanket authoritarian. And this is the reason why our political discourse is so silly today. Do you agree with this concept of the welfare payments? Because we always hear that like, you know, the social democrat democratic countries in Europe, which have stronger welfare programs, like everyone's supposedly happier there. Do you mind if I run to the bathroom? Go, Go back for it. To I have some stuff to say. About. Hell no. Okay. Oh, no. Go ahead. <laughs> I'll just I'll just piss in front of the stream and get you guys demonetized. No, nice. Don't do that. I'll make it OnlyFans. Did you uh, <laughs> did you hear, Adam, about how uh, Vivek Ramaswamy was uh, in a Twitter uh, space uh, with and Elon Musk? And he went to the bathroom and didn't mute himself. <laughs> no way. And everyone could hear the big pissing. That's pretty. <laughs> and there's a clip. I forget who's talking. There's like a clip of Elon Musk talking over Vivek. <laughs> the funny wow. shit. Wow. Okay, that's fascinating. Because <laughs> like everyone, it's so funny because everyone realized, like, from a, like from a streamer perspective, ha ha ha, streamer. I was thinking, like, what do I do in this? What would I do if I'm in this situation? Can you like, just I have mute a, him? I guess they couldn't. I don't know. I don't know yeah. why they couldn't. I don't know Just how Twitter spaces ass. work. Because I'm looking at like, what do you do in that situation if you're like the host of a call and you have, uh, you know, a presidential candidate on and they're just peeing. It's like, do you keep talking? Do you like, what? does everyone just be silent? That's, um, that's what got John Zerka demonetized. John Zerka, he's um, he's a streamer and a girl uh-huh. put her tits on the stream to get him demonetized and then Twitch took him out for that. Nice. Wow. There was a girl in the crowd and she pulled out her tits to get him wiped out. And then Twitch, I think Twitch didn't like him because he was red pilled. So they just knocked at his channel because this random girl he didn't know pulled out her tits. Wow. Yeah. That's so anyway, female welfare. empowerment. Sorry? Welfare. That's female empowerment. <laughs> um, so to get back to your question, Sitch, yeah. socialism, uh, it provides high material standards of living in exchange for the decline of the society where we've had socialism for thousands. Why of years. is that? What is the technical aspect of that? Let me explain. Okay. We've had socialism for thousands of years and right. uh, we've seen it going back to the ancient Egyptians, the uh, Babylonians, the Greeks and the Romans, the Chinese. And socialism is the side effect of the decline in religion in a society, because once in you can actually correlate the religiosity of the society with the tax rate. And so there are very few religious societies with high tax rates and very few agnostic ones with low tax rates. And so once the religion goes into decline, people look to the state to provide psychological stability and to provide them with security. And I would say it's still like they're correlated, but you've got the causation backwards. I'd say once people's material security increases, they no longer need to rely on religion for psychic. It's all bundled together. Once a society gets wealthier, religion will go into decline. And then with that as well, socialism kicks in. But if you look at this process over time, Mm -hmm. it's wealth increases, religion declines, socialism kicks in. 
Yes. And this is something that Aristotle, Aristotle had this process down thousands of years ago. Um, well, the, the question though is what is what is the causal agent? I would argue that there's oh, let me get to you that. know technological development increases oh, prosperity. So and prosperity makes people not as interested in religion. There's more fun things to do, like seen, play video games and yeah, go bowling. You've seen, you've seen periods of agnosticism going back thousands of years over history, where the, the Greeks and the Romans were agnostic societies after a certain point. You saw it in the ancient world a lot. And so it doesn't have to relate to technology. It relates to how closely do your society's religions match the needs of the population. But who, it, were, the, who were the agnostics, though? Were they the wealthy elites who had were secure, or were they the rank and file? It bled through the entire population. And so, Okay, interesting. Yeah, this is something where if you read Greek and Roman plays, you'll hear like cobblers talking about, I don't know if there's a god. And, wow, okay. <laughs> Yeah. And so and you'll read ancient Egyptian poems where they'll say, I don't know if there's an afterlife, so what's the point in worrying? I'm just going to enjoy this life. Right. And societies, it's part of the civilizational cycle where societies go through phases of agnosticism. And the reason there's a period called the Axial Age around 500 BC, where Confucius, Buddha, um, Plato all lived at the same time. And one of the Jewish prophets. And the reason is that the invention of coinage broke down traditional religions in the same way technology broke down ours. Coinage and the spreading of larger empires, because in that society, everyone worshipped the god of their local creek or the god of their mountain. And so when you when you travel to a bunch of lands and realize everyone has their god of the local creek, it makes you not believe in that religion anymore. And then right. that caused this religious reaction, which is why all these new world religions developed like buddhism or confucianism or the the greek logic systems and you see a process over history where once and once your society develops too fast or fast enough the old religion is no longer believable and applicable and then you go through a period of a period of agnosticism and atheism and then a new religion catches up with the new society and um, so the Roman Empire at the time of Christ was actually a very agnostic society. They viewed religious fanatics as weird. And if you were an educated, cultured person, you were expected to be secular and agnostic. Yeah, interesting. Okay. And, and so to get back to your question, yeah, yeah. It's socialist societies, they often have very high standards of living, but they go into decline. And I think it's um because they don't provide incentives for growth, where for Europe before it went socialist, where Europe's Europe went socialist as a reaction to the world wars. Before the world wars, Europe was the most technologically, culturally, economically, militarily, politically, um, whatever place in the world. Europe powered absolutely every everywhere in the world. It was the most advanced everything. And then with the world wars. Um, Europe didn't recover any of that. And it's funny, the Europeans' economies recovered, but they because their tax rates were so high, there were no incentives to actually to have creatives do stuff because the Beatles had to pay 95% taxes. They moved to America. And so what you see with European creatives is because it's so regulated and there's so little space, European creatives immigrate to America. So many European CEOs come to America. It's why Europe doesn't have a tech. It, Europe doesn't have a Silicon Valley because it's so regulated. And this is a process you see in historic societies where every every socialist society goes into decline because once your society is built around sharing the pie rather than growing the pie, it removes incentives to grow the pie. And um, what this results in is 
the society is wealthy, but also it stops growing where in the 1960s, the European Union was 40% of the world's economy. America was a quarter. Now America is still a quarter of the world's economy and Europe is 19% and collapsing really rapidly. So if you compare Europe to America, Europe when it went socialist went into stark decline and America has kept its predominance in every field. And if you also look inside America, the socialist states have been losing, or not socialist, the more left-wing states have been losing out economically and technologically and socially to more conservative ones. If you compare Canada to America, the more ca the, the more conser socially conservative areas have been doing better even inside Canada. And so if you're comparing more capitalist to more socialist societies, the capitalist one will always have more technological progress, more cultural progress, more innovation. It'll attract the best people. Well, the socialist one will go into decline. Well, we're in a situation though now where those socialist societies can para parasitize uh, the more capitalistic societies, yeah. just take their technology and steal it. So, I mean, I totally agree with you. It's kind of hilarious to see the socialists try to get past this very simple problem. This, yeah. you know, how and, to incentivize growth. And another thing is people compare tiny Nordic countries to America. And you run into a couple issues with that that are pretty politically incorrect, where people say Nordic countries do much better in education. But if you compare white Americans to Scandinavian countries, white Americans do better educationally than Scandinavian countries then you have basically a black underclass population that drags it down. And you can say that for, for whatever reasons, for racism, you can make a racist argument there, but you're not, you're comparing apples to oranges. And you look at, for example, crime rates, white crime rate is equal to a European country. And also these socialist European countries are 6 million people, 12 million people, and America's 300 million. You can find parts of America like Massachusetts where the human development index is the same as Scandinavia, but it's um, but it's the same population as a Scandinavian country as well. And so mm -hmm. I think comparing America to a Nordic country isn't really fair. Um, and these this is the thing that's also really unpolitically correct. But if you any society of Scandinavian people will be wealthy, you see that the Germans, the Germans have gone through monarchy, socialism, um, communism, free market capitalism. In every single one of those systems, the Germans were one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And so, if you look at Scandinavia, and the, these Northwestern Europe has been the wealthiest place in the world for seven hundred years, you're comparing. You're saying they're wealthy because they're socialist. They're wealthy because they were wealthy beforehand and they happened to pick socialism. Does, okay. Do you know Go if ahead. like the whole dynamic between religion, taxation, and socialism, does that apply to like Venezuela and South America too? It's interesting where we don't keep track of what the dynamics in the third world are. And mm -hmm. so most people think people in Latin America are still very religious and have high birth rates, but almost no country in Latin America has a sustainable birth rate. And a lot of them are more secular than America. Or really? An irony is the average American is more religious and has more children than the average Iranian. And, um, and so what you in Latin America, you have political fashions that roll through and people don't really 
the political fashions, um, no one applies them correctly. And the system of corrupt, massive inequality being run by special interests stay the same. People will try on this new fashion. And socialism has gone through waves in Latin America. And so we went through a big socialist wave in recently because the effect of Reaganism and neoliberalism in South America was to make the rich richer and to keep the poor where they're at. And so it's built up a lot of resentment and envy. And so there's a left-wing wave across all of Latin America because of that. And the one of the interesting things you'll don't notice is people talk about Scandinavian social welfare systems, but the exact same policies happen and have been tested in Southern Europe and in South America. And they have wildly differing effects because they've pushed the same policy in Scandinavia versus Italy or Venezuela, it's going to have wildly disparate incomes because Scandinavia is so much more of a high trust society. Um, and so the, we've seen these dynamics in Latin America where as the societies get less religious, uh, they've become much more socialist. And so the short answer is yes. So like, so are we just screwed? Like what's the solution if, you know, welfare leads to everything falling apart and then neoliberalism inequality leads everything falling apart. <laughs> like, First of all, I don't think, I don't think religions, I don't think religion's going to be in decline forever. And I say that for a couple different reasons. I think we'll have a wave of religiosity. You think the... religion's going to save us? No, I think we'll probably go through Caesarism because what happens after the welfare state is that you have Caesarism where, um, once you once your institutions get ideal get corrupt and complicated and the politics don't make sense um and also this is one of those things that's on pc but the more feminine a society is the more it will want caesarism because it'll want like an alpha male to basically come in and save things mm -hmm. um and that's where we're at now where i think there's a higher chance we have caesarism but also i i'm not sure how I think the political arrangement of 40 years from now will be so different from today. I'm not sure it'll be socialism versus capitalism versus fascism. I think we're going to have completely different political ideologies. And um, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, this is like a random, completely random question, but sure. when you're talking about like the Greeks and the Romans, I tried to look this up once I couldn't find the answer. Did the Greeks and Romans like, literally believe the planets were their gods or was it like a symbolic thing oh I mean, i'm actually it's great that you asked me this because i think i'm one of the very very few people who could give you the correct answer to this um i looked it up and i thought it would be very simple to find and it was not no the thing is it's actually a complicated answer because right. these societies have very different structures for reality than what we do mm -hmm. we're our view of the world is very concrete and material where the way their vision of the world was, was they thought consciousness controlled reality. And they thought that everything had sympathetic connections with other things. And oh my God, they believe the secret. They, yeah, basically. But they, they would have said the secret was bullshit and lies where they said that, um, for example, a voodoo doll is a great way of thinking about this with a voodoo doll. The doll has a connection to a real person. You push holes in the, in the doll and then the real person has uh, physical pain. Mm -hmm. And that was their vision of the world. And so they had these seven principles of the universe that were connected to each other. And so for the God Mercury, the planet Mercury, it's connected to the 
personality trait to be the being mercurial the mm -hmm. planet mercury is also connected to the god mercury who's connected to um the art of hermeticism which is hermes is the greek name for mercury uh is connected to the art of healing and these things are all it's you know in in string theory there's the idea that different particles are connected across each other across the galaxy so when one particle moves in a completely different part of the galaxy something else moves right yeah that was their vision of the world where there was the god mercury and he had all these symbolic connections to different things and so if you touched one of them you touch the other and they had this for the different gods and so they didn't actually believe that the planet Mercury was their god. They thought the planet Mercury was a symbolic attachment to this underlying psychological force. Well, okay. they didn't see them as they didn't see they weren't stupid. They didn't see the god as actual like there's this giant muscly person who lives in the somewhere. sky. Right. They see them as these underlying psycho spiritual forces that operate across the cosmos that control very different variables they saw them more as laws of nature mm -hmm. than as like actual physical things did they know that it was like a planet and that they just thought mercury had like dominion or connection there or did they not know exactly i think it depended it on how educated the person was because they, they the Greeks were really good at science. They were able to calculate the distance, the circumference of the earth within, I think, 200 miles of what it actually is. And they, I think they knew they were planets uh, and they, they didn't have a comprehension of what outer space was because right. they thought once you leave the world, you go into the spirit world, the further out you go, the more spirit world it gets. And so mm. their conception wasn't, I think they knew that they were actual planets, but they thought that once you got out there, the conflation between the spirit world and the physical world meant that it wasn't, it's not on our plane of existence, if that makes sense. Right. So like, okay. So like, it's not quite like, okay, so we look in our space and we go, okay, we understand this concept. It's like this void and then passive yeah. void. There's like just shit out there that exists under the same physical laws that we exist under. So therefore no. you look at the yeah. thing in the sky and you say, okay, that's like a planet kind of doing stuff that we do though it has like a different atmosphere. But like, since they're viewing it as a completely different, like dimensional space, yeah. they wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, it's a planet. It's like, well, is it? I mean, it's like something that exists for different rules, you know? Yeah, because the concept, and this is when shamans, and this, I was talking about the CIA spirit world stuff, the further you go out in the spirit world, the more abstract it gets. In each layer, they view it a completely different dimension with mm -hmm. different rules. And so the idea was that you go out to the dimension of mercury and it's the realm of mercury where it's 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 its own spirit world or it relates to that and it, dante's inferno is a great example of how that worldview works the different layers of hell and um that happens in and when they go to paradise they go to the different planets yes different realms yeah exactly um it's funny because the ancient greeks there was a point where they didn't believe any of this stuff the Greeks and the Romans went through a phase of agnosticism. Because remember, these people were there. They had a civilization that was on its own trajectory for a thousand years. And so they went through a phase of agnosticism where they thought all of this stuff was bullshit. And, and, then, they, and then they didn't. Um, and so the, the Greeks and the Romans had a long tradition of doubting their own gods. So there would be time periods that believed that. And then there would be other time periods where okay, you look up into space and it's just a, it's just a planet. It's just a rock. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting. So, cause you said that like, and I didn't know this, that the Greeks and the Romans kind of had this idea about consciousness 
you know, creating yeah. reality. Um, and it sounds like kind of what we we're describing, like that religious idea would be more associated with a sort of like conservative view where now that idea is like a hippie new age lefty view. Yes. It's kind of viewed like I know James Lindsay makes this point. I, I don't know if it's accurate or not, but he makes the point that like a lot of the cultural Marxism he thinks comes from the spiritual view of like you can shape reality to whatever you want. Yeah. And so like, where's this, like, where did this divergence come from? If you, if you know about that. Interesting. That's, that, that's also a great question. This has been a good podcast so far. Most of my podcast has asked me about like doomerism or random. What are your political views on blank? This actually is digging into knowledge. That <laughs> I have thought well, about you. that you probably wouldn't get anywhere else. I've been doing a lot of research on stuff like this. And one of the books I bought is The Myth of Disillusion. And I bought another one, The Fire in the Hearts of Men. And so one of the interesting things is that in the 19th century, and this is why Nietzsche's death of God was such a big deal. Almost everyone believed in the spirit world. Thomas Edison was trying to build an engine to talk to the spirit world. Nikola <laughs> really? Tesla. No, really, look it up. That was his biggest project. I would change the world by building an engine to talk to the spirit world. Nikola Tesla also was trying to do the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Every important figure would have seances, which were such a big deal. So wealthy people would have these giant seances. And this is why the death of God was such a big deal for Nietzsche, because it was such a religious and spiritually oriented society that when Nietzsche said God's dead, it was a big deal because it... Nietzsche was so brilliant because he realized that all of the discoveries they'd made so far would eventually make a secular world. That wasn't what the consensus was at the time. And the point the book made, and I haven't read it yet, so I'll need to read it and say if it's BS or not, is that the idea of a secular uh a secular, disenchanted, non-magical world was a concept that was made by people who were entrenched in that worldview as a political move. That it was basically, it was people who had one version of the occult and they wanted to just hurt a traditional religion. And so I haven't read this book to see if it's true. And I have another book that says that the origins of communism relate back to romanticism of the 19th century. And the romantic movement had a lot of attachments to these kinds of like spiritualist occult movements. And um, the breakthrough, I'm trying to answer your question because there's a lot of different elements, but the breakthrough was around the world wars where we moved from a worldview where the world because it happened gradually, but around mm -hmm. the world wars, any concept of talking about this stuff is viewed as woo-woo and cringe and weird. Um, but the thing is, you still have to have an explanation for how the world works. And so everyone has some kind of philosophic, metaphysical, religious view of the world. And if you don't choose to have one, one will seep in. So for communists, they treat history as their god. They've tried to not to have a god, but the moral arc of history is their god. So you tell a communist um, that a communist cannot admit that their worldview is not scientific, where for real science, it's about, is this falsifiable? Communism isn't falsifiable. For them, it's an ideal, it's, a, it's on faith, they will have to win. And, um, and for the left, to get their worldview where they need to, they need to start with the metaphysical argument that we can control reality. And so everyone ends up with some kind of story about what the world means and what our relationship with, with the spirit world and the divine is, whether or not they decide to, because that's you have to have that to determine 
even the most basic choices you make in a philosophy. Mm-hmm. So, well, I guess the question is, you know, did the the older religions or the Greeks and Romans, did they think that like the average person, did they think, hey, if I like, can my consciousness create reality? Or is it more like there's a oh, God no, it's whose not, consciousness- Sorry, is- I, I didn't explain this well. Right. Um, the left- the left are the only people who believe that their consciousness creates reality. Mm-hmm. Every previous society thought it was God's consciousness, and we were living in God's simulation. Okay, gotcha. And so you do not have control over that. God is dreaming this up for you. It gotcha. what God right. says. Okay, the left that believes sense. that we dream it up, and that's something they get from the Gnostics, who the Gnostics are the only religion in history which believe that we – get the power of gods and can can dream reality to be what we want it to be. Hmm. And so um, I've said in previous podcasts here that I think the left is an intellectual descendant of Gnosticism because they share that trait that only the Gnostics have. Hmm. That's interesting. Someone said, I don't know what, I mean, I don't know what they're referring to. They said the Epicureans and skeptics are not the same as the Stoics and the Platonist or the uh, Pythagorean. Pythagorean. I never said they were. I can explain what all of those are if you're interested. Pythagoreans, is that it? Pythagoreans, thank you. you. Yeah, Yeah. each of those are very different from the others. Okay. I I have Um, a question. What's your question, Adam? Well, I I just, I wonder why you're not more optimistic that technology will solve our societal issues. You have this idea that even if we achieved, you know, some sort of technological advancements that, you know, we could wipe out hunger or poverty or any of these things, we'd end up in the rat utopia. Why Why do you think that is? Because so over the last century, the world's economy is over 10 times what it was at the start of it. The world's population has gone up four, five times over in the last century. We no longer, we, we didn't have poverty. We didn't have famine in America. Everyone had electricity. We did that. We did solve all of our problems. And then we realized we weren't happy. And we kept on, if the premise that you say, speak of has been tested, and the result is that we're our society's having serious issues now. And so we did solve all our problems with technology, but that didn't solve the underlying human condition. Then we got new problems. Could, couldn't you just argue, though, that the, the problem, like, yes, we created all this massive wealth, but we still had the distribution problem. We still had income inequality which is why what drove people to be unhappy it's people will be more unhappy if they see people living in the lap of luxury when they're still suffering i mean in the 50s through 70s we were pretty equal societies and we still it still didn't solve everything and it created a population which then resulted in increasing the inequality and europe underlying assumption is that you if you build the material utopia that will fix everything I don't think that's true. I think if you make a material utopia, it will change the psychology of the society. And let's say that if, because I think of it with celebrities, because if you give a celebrity and a person all the material wealth they want, infinite luxury, infinite sex, infinite free time, most celebrities go crazy. And so if you increase the material level of the society without giving it the proper training or values or whatever, it'll just, it's not going to work where like loads of people win the lottery and um, that gives them every single material benefit they would need. 
and then they blow it away or their lives fall apart. And a pretty significant amount of lottery winners, their lives just completely fall apart. But you'd mm -hmm. be in a situation where that was impossible because there wouldn't, even if they spent... And you just get sillier and stupider. I mean, think of rich kids where imagine you come from a family where you never have to worry about money, where you have a trust fund to take care of you for your entire life. And what, from personal experience, what happens to those kids? But, where... but aren't there rich kids that... that want to achieve something they do try to achieve something when they i was a child business they work when around I, the clock when i did chess as a child my chess teacher told me rudyard you can't make plans based off what you want to happen you should make plans based off the worst possible not like the most plausible scenario and the thing is once you create a societal incentive um what will happen is that over time, someone eventually decides to break it. And then after that, what occurs is that you develop declining personal trust. And so if you, it's just that you, we all know that that's not human nature. If you create a society with no external threats, some people will start and this is what happened in our society. What happened is that we lost track of the values that let us get it in the first place. And we shamed people who, who didn't do that, where our current society is all based around shaming people who want to uphold the system and who want to uphold the structure that created that wealth in the first place. We, we call intelligent people nerds. We call the religious people who uphold society weirdos and um, fanatics. We shame the people who want to keep our current countries and societies or capitalism together. And so instead you end up with a society that shames those who would try to maintain the structure to keep the wealth going because they make the people who want to be degenerates feel judged. Yeah, but they're in the situation that I'm laying out where everybody has all of their material needs met. I do agree that there are certain rich people that you know, they blow all their money and throw their lives away. They just, they do cocaine and hookers every day and night and don't really accomplish anything. It's, you make it sound like I, that's a bad thing. Well, <laughs> see, look, you're, I, I just, like there are still people that are motivated to accomplish things. And I just, I look at the world as there are probably people out there that are motivated, but they don't have the means to accomplish what the people who have material wealth can accomplish. Like a lot of the prodigies in our society come from, come from money because they have more free time. They have more resources at their disposal. They have more opportunity. So when I lay out a future where, you know, technology basically creates super abundance, I just, I have a tough time thinking, okay, everybody is going to become the fucked up, um, rich kid that ends up crashing his car. I just, I feel like you'll, there's certain personality types and proportionally you will get more people who have opportunity to start businesses, develop the products and, and services of the future. And eventually humanity becomes immortal. The way society works is that it's, is that what happens is one demographic will gain superiority over the others and then it will change the underlying culture for everyone else well that, example, that's a, that's a societal problem that's that's why i'm asking the question like why does that does that happen because of limited resources or does that just happen because people want to fuck with other people it, it happens because people do what they can to 
what they can to live. And what happens is that over time you end up with human nature reaches the lowest level it can and to survive where, um, for example, in our society, we, we lived in a society that was post-abundance for the post-World War II era, is that some people did want to do the things that you describe of pushing hard and make, maintaining values and making more money. But our society starting in the 60s, it glorified hedonism and degeneracy and not pro-social values. And then that became the total culture. And so if you went against that, you were considered cringe and mocked. And for okay. Google, they make That's fun of you if you do not push hedonism. Because in boomer society, the people who are mocked the most are religious people, people who are sincere, intelligent people, um, and social conservatives. But those are the kinds of, and also people, Vietnam veterans, people who fought in the wars. But these are the people who maintain society. So the society actively degraded the people who maintained it. And, and it were, what you are describing already happened. Adam, where the we are in a society that actively judges the people who do try to do the things to keep the society going. And that's because the people, a critical mass of our population doesn't want to do those things because they just, they're just too lazy and they- Well, they wouldn't have to though under this scenario. Sorry? They wouldn't have to under this scenario. Have you read- this Black. is our society. You're not going to starve no matter what. The society you describe is where we are now, where because for the longest time, you could you didn't have to try that hard and you'd survive. So we became the society you're describing. Well, I'm not sure that I agree. Look, just one last point, and I'll yeah. let you take over. Such. Have you read Black Rednecks and White Liberals by Thomas Sowell? It's a great book. And he I've read like seven other books by Sowell, but not that. He, he does. He kind of makes the divide that we're talking about here, that he... Hedonism versus work hard and accomplish things. And those two lifestyles really are, I mean, that's human nature at odds with one another. So I think it is, it is interesting. And I do think if we were in a situation like a Star Trek utopia future, you would get a certain amount of hedonism, but I just, I like to have more faith in human nature. I like to think you would still get a fair amount of work hard and let's think about the future. We have thousands of years of human history as a record, though. And the reason mm -hmm. why we keep on being stuck in this game and we don't get utopia is every time we do get wealthy, decadence kicks in. Well, no, we but technology is totally a game changer here. And But I have seen very little evidence that technology is a game changer and lots of evidence to the opposite. Where okay. we have, I mean, look at our current society. We have all of the problems that you talk about beforehand. And it's clear that the internet the internet gave us all this information, but we're not better educated. Um, and we still do witch burnings. We still are bloodthirsty. We still are racist and anti-Semitic. Well, we, we got an MPC problem we got to deal with, but I'm, I'm <laughs> postulating technology to work that out too. <laughs> what? So the way I see it is technology makes society richer. Being rich means that more, a higher percentage of the population doesn't have to try as hard. And then it basically just creates a feedback loop. Well, this is, this is like a fascinating debate. So Sitch, you want to say well, something? So, I mean, I, I don't I'm willing to keep going. If you guys are, if you sure. guys humor, let me order Mexican off DoorDash. Sure. So go, for go for it. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I look, Adam we, loves Mexican food. If you, as long as you order a, uh, all pastor burrito, we're cool. 
Is that do you dislike that? No, I love I love El Paso. Oh, I'm down for that. Yeah. I would have ordered a carnitas burrito though. I like carnitas. Carnitas is good. You go. You've got um. I mean, you're in Texas. You're in California. You're in. California, I'm in Southern California. Yeah, I'm Los so Angeles. we're both in good Mexican yeah. territory. Hell yeah! Are you kidding me? Like I always see these taquerias that are just, I mean, authentic. I love Mex- the Mexican uh, friggin'. I love those places where they're just on the corner and they they've got a a, a side of pork in a bunch of lard. Hell yeah! Little bits of meat you want. That's that's the best. Well, every time I move into a new place, I I basically try to. I basically try every taqueria in like a 20 mile radius just to like. That's, that's, that, yeah. that's what I do too. Or when I lived in SoCal, it's funny that you don't see those places in Texas or Texas is as Mexican, but for whatever reason, there aren't those little plate, those little, uh, those little, uh, taquerias or that yeah. kind of talking about. The best food Mexican, better than Mexican food. food. You guys are wrong. I'll tell you. Sorry. The best Mexican food in California is in Santa Cruz, California. It's a place called Taqueria Morenos. Okay. And they have absolutely like the best salsa in the world. It's so amazing. Are yeah. you from SoCal originally? Yeah, I was born in Southern California. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine it must have changed a tremendous amount over your life. Oh, of course. Yeah. I'm when from I was the, a kid, there used to be like the oil wells everywhere. Yeah. Like, there's, just, still like there. random... there's still a bunch when I went to visit you. I'm friends. Oh, with yeah. The... You're kind of in a way that you were staying in oil well territory. Go ahead, right. Roger. I keep interrupting. I'm friends with the former political, with the former um, congressman for Burbank. And I was calling him the other day. And he's a really cool guy. He's a Whittafeltist fan. And um, who is that? Asking, uh, sorry. Who's the who's the former? I'll, uh, I'll DM you privately after the oh, call. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. I don't give out names of fans because just it's a private. Yeah, no, I I get it, uh, I get it. And so I'm friends with him, a really cool guy. And uh, I was asking him one of the things I told him because we called for a couple hours is I said it's funny because you're from there, but you culturally remind me more of my family from Nebraska than modern people from Southern California I know because he's in his seventies. And so, the, and, he, and I said, the Burbank you grew up in must be so, so different from, um, from what it is today. And he said, yeah, I, um, I left California because the California I knew just doesn't exist anymore. That happens. That totally happens. Mm-hmm. True. One of the things that really shocks me about living in SoCal, and this is, is that it's just infinite urban sprawl without countryside because the entirety of Los Angeles County is just infinite suburbs. And I'm from rural Pennsylvania, so I'm used to like seeing old style cities, like cities built in the 1700s, and then outside of its countryside. And so it's weird to see an entire ecological region that's suburbs. This is what got me about living in New York. In New York, you never see a giant piece of the sky because there's like always buildings and skyscrapers and everything in the way you can yeah. go on top of a building and you can see like the wide open sky but it's yeah. it's just not the same being able to look out across the horizon and think you know i could walk all the way over there under this big blue sky it's just well it's, it's a completely I mean, different you, you phenomenon. do have that in southern california it's weird because like i would say that new york at least new york city is just like super infinite city and then Southern California or LA is like, it's Wide weird. Sky. It's like, yeah. it's, it's like city. And then the city gets surrounded by suburb. And then that suburb bleeds into another suburb, which bleeds back into a little city. Yep. So it's like, it's like little mini cities surrounded by suburbs that all bleed into it, it, itself. 
where in Southern Florida, where I'm from, it's like there's a city and then there's just literally like infinite suburb that never becomes city again. That just goes out for miles. Really? In oh, wow. Yeah. Philadelphia yeah, all these weird. little cities are incorporated. It's 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 funny. Um, I lived in a digital nomad for a couple of years. So I lived in a bunch of places in America for a few months and I live in Texas now and I love Texas. I'm, I'm glad I came here. Um, in the Philadelphia is strange where everything is older than 100 years ago, where there's no like like I, like everything's built before 1920. And then you have these suburbs. And so it's very much like a European city where it's very concentrated geographically. And that's one of the things I really like about Philly, where it's all walkable downtown. Mm -hmm. And um, that's, that's super nice. Being able to walk around. You can't do that in LA. People treat Philly like it's a shithole, but like really downtown Philly until like a couple months ago, it was safe. You could get really amazing food for half the price of New York. Uh, You could, you can be a middle-class person and live in a Victorian townhouse in downtown Philly. And so it has all these amenities for what used to be you could like you can go you can you can get opera tickets for like 60 bucks in Philly. And so it's all these like amenities of what used to be one of the most important cities in the world. But because it's it's fallen down so fast, you can live a very good life for not that expensive. Um, but I mean, I've lived in New York City and Los Angeles for a few months each, and I've honestly kind of soured on blue states. I, I like Texas a lot more. But like I liked Los Angeles a lot more than New York City because New- Los Angeles, you can afford to have a reasonable quality life. Well, in New York City, you're living in a horse stall for like 5000 a month. And <laughs> I just- That was exactly my experience. I had like, yeah. a, I had like a six floor walk up without an elevator. My legs yeah, were it, like tree trunks. It, yeah, basically. Um, I got to actually order my food. Um, yeah, order it up, Sitch. Don't you have a, like a super chat or something? Sure, order it up. What do you think of my my take, Sitch? Well, you I'll, believe, I'll, do you believe in the utopia? I'll right? talk the, about that after the food has been ordered. Oh, okay. You got it. You have a take. Good, right. good. That's what I want to hear. All right. Uh, Equishadox for twenty dollars. Thank you, Equishadox. Says, what if Alt Hiss on Sitch and Adam is always a treat, like a fireside chat with a mug of ale or hot chocolate? Except my mind is stimulated like no other. Here's too many more crossover. Uh, I, mean, I, I love simulate. I love stimulating his mind. There you go. Yeah, no, it's always fun talking to you, Roger. I was making a fucking innuendo there. I saw oh, okay. that. A little bit of a Freudian <laughs> uh, slip there. Uh, Spencer Harmon for twenty dollars. As long as it's consensual, though, it sounds like it's consensual. It, it with Equishadox, it's always consensual, baby. Spencer Harmon for twenty dollars says, "I've too started to hate the word democracy. Glad to know I still haven't had an original thought. I mean, that's what's always so funny. It's like you know, the further back you go in history, you realize there are no original thoughts, and you know, ever You're just rehashing something. So you know, it is what it is. Well, I don't. I just." I buy into the idea that democracy is some something that holds elites in check and just I, I guess people don't believe it. Yeah, I stand with you, Adam. I think I'm pro-democracy, which people call me a cuck for on the right now. But I think <laughs> no, unironically. And I think democracy does it gives the elite some kind of need to uh stay in touch with the population Um, yeah look right now donald trump is just fucking doing everything he can to make people happy so he can be president again just so he can say look i got my two terms everyone loves me (laughs) 
I mean, that's exactly what's going actually, on. I am actually ordering a pastor burrito. Oh, nice. nice. Look at that. Yeah. The place I was going to get, I don't really get like a selection. Can of you order tacos. from Santa Cruz, California? I wonder, how's that DoorDash work? Maybe <laughs> I, maybe I, that's only about 200 miles away. What's the range on that app? 200? I'm in Texas. It's like 2,000. Well, I mean, for me, I was going to order one for myself. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, get, you get your own. You've already ordered. Come on. Right. So let's yeah the whole democracy things I know I don't buy into sort of elite theory or any of that stuff I, I do I mean I think you know we both had to buy into selectric theory and I don't really see anyone has really advocated for a system that's going to work better where the elites have to care about you know what the masses feel like other than some kind of democracy. I mean, thing is, political choices aren't made rationally. It's just whoever has the biggest faction of thugs behind them uh, <laughs> and. And so that's my new rap name. Um, mob, mob rule, baby. But as long as it's our mob, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you see Caesarism where guys, if we're going to follow the Roman precedent, guys claim to be part of the Republic, but the reality is they're not. They're actually serving their own special interests. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, for the Romans, they claim to be a democracy, but they really became a monarchy where like, you know, North Korea, they're not saying they're a monarchy. Syria, they're not saying they're a monarchy, but they, but they are. Yeah. Totally. And so for Augustus, for what emperor Augustus did for an equivalent in America, um, Augustus cult would call, you would get someone who made a special role called, let's say Lord protector or, um, the first citizen. Augustus literally called himself the first citizen. That was his title. And then he had control over the military. And then he staffed the Congress with his buddies so that Congress passed any laws he wanted to. Mm -hmm. And so Augustus said, no one loves the Constitution more than I. I am here to protect the Constitution. But at the same time, by sidestepping the previous constitution, he was able to install himself as dictator. And it just happened that his adopted son took the throne after him. Right. Yeah. So he easily so installed yeah. a monarchy. Right. Yeah. Well, the thing that the thing mm -hmm. is that the only in the time of the fall of the Roman Republic, the only form of government you could have that would be uh friggin' that would be legitimate was a democracy. So they had to make a fake democracy. They do this all the time. I, I see it monarchs. even in Western Europe. Like you look at the stuff with Conor McGregor, where they're they're putting Conor McGregor under investigation for criticizing the government. Where that's very clearly not a real that's not a real liberal society or a real free society. Because whenever you criticize the government, you get thrown in jail. And so yeah. it, it's a single. This is a problem Europe has that America is a lot better at. In European countries, tiny entrenched elites can run the society. In both political parties, went to the same school. They're part of the same social clubs. So the voters don't have real choice. And um, it's yeah. Um, and I mean, also, you like, did you see the new law coming out of New York State where the way it works there is that they can put you in quarantine for however long they want under whatever pre they can put you in quarantine for however long they want with no evidence at any age with no evidence. And then they can give you whatever drugs they want to give. Where, you. where is this? New York State. They can give oh, you whatever drugs they want to give you without your consent experimentally. And so what they can, can say, they transition you? I mean, they said they can do it for medical stuff. They want. So 
Yeah. I mean, the irony is you you joke about that, but really, <laughs> I could totally see if we're in a nasty civil war, some left-wing regime castrating- Transitioning the all the right-wingers? Oh no, that's God. not what I'm saying. Like, let's say New York City, we're in a civil war now, we're in warlordism. New York City captures Ben Shapiro. They transition him <laughs> oh to humiliate God. the right. No, I, look- that's some pretty nasty shit. Mm -hmm. I don't put it past. People are nasty though. Like I've, I've, it's, it's. I'll read about shit in the Russian Civil War, the Chinese Civil War, and keep in mind all of the stuff is in living memory. Um, and they would do, they do pretty, like they'd cut off, they, they, they do some pretty atrocious stuff, like in Stalinist Russia. Again, within living memory, they would make living ice sculptures. They'd pour ice on someone at night and then watch them freeze to death and become ice sculptures. Wouldn't we send in federal troops though to save Ben Shapiro? I feel like we would. This isn't. We're already in a civil war. Even That's Biden, I feel like snow. Biden. There even is no will federal do this. government. This is when the breakdown. Daddy's not here to save you. Well, I, I think when we're like kind of looking at like historical trends, I think it's at least the way that I perceive it is that a lot of the same psychology and themes continually play, but then like how it manifests is going to be very dependent on whatever the circumstances of the times are. Yeah. So like when you were talking about, you know, kind of like the breakdown and like the Democrats dying and the Republicans kind of taking power, and then that kind of devolved into the very civil war thing. Like I could see it happening. But I could see it happening not so much like on a physical war, but a political scale. That would be kind of the way that that would manifest itself in our current time. Um, I mean, I think that's possible. I think we might. No, I think we're going to have violence. I'm honest. I don't think okay, I, think we'll we're gonna be we'll violent. I was thinking about it and then I realized, no, um, I spent a lot of time on right wing Twitter because mm -hmm. that's my job. Um, and yeah, but talking shit online is not necessarily active I mean, no, violence I need, I need come on i need therapy adam <laughs> come on yeah but, but look uh, i'm just i understand where look and tell me if you're not going here hopefully you're not going here yeah. but look people people talk shit online they use violent rhetoric when they're talking to their buddies i don't it's it's just a, a hugely it's a huge escalation to bring that violence into the real world until it so the thing is I've been part of right-wing Twitter for a long time, and the escalation has gone up tremendously. And I hang out with mostly young right-wing men. In the rhetoric. I Like, I hear people say this shit. I see I, people say this shit offline, too. Mm, uh, right. And so it's just, I mean, Hillary said recently, I'm going to stop here because I don't want to be the Civil War guy. I don't want to be typecast. Mm. Right. I was going to, I was then a couple of weeks in Boston and I, my nickname was the civil war guy. And, <laughs> um, I don't want to be typecast by that as your audience, but you get um, yeah, oh, uh, there we go. But, I mean, like Hillary recently said, Trump voters need to be put in re-education camps unironically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I'm a little conflicted because I think that basically the way a lot of these civil wars and conflicts start is that people are LARPing it until it happens. Yeah, so they, totally. People basically LARP their way into these conflicts. So I think that that's possible, um, but you have to be careful. You don't want to fall into like the James Lindsay trap of, you know, I, I think that James Lindsay's analysis of wokeness is spot on. Yeah. But I think, I think he stared into the abyss a little too long and it's sort of like spread to like him using that lens to look at everything. Yeah. I, I, think I have he's incorrect a lot there. of stuff to say here, but I'm going to grab a glass of milk first. Okay. You get some milk. Milk. Very suspicious. He needs some milk. <laughs> there you go. Uh, 
Monet Mail, thank you so much for the $10. Says, thank you. I really needed this stream today, fellows. Just found out my best friend since high school is in prison for being a disgusting. Wow, a PDF. Uh, six the four gigabytes found never been this disappointed well i'm sorry to hear that that's crazy yeah i read that i can't imagine that it has to be just mortifying someone that you spent time with and right yeah that's pretty shocking with and all of a sudden you're like like what's going on here yeah wow okay well sorry to hear that yeah 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 yes uh let's we we (laughs) is this a time for this is time for what? For a for a wood chipper joke? I don't know. No, maybe too no, soon. Not too soon. One of the things I was going to say is that one of the problems with modern civilization is that people literally tell us things and we don't believe them. Hitler said, "I literally want to kill the Jews and genocide Eastern Europe." We were mm-hmm. surprised when he did that. The communists say, "We literally want to kill the rich and then destroy Western civilization." Right. We're surprised when we do that. The left literally says. We want to deconstruct whiteness in the entirety of our civilization. We're surprised when they do that. Osama bin Laden says, I hate America. I will destroy, I will go on a campaign to destroy American finance. Um, we're surprised when he blows up the biggest American financial building. And so we treat people as better than they deserve because we want to see the good in them. And then we're surprised when they do the things they literally tell us they're going to do them. Well, they're going to. I don't look. I don't well, wait, think wait, 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 wait. But before we get Dolorosy um, <laughs> about seeing the good people, um, well, also I think kind of the difficulty with like the leftist stuff is that you know when they say like, oh yeah, I want to deconstruct whiteness, they always, like most of them are not. They're not open about it because then you say, well, what does that mean? And then they give you a bunch of bullshit about what it means. But the they thing don't is, say like, oh, I want to like eliminate the white people. Take people. One of my skills is I think I'm good at reading body language where I, I I walk. This is something where I'll walk around cities and I can kind of pick up on the vibe of what's going on in the city. And it's obvious at points where a leftist person is screaming, we want to deconstruct whiteness. You ask them, they give you some ver- word vomit. You look at their body language when they're screaming that. They clearly hate white people. But the thing mm-hmm. with our society is we have such a, a rigid intellectual model that you can't say look at this insane leftist person whose body language screams hatred and say that they're they're dangerous. You have to, we don't use intuition at all. And intuition is the thing that gets you out of interpersonal situations where if, let's say you're a girl and you're at a bar and this weird guy approaches you and he seems kind of sus, you use your intuition determined to not go home with that guy. This is how we live our lives, but we can't use intuition for political situations where you can't say, because my intuition tells me that there are guys on the far right who are absolutely crazy. And I picked that up from interacting with them. Um, and I pick up on there are guys on the left who are also absolutely crazy. And I could give you a rational argument, but the real answer is just I picked it up from context clues of talking to them. Yeah, no, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think, I, I mean, I definitely think that people talk about deconstructing whiteness. I think it is just a smokescreen for racism, definitely. So I mean, I it's not a that. fucking smokescreen. They literally say we want to deconstruct whiteness. <laughs> well, Listen I know, but then words. when you say, I get it. But then when you, when you say, oh, man. yeah, I, we've had this debate with people that, that say this. So then we got to have dialogue always on. There's certain yeah. people where you don't have to listen to their opinions. You just accept them and then right. this person's weird yeah. and crazy. I get, I, so I get it all. But I do think that there is a difference between uh, more time about like decline and like how close we are to revolution. I think there's a or civil war. I think there's a difference between people who 
are using kind of rhetoric like deconstruct whiteness or defund the police or this stuff and they kind of hide or attempt to hide in the ambiguity of this nonsensical jargon that they create i think it's different than like hitler or someone else being like bro i'm just gonna like wipe out the jews you know and deal with it i don't because and i think we're actually seeing that like manifest right now and that's part of why there's been this kind of like backlash against you know the, the hearings that happened in congress i think that's why like even you know farid uh you know, we did the thing about Farid on CNN, even like, what the fuck is going on here? People are so shocked to see these Ivy League presidents not being able to denounce genociding, you know, Jewish people. And it sh- to me, it shows that like, when you throw, when the veneer is thrown off, when the mask is pulled off, and people just see it for what it is, there's still like a lot of pushback. People are not willing to go to that extreme yet. Where the they thing is, shit. everything the left said they would do, they did. We've had pl- game plans for the left because the strategy the left does now is exactly what they said they would do in the in the middle of the 20th century, where Gramsci invented the plan that we're currently seeing with the left. And how many of you guys follow Yuri Bezmenov? Yeah, no, I I agree. Yeah, we're literally living through Yuri Bezmenov's stuff right now. Right. And so people don't understand that. That's what I'm saying. They have no people clue. are idiots. And I mean, the thing <laughs> okay, is, look yeah. at Nazi Germany. Right. The British we did a stream on Yuri Bezmenov. That's right. based. Um, yeah. Nazi Germany, the British and the French were constantly trying to appease Hitler. And um, uh, Chamberlain, the British prime minister, went to Munich to let the Germans take Czechia. And the 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 BBC and the New York and all the newspapers, the tagline was peace in our times. Because they thought if we let Hitler take Czechia... He's not going to go after anything more. Hitler went after Poland. Hitler literally said he'd go after Poland. You deal with the the Soviets and the Maoists. They say they want to kill the rich. Look, they kill the rich, and then they um, and they say that they want to destroy global capitalism. Why are we surprised when the Cold War happens and they're trying to subvert our culture? Um, and Trump Trump says he wants to lock up everyone in the deep state. Should we believe him? I mean, I don't think that's unplausible because. One of the lessons I've learned from life is people are always three screws loose from doing the worst thing possible. (laughs) I thousand percent agree. There are five to 10% of the population, which is genuinely virtuous. And I made a promise to myself. Three of us here. I saw, (laughs) I saw all this. I I predicted a couple years ago, I predicted that the society would fall apart and I predicted people would go crazy. And I made a promise to myself, Rudyard, you know, this is going to happen. Promise that you're not going to lose your heart and succumb to whatever bad things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. You're going to do it. Man. It's it's hard to actually keep your moral compass. It's easier just sure. to agree with everything your your side says, and no one rewards you for being virtuous. True. Most people aren't virtuous when pressure is put under them. Virtue you, is its own reward, right here. <laughs> no, that's a lie. Like. <laughs> Oh my this, God. Is some, this is some Christian BS where like, <laughs> I'm Christian. That's Christian BS. Most of this stuff is like. Just people, not along, Rudyard. Come on. This is why your idea that friggin' like you will have a post wealth society. We'll have a post scarcity society isn't going to work because people are lazy and they'll and self-serving and they'll do what they can get away with. And so if people can get away with being bad people and their group rewards them for that, they'll do it. Mm-hmm. Well, well, we're seeing I'm a actually, lot I'm, I'm of glad that. you brought that back because I wanted to say something about that because it's kind of interesting. It's kind of like this like 
we're like at the crossroads of, you know, are we going to become the Wally Society where we're all fat in chairs or are we going to become like the Star Trek Utopia Society? It's not the, the, the cross reference. What about the Mad Max? What about, there's a book called Fitzpatrick's War, which I think is interesting. And it's actually mm-hmm. one of the best written sci-fi books I've read where Fitzpatrick's War, it's tells the story of an American Alexander the Great in the 25th century. But the backstory for it is that over the 21st century, and this book was written in the 80s and 90s, so... It uh, it was before all this stuff was popularized, is that in the 21st century, society falls apart to de- degeneracy. The world's population goes up to like 10 billion, and then it collapsed precipitously. Or in the 21st century, there's global degeneracy, where the mainstream American culture loses any value, and it just... And so American society stops functioning, and then it instead becomes divided between religious fundamentalist rednecks and inner city gangs. And so we have a civil war between the inner city gangs and the fundamentalists in the middle of the 21st century, where the fundamentalists win, they burn all the coastal cities and turn America into a white supremacist, Christian fundamentalist monarchy, um, which is rural. And Mm -hmm. then what happens is you also have plagues in the middle of the 21st century, where the Muslims colonize Europe, the Chinese um, revert back to doing their thing, and um, so in that worldview, modern civilization isn't sustainable. You go through the mouse utopia, and then the other side of it is a return to a more pre-modern society. And so that's an option. But at the same time, uh, Mad Max is also an option. Okay. Well, just in terms of if we're limiting it to the post-scarcity situation, okay, I do think it's possible to create a post-scarcity situation that is actually a good situation. Because while I do agree that you can't, quote, fix human nature, you know, without very scary uh, gene editing or us all merging into a magical collective consciousness with God or something, I don't think you're going to fix human nature. But I do think you can have a post-scarcity society where as long as the culture and society is based around some other form of status competition... And I do think this is where you can kind of create your sort of Star Trek world, where as long as it's like achieving things, as long as achieving things and do, going out there and, and doing things and you know becoming a starship captain or becoming a settler on another planet, as long as the culture kind of pushes this as the currency, as the thing that people want to brag about, I think you can exist in a post-scarcity society that's not a mouse utopia. And you folks give me evidence of that happening before. Of course not, because we've never been in a post, a post, post, super post scarcity society. The problem is that whenever you reach this degree of wealth, as it falls apart, and so if you look over the course of history, every era believed themselves to be special, and every era is wrong. And you because they at- didn't have the right cultural mix, they didn't have the the right status competitions. That's what Sitch is laying out. This is, but every each society has values, and those values have not forestalled decadence. People forget the values. And look at our society where you must mo, – the, mo, the problem most social engineers realize, forget is most people are idiots and normies. And that's the case in every society ever, and you can't change that. And so let's say you have this wealthy society where the parent generation is like, we need to become starship ship captains. We need to invent stuff. Why doesn't the population just say, I just want to smash and play video games, or I just want to work my job? They will. There will be people that do that, yeah. But then – you need to have a general cultural zeitgeist. Why doesn't that become the over time? Right. Well, well, I think the difference would be when we're talking about like past decadent societies, 
like what I'm talking about in the future is different because essentially I think we're going to technologically create a situation where it's going to basically force a level of post-scarcity on us that just we just have to exist and deal with. Where in these other societies, like it's very easy for the post-scarcity or for the wealth to kind of fall apart if you know once the screws of society kind of come on I mean, we're already people a, become too decadent if i'm an investor in your idea give mm-hmm. me reasons to believe in your investment off just hope and wanting it to be true i'm not i'm just saying from from my perspective how it would le- would look logically if you're starting to have robots building each other robots you know we have replicative technology you have some kind of cheap source of energy so that everyone could just replicate whatever the fuck they want like yeah there's going to be a huge time period there's going to be a time period where it's going to be difficult cuz everyone's going to be like why should I fucking do anything I just want to sit around the holodeck all day fucking holograms and uh, replicating whatever I want but I think that humans from their our nature we do crave right. competition with each other we do crave the ability to climb the status hierarchy with each other and I do think that's going to materialize in some way where we have to adapt our culture our psychology adapts to all this shit and finds a way to still compete with each other you yeah, if you want that, struggle, I mean, you I, can I go remember, like, live on the look, moon or Mars. Give or me something. practical evidence of this working. If I have to make so, it, right? Well, I would say you know it's it's interesting because I remember. I, did you did you ever play WoW? No, I didn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh no, here we go. Well, here's the WoW comparison. You're talking about WoW earlier. It's funny because like you know I noticed in World of Warcraft, you know everyone would sit in town and everyone you know there'd be like all these max level people sitting in town, and the people that would get um, you could get like little mounts, you know, you could ride well, a What's horse. a max level person before you go? Well, too far? we'll just say 60 right now. Let's okay. Level 60. We'll go to vanilla. Wow. Okay. Um, you know, you could, you could get little horses that you could ride around and you get little dragons that you could ride around with, whatever. Um, and it'd be funny because sometimes you'd have like a ma- like a horse or a dragon that would look really fucking cool, but everyone had access to it. So it wasn't special. And so there would be some high-level horse or dragon that was very difficult to get and it looked ugly as shit. But that's the one everyone wanted, even though it looked fucking stupid. Because you'd fly around your little dragon, you'd be like, look at this badass over here. He defeated that, you know, super hard guy to do. And it was the status and the the hardness of acquiring this like digital fucking dragon that looked like shit is what made it valuable. It's what everyone sought after. It's why they'd sit in town and kind of show it off. So I do I, think humans are just driven to have the status competition with each other. You gave me a video game as evidence. That's not really good. Like, well, I'm just talking about how I think human psychology works. I want an actual, whenever I bring up, whenever you ask don't, me. Don't you think the same thing is going on with Trump, though? Trump is going out of his way to become a two-term president because it's the highest status you can achieve in the United States. The point I am making is mm-hmm. that there is no evidence you can bring up for this human nature operating in the way you describe I have provided lots of evidence that human nature works in the opposite way, where if you give people post-scarcity, that it results in decadence. There is no evidence for the opposite claim. Lots of, there is no evidence for the claim that humans can operate in that manner. There is a tremendous amount of evidence that it doesn't, that doesn't But your, Sitch did address your claim because he said, look, in your, in these past situations where it did turn into decadence, the population was so necessary to producing the stuff that created the decadence as soon as they decided they weren't going to work anymore. So let me clarify. But if the robots are off doing it and everyone can engage, let me clarify your terms here. So the society you suggest is one in which a small amount of robots in which robots do the work and most of the public does nothing. Human Mm -hmm. labor is 
superfluous. Okay, so in that kind of society, um, in economics, your wealth and your economic value is determined by what you produce for the system. If you're in a society in which most of the population produces nothing, that means they have no economic value. Right. The elites have no incentive. Well, they, they, their economic value would be in determining what the society creates to satisfy them. They would not have economic value because they don't produce things to get that in return. And so if you have a population where robots do work, what you end up with is the people who have the robots have all the wealth. And then there's a large population that does nothing. This will then result in resentment between the ruling class and the population that does nothing. There's no incentive to not kill them. There's no incentive to not turn them into slaves. There's no incentive to not genetically engineer yourself to be better than them. And so once you've removed the need once the population doesn't work they have no leverage power in the society i think the genetic engineering element is going to happen before that happens though i think that's going to be well, like what you guys the, are the doing sneaker, here the sneaky cell that's going to sneak up on us here you're constructing images for how you want the world to be no, I'm saying, no I'm not really. the work and the truth is we have no idea of but course we're speculating at our ass here <laughs> life is not most social engineers treat life like lego oh i build yeah. this brick i put this brick on top of it i put this brick on top it never of it. works that way I, I life know. instead is like chess life like defines a way no it's not where it's constantly like if you make a plan in a board yeah. game and you're playing a strategy board game your buddy will fuck up your plans you can't play three turns down the road and so Look, we know China's going to try to fuck up the plans, but it's our job to be ahead of that. That's why we're we having this conversation. We don't understand our own nature. And so the argument I'm making is that there is, on a purely evidence-based basis, we have dozens of times over history in which decadence has created, a, it has resulted in a moral collapse and no examples of this occurring. We have lots of societies where, because the, the natural next step from a society of great wealth is people either increase the birth rate or they don't need to push as hard. And then as you increase the birth rate, you push the society back towards a labor falling apart. And so you have, you've seen look this at, cycle play out for all of history and it never results in what you're describing. Look at, look at Elon Musk's goal. Elon Musk's goal is to make humanity a multi-planetary species. It, even if human labor becomes superfluous to Elon Musk, you know, his robot works out and his factories can produce whatever they want. Why would Elon Musk, if, he, if his goal is to see the human race survive and thrive, why would he eliminate the human population? Because you don't need them anymore. I mean, but you yeah, do but need them. You do need them to be a multiplanetary species. Oh, no, no, no. You, you need also, them. Also, you're not dealing with Elon Musk. You are dealing with someone three generations down the road who grows up in a completely different world. Humans have been incredibly. You're cool. evil Elon Musk, which do most people think... would say Elon Musk I mean, is also, evil Elon Musk. But... Elon Musk is part of a small ruling class, and there are, t and maybe they've genetically engineered themselves, maybe not. And there's a large group of people who do nothing. He might not see it as evil to kill off people who do nothing because he would see it as contributing to the greater good. You look over human history. We have been incredibly cruel to other humans. We don't have an incentive to not be cruel. We've enslaved them. We've killed them. We have um, – we like if you look at human history, we have been incredibly cruel to our fellow humans over not – over reasons that are less than this. Sitch, I want to hear what you have to say. Well, no. I mean I just – I think that we have a – 
Well, it's interesting too, to me, because sort of the way in which we conceptualize labor being replaced seems like it might be completely backwards because we all sort of conceptualized that the robots would come and take over all like the manual labor jobs and then all the intellectual labor jobs would be safe. And now it kind of looks like the reverse of that might actually happen. Yeah. Like it's easier to replace intellectual jobs with robots so than it is to, to, to change manual labor jobs. So I just, it's hard. I, I mean, I get what you're saying, but I also believe, and I think you've even said this, there's just, I think there's just too many pieces here for us to paint this, like a very accurate picture of what it's going to look like and how any of this stuff is going to play out very clearly. Well, my, my point is, look, even if human beings are superfluous labor-wise, what yeah. the sci- society is producing is theoretically things that the humans need or desire. So what? they're going to have to move into the selection role, right? I mean, they're still, they but still I play a role a in society. The first is that, um, is that... Do you, do you disagree with what I just said? I do disagree. And let me explain why. Okay. Um, coming from Pennsylvania, I see a lot of the logic you're describing having played out before I was born, where Pennsylvania used to be one of the wealthiest places in the world. And then deindustrialization happened. And what happened was there was a promise of infinite growth where the factories leave, we're going to replace it with coding jobs and reeducate people. None of that ever happened. People said the economy is going to keep growing. None of that ever happened. People said, if we have socialist laws, we'll just keep on producing more stuff. None of that happened. And you look, you see this across the world, Britain, like Britain deindustrialized. It's much easier for things to fall apart than it is for things to improve. Mm-hmm. And don't take improving for granted. And also you look over history. When you hit that degree of wealth, it results in the society growing weaker, which hurts it. Western Europe what was in a place where they were incredibly wealthy and incredibly strong, then they started regulations to control it, and then they went into decline. The West Coast, incredibly wealthy and strong, and then they made regulations to weaken it again. And so human nature shows that when think you have things too good, it, you, you stop having things good. And you look at just intuitively, there's the whole story of um, – families are wealthy for three generations. One family, uh, one parent makes the wealth. He passes it on to the kid. The third kid squanders it. And the thing is, we have thousands of years of records of human nature. And this has always been human nature, where we've always been like this. And once things are too easy, the culture gradually changes to the ease. And so it loses the values and loses the mindset that got them the wealth in the first place without even thinking. Yeah. I mean, I, agree with that i just again i just think that what we're approaching technologically is something we've never dealt with before why don't we just have more degeneracy then we might we might all be the wally future i'm just because saying every I think era history to the wally future. Special, which is why we keep on making we keep on making the same mistakes again and again for thousands of years because every era thinks they're special but then it happens again and we realize that the same lesson it's why i keep on referencing aristotle because Aristotle had all of these concepts 2000 year, 2,500 years ago. This, this, is, this is like, a, this is a society though, that none of those other societies ever encountered a society where human later is completely superfluous to, to, to creating all the things society needs to thrive. The That's just a completely different situation. The proxy for that's the Roman Republic, where instead of robots, you had external slaves. So mm-hmm. the impact on the society itself is the same, where 
you you still have a you have a a, a group that has incredibly high productivity and then you have from an external source of labor. And what happens with where slaves are a pretty close proxy to automation is when you have these external slaves, it balloons inequality. And so that's what would happen with machines and automation. It's what happens now where we've been automating and the effect of automation has been the rich make the rich richer. So but, all of the processes you're describing are happening and having the exact opposite effect. Yeah, but those, but that's not a that's not a post scarcity environment with a slave. We are in a post scarcity environment. Mm, no, I well, okay. It depends on how in terms. Wait, 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 wait. There's a big difference between like yes, people are not going to be starving. That's a very big difference than like we have a magic replicator box that costs nothing to operate. So there's no in, so like everyone could just do whatever they want. Like that's a very different world that would be living in. Yeah, you're almost talking about like a virtual world. Yeah, but we can't reach that because it's physically impossible to reach a world like that. Because look, look it's, it's we're not talking about whether you can or can't. We're saying as a hypothetical, what happens if we do? We wouldn't become complete degenerates. Imagine okay. you have a society. <laughs> no, like because people are generally better at understanding giant abstract concepts on a personal level rather mm -hmm. than a more complex one where imagine you give a village of people infinite money they can spend it whatever they want and they don't have to work a day in their life what happens to that village of people over four generations they stop doing any work they lie on the couch all day they don't accomplish anything they lose any sense of fairness because they all or any sense of, of need to cooperation and humility because mm -hmm. they use their wealth to all live in mansions independently of each other. And yeah. so look at a village of 60 people, give them those conclusions. That's the society. The problem with the society is it's infinitely more complicated. So as all those things happen, they still have to fight off barbarians. They still have to, um, they still have to deal with political issues between them, et cetera. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all that, but I also agree with what you said earlier, which is that you know you were saying you think that maybe Generation Alpha, Generation Beta is going to kind of do a, a reverse bounce back, which seems to be something that happens pretty frequently, where they're going to like, okay, we're going to re kind of invigorate religion, or we're going to kind of yeah. go against sort of the ideology of our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation. And I do think that, like, even in your hypothetical, that will happen even if the material conditions stay the same, even if you keep giving the village infinite money, like, yeah, at first it's going to be really fucked, like, but there is going to be that bounce back where people are going to figure out how the fuck to deal with that shit. I, the reason, I mean, the thing is the process you all are describing is literally happening now. Yeah. Because yeah, we, had a, we, we had the same trend you're describing of reaching post-scarcity. It's to a lesser extent. It resulted in degeneracy and society falling apart. And now Gen Z men are trying to push to become hard again, where right. look at like the culture among at least a certain subgroup of Gen Z men, it's about lifting weights. It's about um, responsibility. It's about making money. It's about bravery. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's, I mean, if you look at what Gen Z men talk about, the worst insults are soy or cuck. Right. That's really different from what it would be 20 years ago. Yeah. But it's that's exactly right. But that's what I'm talking so about. Your process you're describing that's society is pressuring right? you to get the off the couch and do something. The only reason it's happening is that life as a Gen Z man sucks. And so life got hard enough. What the process you are describing has already happened, where we reached what I would call a post-scarcity society. I know you guys wouldn't agree. And then what happened was that 
it, things got easy, we started to have decadence. And now the Gen Z men are trying to react against it. And, and, um, but that's my argument. So I guess I'm confused. But the thing because is, I'm like, like, yeah, you're right. Like you could say like the life for Gen Z men sucks. It doesn't suck necessarily on like a scarcity level. Like they're not going to die of starvation. It sucks on a psychological, emotional level. You need to right? change social structures on a regular basis for yeah. have them be healthy. And there's right. no incentive to change them without real pain. Where for right. example, I talk about the, the, I, I, the video I just made, I say the public school system is fundamentally broken in America, but we would never think to change the public school system unless it was the public school system wasn't completely broken and corrupt where yes. it is. Yes. And so you have to hit this threshold of pain to be able to restart and look over the historic cycles. Every 250 years, you hit that threshold of pain and that's what forces people to change and restart the system. People won't restart the system unless you hit that pain. No, I mean, I agree completely. It's just that like when you restart, you know, you're not starting again from zero. You know, you're restarting no, which is from... Prog- I, I don't not believe in progress. Right, it's, right, right, right. It's so good. like, like the Gen uh-huh. Z people, like they're going to be like, they're going to create a new way, presumably, or even maybe the generation after them will create a new way to find meaning and community and connection in this environment. And I'm saying that going forward, when you have the robots and the replicators, the exact same process is going to occur. There's going to be a generation of decadence, and then the next generation or the next next generation is going to is going to be like this. is sucks. We're all emotionally detached. We don't have meaning in our life, and they're going to find a new way forward. But that's not how human nature works. What will happen is that there will eventually be. You guys are treating the robots as a purely positive having. A removal of labor is a purely positive force in the world, but every single force has negatives. And so let and so, for example, in our society, we solved the issue of physical hunger. We solved the issue of real disease. We've solved the issue of um of uh we we none of us have had to wage a bloody war. These were all issues that took over our ancestors' lives. What happened when we took those issues out is that new ones that we never had to deal with or new ones that were in the background before showed up. Mm-hmm. We had horrifying mental health issues. Right. The birth rate collapsed. The um, We have obesity. And so the thing with the game of the world is that it always gives you new problems, even if you solve something. And think of the monkeys that took the, the friggin' the monkeys that broke through to consciousness where they understand, because there was a period around 60,000 years ago where humans got the ability to think about abstract thoughts. I'm sure they thought they had broken through the next level, but the reality is that as humans got more and more advanced, they just, uh, they had new problems. Right. And so that's the nature of the cosmos. So, yeah, I'm um, not, I, I feel like you're just agreeing with us. I'm not sure where the, the my, I'm not sure what's going on. I don't on. think you could have a post-scarcity society Yeah. because I, I, this is such a based thing to say. I think most people are too stupid and retarded for it. It's too stupid and lazy for it. Where um, the thing is in a post-scarcity, and this is actually what happened, where in our post-scarcity society, we ended up very unequal because a small part of the population decided to keep going forward. Well, a lot of people decided to just lie on the couch and not try. So you end up with an unequal society where a small amount of people get more and more of the advantages and then a large part of the population doesn't do anything. And so I think we could have a post-scarcity society if we evolved ourselves more. 
where every, if we did genetic engineering or whatever, where you're in a society where the average person works because they want to, and they help the society as they want to, um, then you could have it. But as of now, most of the public won't do that. They're just going to free ride, which means it'll fall apart. And so it's like, it's Christian. You, you can't free ride in this society though. Why? Because it's physically impossible. As I said, or Christianity says, the reason heaven is heaven is because it's filled with the kind of people who would go to heaven. That's what this post-scarcity society would be. You can only have a post-scarcity society if it's only filled with good people. Well, I don't know, maybe we're getting hung up on post-scarcity because, like, I, I don't know, I feel like we're talking past I would each say other. That we are really well, let me just say, because I, I think we're agreeing on the same concept. Because I would say, like, what you were just saying, yeah, like, more money, more problems. The more advanced that we become yeah. a society, the more different problems sort of present themselves. Like, humans are never going to be, I agree, humans are never going to, and I said this in the beginning, without, like, editing our DNA to make ourselves, like, feel happy all the time or without, you know, becoming part of the Godhead. Like, we're, all, like, you can't, you're not going to fix human nature. People are going to, going yeah. to feel that they need to strive to accomplish something. They're always going to feel the void in their life and all but this stuff. I am you know, I was just saying that, like, if you look at, like, the, you know, to use a fantasy example to look at Star Trek, for example, like, yeah, they, you know, they've cured hunger and poverty and war, but, you know, they had to fight fucking aliens or, you know, there's like some crazy fucking diseases or the settlers on some planet and the conditions suck. Like, there's all sorts of crazy shit that's still going on. There's all these problems that they have to deal with. With human nature as it exists, we would throw away a post-scarcity society if we got it, where we would, because if you look over history, once societies get wealthy, they suddenly start regulating and destroying the factors that make them wealthy right. in the first place. Yeah, and smash all the toy, the robots. A hundred yeah. different ways. Right. And so, um, and I mean, I, I there's a there's a, a based thing I've heard, or this leads me to another point I was thinking of, but with human nature as it exists, we would throw away a post-scarcity society, which is what we're doing on a smaller scale now. But if you genetically engineered humans to be angels, they could maintain a post-scarcity society, but we wouldn't be humans anymore. Sure. The, th the thing that's interesting for me, though, and you're kind of really not engaging in it, you're kind of just dodging a bit here because you keep going back to, which isn't a bad thing. I don't mean that as an insult. Like, I'm just, you keep going to this thing where, that what you're saying is impossible. What you're saying is impossible. What you're saying is impossible. But, but look, I maybe it is impossible. I'm just thinking, what would an economy look like where human labor was completely superfluous? And let's think about that. I've like, already said that. It's. I mean, it's. We have proxies for this, where the economics mm. of what you're describing are the same as having a giant slave a slave economy, so the citizen class doesn't do any work. Mm -hmm. And so the effect of that is. Ancient Athens was kind of like that, where the so, reason. So you're saying there still would be income inequality. You're saying oh, that no, there, every single. So, so there would be some people that would be even though we had the ability to feed and massively. house these people, even though we had the ability to feed and house these people yeah. with no effort at all, there would still be roving bands of homeless people because why? Oh yeah, it would massively increase income. The situation you're describing, where robots do all the work, would massively increase income inequality. Why? Because it's two reasons. The first of all is that when you're in a when you're in a society with that much wealth, it means a large part of the population has no incentive to try. People who do try have genetic or personal proclivities towards it, and so they accrue all the benefits. And so it's I see I see this, I see this with the internet, where for most people they use the internet and they just use it to to waste time. 
Some people have used the internet to be able to basically improve their lives, but it's, it's power law distributed where most people, the internet's a time waste for them. And for some, it's massively increased their productivity. The second reason is that someone has to own the robots and you can't have state owned robots because we tried that with communism and it doesn't work. And it, because it's tragedy of the common stuff. And if so, someone has to own the robots, um, you will end up with a situation where, um, you have psi, what's the term, where the larger your institution, the cheaper it is to make stuff, you'll have, you'll mm -hmm. end up with large amounts of inequality because some people will own the robots. They'll have all the productivity. The economies of scale, is that what you're and talking about? You'll end about? up with a comedy of scale issue where yeah. some people will own the robots and then they will be able to manage they will have all the productivity and all the economic value and the rest of the population is completely useless. And they might give the rest of the population basic income and keep them quiet or UBI, but the rest of the population doesn't. Okay. They, they give them basic income to, to keep them quiet. This then is the, what? this is the late Roman Republic. You have a small wealthy class that owns all the slaves and then they give the rest of the citizens welfare to keep them quiet. It's bread mm -hmm. and circuses. That's a fucking dystopia. But will that then, will those people who are on UBI will some of them think, look, I want to go live on Mars and embark on a very difficult, perilous journey culture that incentivizes them to do anything because we forget culture is plastic and or culture is fluid and it changes from society to society. So if you have a society where the economic incentive structure is to sit around waiting for, um, waiting for the government check is that it will gradually form a culture, or not very gradually, it'll probably happen pretty quickly. It'll form a culture of docility and helplessness and envy against the rest of society. So all everyone who grew up in that culture would be raised to think that they would never amount to anything, and they should just shut up and get their dole and smoke weed. Well, I think before the robots take over, before the replicators come, yeah. even before the gene editing comes, I do think that we're going to have the the brain chips <laughs> coming out where you're going to, I mean, it's going to be very, the elites are going to control us at first, but it's going to obviously get cheaper and go down the masses where people are going to control their emotional state. One of the things to, is like that, punching a little phone, whether they feel motivated or whether they feel lazy. One of the things is that we're incredibly bad at predicting technological progress. Where if you look yeah. at the last 200 years, the <laughs> that's true. The I mean, things that we fair, predict we will discover, we almost never do. And the things that we do discover yeah. are things that you can never think of. Mm -hmm. Like in the 60s, everyone thought, we'll have colonies on Mars, we'll have pet robots. And then you end up with the computer revolution and the iPhone. Right. Did you see this article? The first, first NASA one-year Mars mission simulation reached 100 days. They put four people in a 1700 square foot habitat they're supposed to stay in there together for a year to simulate a mission to mars i sent you the article such okay look we're 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 going to mars man we're gonna live on mars we're gonna have know, people man. on mars like, it sounds we're NASA, getting ready for it nasa could do that who these people have already done a hundred days the governments do stuff like this to keep the voters in line. So oh my God. No. <laughs> you don't think, look, uh, you, I'm sure you follow Elon Musk. Elon the Musk government is can't do shit. 
I mean, the government, the government doesn't pave the roads. They're not going to go to Mars. It's private. Look, Elon Musk is the one that wants to go to Mars. He's the one that's posting all these Elon Starship rocket. Yeah, look, he's he's planning on doing it. Yeah, it's. I mean, the projects that any generation thinks they'll do, or they won't probably won't happen, and the things that do happen are things that no one thinks about. I just like, look. I can, um, it's fascinating to me because you are. It's every single argument. And maybe it's just like a personality type, but every single argument that you're making is devoted to why this will never happen. It's because the statistical chances that anything you predict happening is pretty low. That's even that's an argument against the like, but what again. If it's the correct argument. I, if I'm using this argument again and again, what I, if it's, it's the wrong argument? Do you believe though? in simulation theory? Your personality. Adam, your personality makes you want to look for interesting things that could happen. And look totally, totally. That is totally. true. And is true. so you are effectively asking me the same question in 50 different ways. I know. I'm trying to get you. When well, you're giving the same answer. In 50 <laughs> doom, doom, doom. This is, this is, this is fun though. So yeah. But you, you don't believe in simulation theory, right? Uh, I don't know why I would. There's like no evidence for it. Okay. Well, because I mean, people just say like, well, mathematically, it's more likely. People people just say shit. Like people make yeah. stuff up. Like I okay. think like people talk about like the AI God in the future that will destroy us. And mm -hmm. it's people just need hobbies, I think. Like okay. you don't believe in the Matrix coming to destroy the Terminators coming to destroy us either? No. Like okay. why would I? <laughs> okay. People are going to destroy us. We're going to destroy ourselves, right? People are bored, so they make crap up. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, we've um, we've kept you like I think an hour longer than you plan on. My uh, my burrito is going to come here in ten minutes, so, so um, okay. I will keep going. I got to log off. I'm gonna. gonna That's cool. Pass hope, out on the couch. It was a pleasure chatting with all of you. Yeah, thanks. I hope we haven't tortured you too much, man. <laughs> this, was a, this was a lot of fun. Thank you. Okay. Cool. Thanks for coming. Bye. Okay. Wow. Okay. Let me read the supers. I'll read the 20s first and then I'll start over. Bob and Go for $20 says, Guess what? James Lindsay finally got to the bottom of runaway progressivism. He ripped off its Hegelian mask and found Catholic distributism. It was the conservatives all along, boys. Scooby Doo ending. A -woo -woo. Well, listen, whatever you do, don't tell distributors that he'll be very upset. Okay. Is did he become a Catholic distributist? Is that what's going on? I don't know. Isn't that why that's his name? That's I don't. Does his name refer to something else? James Lindsay changed his name to Catholic distributism. No, what the fuck? No, Dave. Oh, oh okay. It turned out Dave to be the, the distributors. I said don't. Okay. I said no one tell distributors this. Yeah. Oh, okay, I got right. you. He was, uh, so I don't know if you know this. Um, it's kind of funny. Uh, for some reason, uh, our good friend Quack has decided to make another video about us reacting to his Tomboy Abs video from like two years ago. When did this happen? Today. Oh, wow. Today. And, uh, and Distributus, I guess he's very upset about our last conversation where I called him out for being hyper evasive and never answering any questions. And so he was trying to run a victory lap on, me on Twitter. And I asked him, because I'm like, listen, I don't follow Quack anymore. I don't follow Academic Age anymore. 
does he still like pretend is he still mask on about like wanting to like get rid of all the Jews or is he like open about it now? Because you know, people are more open about their anti Semitism. This now. is a perfect opportunity for him to come clean. Maybe right. he can get his job back at Harvard. There you know what? That's a great point. I mean, listen, it's like, listen, I just thought, you know, now that it's acceptable at Harvard, he could get his job back. That's a it's a great tweet right there. I'll tweet that out. Um but so <laughs> you're stealing my tweet. I'm gonna steal that's a good joke. Um, but so anyway, so I tweeted at Dave, like right before the stream started, so I haven't responded back, but he, he got very triggered by that. And is now all him and all the academic agent fans are, are mad at me because they all play this game where they pretend like he's not like super against the Jews. You know, we all have to play pretend that he actually doesn't hate Jewish people. <laughs> so, right. You know, yeah. It's very funny, but that's one of their favorite games. It is. We're not like, but does he, I mean, listen. Does he even have to pretend? Does he even have to play the game anymore? I feel like it's called hide the JQ. <laughs> I, I feel like people are a lot more open with their JQ ishness now, right? Oh, yeah. 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 So, you know. Uh, JMac for $20 says wielding Ashbringer atop the Zulian Swift Tiger, massive EPN getting all the Goldshire chicks. True. True, true, true. Sounds yeah. Fun. I mean, I do, I do think. I guess, I don't know. I guess there's some kind of breakdown of communication because I do think, I mean, I agree with the general, the general thesis that, you know, we'll create, we are creating continually societies that produce uh, decadence, but then out of the decadence, you know, we figure out a way, a next generation figures out a way to find meaning and to, to, to move forward. And yeah, sometimes that way is to smash all the robots, smash all the machines. But it seems like if we look back at human history, that's not usually what happens. We don't break everything down and start from zero again. We just keep going forward. We find a way to move forward with our new technologies and our new society by kind of like the culture adapting around it. So there is a we'll... really good book by Jared, uh, Jaron Lennar mm -hmm. called who owns the future where he, he basically predicts that this problem of human labor will eventually reach right. ahead and postulates a way around it economically right which is i mean his book is fascinating he's such a like a lsd pothead <laughs> so so parts of the book drift off into just <laughs> it's unreadable but other parts of it are just pure genius right um mark Van's revenge for 20 dollars. thank you so, Sitch and Adam, have you guys ever met multi-generational welfare families or people? I've met quite a few now during my time in New Haven. They have free food, shelter, healthcare, and they still get up to dumb crap, crimes, drugs, et cetera. Sure. But it's yeah. also, you know, they, I guess because like there's a culture that exists that perpetuates that mentality. Um, and what we're talking about is that there would have to be a cultural shift that adapts when everyone basically is in that situation there's going to have to be a cultural shift where people are still going to have to find meaning even though they have all those you know things taken care of for them we will actually have the resources though to create such as drug prison where we can just throw there them in drug go. prison right there you go well and as i mean and i was being you know so I guess we'll find out. And I mean, I agree that we don't know the direction technology is going to go. I mean, we never know because all of our predictions have been wrong. But I, you know, I do, you know, it was going to come first. Are we going to have robots do all our jobs? Are we going to have the brain chip in our brain that controls our moods? I don't fucking know what's going to come first, but we'll find out together.
all you people out there. J-Mac has a super chat that I think we missed or something. J-Mac for five dollars says, Sid, don't forget my Sid super chat. Jokes aside, I'm actually interested in your take on it. Oh, that's right, because I was going to read it and I got distracted. J-Mac, our circuit five for $20 says, now that the guest is gone, I can derail Sitch. Well, that's true. Now that the guest is double guests are gone. Have you seen the next chapter in the Final Fantasy VII remake might be removing Sid's cigarette? What's next? They take out the spousal abuse? This is what's wrong with society. Look, you can't even beat your wife in a video game now. What the hell? So that's interesting. So, well, Sid is weird. In Final Fantasy VII, Sid, if you've never played it, Sid is like a, a, a captain who's like, he wants to go to space. He wants to be the first man in space. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, and and his so wife he, just he looks, won't let him. She keeps getting in the way. Well, he doesn't have a wife. It's cut, like the relationship in the first game is never really clearly spelled out. He has an assistant who's female who seems like she's kind of in love with him. And it's not really clear. At least to me, it wasn't really clear whether they were. I mean, they didn't seem to be married. Um, but he did treat her like shit. Oh but he treats her like shit for a very specific reason, we find out. Oh, wow. And it's because basically he's on, they're going to do like the very first mission to space. And she thinks that there's some kind of problem that was never fixed. So she's in like a room, which once the rocket goes off, it will like melt her. But and she's like, oh, I have to like fix the calculation before you go into space. And she's like, oh, I'll just sacrifice my life so they can live my dream. And he refuses to do that. He can't, he couldn't like live with her dying. So he aborts the rocket launch. But by aborting the rocket launch, just the way technology works, like the rocket kind of like half takes off, but then like falls back into the silo and then like, you know, falls over. And because of that, the company that kind of rules the world in, in Final Fantasy VII uh, d- abandons the project essentially. So he lost his dream forever of like going to space because of her actions. Um, So that's why he kind of treats her like shit. And then, but later you turn out, they kind of fix the spaceship and turns out she was correct anyway. So it was all fucked up. So, um, so she saved his life. Yeah, she did save his life and he saved her life and it would be interesting. Beautiful. It'd be interesting to see how they kind of in a future and a sequel of Final Fantasy seven, how they kind of reconnect after that. Um, I think they should leave that. I mean, that'd be stupid if they took that element out of the game because that's an interesting character element dynamic between them that, you know, that's what makes these characters interesting is the dynamic is those kind of like weird dynamics where someone seems like, oh, why is this guy, you know, treating her like shit? And why is she, why is she putting up with him treating her like shit? And it's like, oh, there's like this really complicated backstory between them where she feels, she feels guilty, you know? Um, But the smoking thing, I think the smoking thing is stupid. You know, I get in the, it makes sense to me in like the nineties in the nineties, there was like a big push to like get rid of smoking. And that made sense because smoking was so pervasive in our society, at least in America. It was like soup, like every, like if you ever watch like an old movie from like the fifties, every fucking person is smoking. It's like insane. You know, like there'll be a scene in a hospital and there's like a guy dying on a bed. The doctor's smoking in the room, like right next to the fucking dying guy. <laughs> You're like, holy shit. So like, I get that there was like a big push, you know, in the 80s and 90s to sort of like try to eliminate smoking from things because it was just so pervasive. Everyone's addicted to it. And you're like, okay, I get it. 
but we don't really live in that world now. Like, yeah, people vape and shit, fine. But I don't think we really live in this world where we're like smoking is this thing that everyone's so fucking addicted to that we have to culturally engineer people to stop it. So to me, I mean, it is silly if they get rid of, you know, Sid, Sid, the character, he looked kind of like the stereotypical, like, you know, 1920s pilot guy, you know, with like the leather jacket and the goggles and he had the big, you know, he had, he had kind of like the FDR uh, cigarette holder thing in his mouth. And I think oh, it's, I think it cool. would, yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's, so he had like, I mean, he only had it for the visual aesthetic reason. It was never really came up except he had one attack where he would use it to light dynamite. But like beyond that, it never really like never had anything to do with like the game, the story or anything. But and I think it, anything, it makes sense with the visual aesthetic. And I think it'd be very silly to get rid of it. It would, to me, be like a, a silly little incident of political correctness to get rid of it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be like super complaining about it. I don't. I don't really care one or the other. But it would just be silly. Is it yeah. political correctness, or is it because they don't want kids to start smoking again? I mean, yes, I guess. I mean, they're trying to get vape the vapors to knock it off. Right. Right. And maybe that's the thought process. It is political correctness. It's a different form. It's not like a cultural Marxism political correctness, but it is a form of political correctness because it's like, oh, we don't want the kids to smoke. Um, so, I mean, I would say it's lame, but, you know, whatever. Who cares? It's not that big a deal. I mean, I never played, and I should, I never played the Final Fantasy VII remake, but I should. I'm curious because whenever I see clips of it, it feels like the the story of the game is so like off of what the original Final Fantasy VII is. So I guess my expectations for the story are already like very low. Because I talked about the other day about how they've already butchered Cloud's character to not be what it is. Cloud, they've for some reason, they've written Cloud to be Squall from Final Fantasy VIII. And I don't know why that happened. It happened in Kingdom Hearts, the first Kingdom Hearts. It's super weird. It's almost like they got the models switched up. In Kingdom Hearts 1, Squall acts the way, or yeah, Squall acts the way Cloud would should act, and Cloud acts the way Squall should act. It's really fucking weird. It happens in Kingdom Hearts 1, and then forever after that, it's that personality change has been replicated. So it seems like in Final Fantasy VII Remake that they kind of took the wrong version of Cloud, where he's like this weird, I'm so soft spoken, and all these girls are throwing themselves at me, and I don't, and I'm like the anime protagonist i don't know what to do with all these hot girls throwing themselves at me you know oh what do i do and i'm just like that's not cloud that, that was never the original cloud character from the game so sad everything has to change um yeah well i mean i don't know i don't know i don't know squall squall is the main character of final fantasy 8 Although I, in Kingdom Hearts, he's called Leon. I know they changed the name for some reason, but yeah, whatever. Uh, he's Movie Cloud. Yeah, the movie the movie did the same thing. So, But I'll see. I'll play it. I still should play it just to see. Cloud was... I mean, it's... Like, people forget in the original Final Fantasy VII, like, the, the first thing Cloud does, basically, after he meets Eris... He like crashes through. Well, he meets her like for a second, but like he actually meets her. He crashes through the roof, and he kind of saves her from from Shinra. Like literally, one of the first things he does is tease her and then ask her out on a date. So he's not like this moody, kind of like beta 
like aloof guy that is that he's always portrayed in in like other media so sounds like a player right yes nova i know what your existence there you go sammy says i endorse cloud having great dance moves there i mean that's all that matters right you want to see cloud in in drag you know dancing like a chick with a gay man right yeah this what's final fantasy 7 cloud is like he's an arrogant cocky guy and it just seems like that all fucking disappeared after Final Fantasy VII. It's so weird. Cool. Okay. Cool. Okay, let me read. Um, J-Mac for $20 says, Smoking is definitely a part of Sid's aesthetic. He's a grizzled, foul-mouthed old-timer who's stuck in the past. I mean, that's a great point, too, that that is part of why his aesthetic is that 1920s pilot is because he's supposed to be a person who's literally stuck in the past. And he is, I mean, because he's stuck in wanting to, even though in the game, he's really not that old, but you know, all the ages in Final Fantasy seven make no fucking sense. Everyone should be way older than they are, but you know, yeah, that he, you know, he's stuck in the past. That's a good point. And the smoking reflects that. So yeah, it, it would be a sacrificing art um, in a sake of a, a little character flair for some political correct bullshit. So uh, is this part of safetyism culture where they're yes, turning 100%. all these characters into yeah. bland vanilla characters because, oh my God, we don't want to have people rough. influenced by rough and tumble badasses. Well, it is like the smoking thing I, with, with clouds shift. I don't, I don't think it is. I could definitely see someone putting it through that lens. I don't think it is that just because the change happened like 15 years ago before woke stuff really happened and i'm not really sure why that change occurred okay it's like a weird fucking thing that just happened so maybe it was a creative decision but there are like a lot of characters that are just like a, having an interesting character these days seems difficult sure i mean and obviously you know they made tifa's breasts smaller and you know her outfit less skimpy what yeah i know i know um, I mean, they're so big, but you know, they're not in, in the original game. They were like ridiculous. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I was, I'm fine with that. Like in the original game, you know, she's like, she's like basically like Jessica rabbit levels of like proportional, not making sense. And she's wearing a mini, like a character who's supposed to be like doing flip kicks and shit is wearing a, like a mini skirt. Like I get it. That doesn't make sense. You have to change your outfit a little bit. So, okay. That's a, it's fine. I mean, I'm fine with that. Right. So. It kind of makes sense. No, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. So there's always gonna be a little changes, but yeah, no, I think her I think the way they changed the way her look is for the remake is fine. I don't I don't have a problem with it. But uh J Mac for twenty dollars, thank you. Says after two playthroughs, I can honestly say I absolutely hate the Final Fantasy VII remake. The only redeeming part is the music and the added depth with Jesse, Biggs, and Wedge. Well there you go. I'll have to play it and check it out myself. So uh, we'll see. Because, I mean, that was my feeling. That's part of why I never, like, when it was coming out, I was super motivated, super hyped to play it. And then when it came out and I saw people talking about it, I'm like, oh. And I saw clips of it. I'm like, wait, what? This doesn't look, this doesn't look right. Like, one of my favorite things, before we go off on the Final Fantasy VII rant, one of my favorite things in Final Fantasy VII is, um, so if you never played it, like you've probably I don't know if you've probably never seen this, Adam. One of the most iconic scenes in like all video games for people my age 
was the scene of Sephiroth, um, you know, walking through fire and like burning down clouds, you know, hometown when he was younger. And um, so there's kind of like this cool thing in Final Fantasy VII because Final Fantasy VII original is a lot of it. It's kind of like Watchmen in that it's a critique of the genre that it is. It's really weird. Final Fantasy VII is a genre critique of that kind of RPG, but for a lot of people, it was the very first RPG they ever played, and they still liked Ooh, it. Interesting. So it has like a weird effect on. It's kind of like when people point to Watchmen as their favorite comic, and they've never really read other comics, and it's like, well, your favorite comic is a genre critique of comics. It's interesting that that seems to happen a lot. Um, right. You think the critique is the norm. Right. Right. And so. There's an interesting thing in um, in Final Fantasy VII where the bad guy, Sephiroth, is like hyped up to be like, oh my god, he has this super deep backstory with Cloud, the main character. Like, he burned Cloud's village down and killed his parents and killed everyone in his town. And like, you know, Cloud had this like epic sword fight with Sephiroth and, you know, like, oh my god. And so, like, it's like hype the shit. So when they finally meet for the first time, you're expecting this like cloud, Sephiroth, like we meet again, right? You're expecting the classic, you know, sort of villain hero thing. But that's not what happens. It's literally the scene from fucking Avengers. Remember where like, I forget who it is, if it's, it's Thor or someone, or someone's like, you took everything from me. And Thanos is like, I don't even know who the fuck you are. <laughs> <laughs> like that's what happens that that first happens in final fantasy 7 cloud meets sethroth and he's like sethroth we meet again and sethroth looks at him and he's like who the fuck are you <laughs> like he doesn't even know who the fuck cloud is and you're like wait what and that's like the first hint that like all of the backstory that you think is real is not real because he doesn't know who the fuck cloud is he's like i don't know who the fuck you are just some random dude and so this is just a great moment in the game and then in the remake that's all changed because it's like in the remake like Sethroth keeps showing up every 10 seconds and he's like whispering to Cloud and he's like obsessed with Cloud and you're like, what the fuck is going on here? This is just so different. It's like they missed the whole point, I thought, of like the genre critique of the original game. It's It seems kind of like Red Letter Media, when they had their Star Wars reviews, they had a very interesting point where they talk about how in the original Star Wars, Darth Vader was just like a like a guy in a suit who was like a bad guy. Who was scary right right he was just some like dude who like smashed it up and he choked people and then in the later movies he's kind of given this extra depth of being luke skywalker's father um, right and that kind of adds an extra layer of depth to his character it makes his character interesting and then you, you know you see that he needs the suit to survive and that kind of makes it so there's all these little elements that make his character like interesting but but the part of the problem with the prequels is it's like because Darth Vader was so popular as a character in like collect in like the mind of people that like Star Wars, like George Lucas allowed the popularity of the character affect the character's place in the universe. So no longer was Anakin just a guy who got seduced to the dark side, who was Luke Skywalker's father. No, like he has to be the fucking chosen one. You know, he's the chosen one that's supposed to bring balance to force and the whole fucking story and the whole world of Star Wars has to revolve around him. Which was and a it's big like, fucking mistake. And it was a big fucking mistake as opposed to just being a guy who got seduced by the dark side. And it's like the, the fandom and the love of a character influences the creators and then it fucks up the story. Like, a, like the, I think the best example of that besides Anakin is 
Jack Sparrow. And I, I even call this Jack Sparrow syndrome, which is that you watch the first parts of the Caribbean. Johnny Depp is Jack Sparrow. Fucking awesome, right? Great character. Everyone loves that character, right? Mm-hmm. But he's yeah, not the course. main character. He's not the main character. Who's the no, main the, character? The boring one. Yes, Will Turner, the very boring, uh, you know, Orlando Bloom, who's not a great actor, is the main character, yeah. right? But Jack Sparrow's character only works because he's not the main character. Right. Just, and so, but the popularity of Jack Sparrow, in fact, everyone loved his character, that made it so then the, the subsequent movies, his they character- had to make him more of the main character. Became more and more of the main yeah. character. And it and that made the movies get worse and worse and worse because his character doesn't work. The main character has to go on a journey, have an arc, and do all this other shit. You don't want any of that fucking shit for Jack Sparrow. You just want Jack Sparrow to be the, you know, the trickster rogue. You don't want him to do the main character shit. You want him to kind of be a secondary protagonist that's also an antagonist at the same time. You're not really sure whose side he's on character. And so, yeah, so you just have to be aware, you have to be cautious to not let the popularity of a character seep into the sequels, and I feel like that's basically what happened with Cloud and Sephiroth, is that those characters were so popular and iconic that they've kind of, the popularity has seeped into the future uh, versions of the game. So Sad. J-Mac for $20 says, Cloud Shift is 100% Tetsuya Nomura's doing. The guy is like a 50-year-old emo kid. Well, there you go. Maybe that, maybe it was just a very bad creative decision, so... Oh my God, Sammy G, what a terrible take. She said, I like all the Pirates movie equally. That's the worst thing I've ever heard. (laughs) I don't even, how is that possible? That's the worst take ever. Don't say that that's a base Stoney. That's a terrible take. The first Pirates is a great movie, okay? And then each one just gets worse and worse and worse after that, right? It's been a that, while since I saw Pirates, any of the Pirates, so. The first one is just an objectively good movie. Like, it's great. First one's great. And then second one's kind of like, oh, this is good-ish, not as good as the first one. Third one's kind of like, eh, what's going on here? And the fourth one's like, oh, God. And the fifth one's like, no. Like, they just get worse and worse and worse. There's a fifth one? Wow. I think there's a fifth one. I usually cut my losses around three. Yeah, there's a fifth one. There's definitely a fifth one. When you're going into four and five territory? Right. Like it all just becomes a blur. You're like, what? What? <laughs> Why know, do they I do know. that? It's you know, it is what it is. Because it's because the idea doesn't doesn't you can't do the idea for five. It just what? Work. You think the second pirates is the best? No, that is not true. The first one is easily the best. A fifthology? <laughs> what? A fifthology? A fifthology. Yeah. The same thing happened to the Far Cry series. Far Cry 3, super popular. The bad guy gets all of the attention. And so the subsequent Far Cry series are all about the bad guy. And they totally fucked up. That's why all like it's so weird to me. Far Cry 3 is so fucking good. That the story in that is so great. Cause it's because it's another genre critique that relies on the dynamic between the main character and the antagonist. But only people remember the antagonist because he's like the charismatic jokester character. They they forget the main character who's the one driving the story. And so then the subsequent Far Cry games, they literally make the protagonist silent. And it's like, 
fucking retarded. It completely it loses everything that made Far Cry 3 good. That sucks. Yep. Why would they do that? Because they're stupid. Right. Stupidity is a huge problem. Far Cry 3 would make a fantastic movie. I'm kind of shocked that that hasn't made a movie. It's a, it's like about a bunch of rich, uh, spoiled white kids that get uh, captured by pirates. I forget, some fucking place, some little island place. They're like on their like MTV, uh, you know, a dream vacation they get captured by pirates and the main character it's kind of funny like right in the beginning of the game this is the subversion right in the beginning of the game there's two characters there's like the guy who was like i was a special forces military guy and then there's, there's his youngest brother who's just like some loser who works in like the film industry in southern california or something as an intern mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're like in the normal game you're going to be the special forces guy who's going to use his special forces to like save his family. But instead he dies like immediately and you're playing his like shitty brother. And it's about the brother like teaming up with a rebel faction on the islands, doing a bunch of drugs and basically becoming like a fucking um, serial killer to save his family. And it kind of presents this interesting choice though. The game, the end of the fire Cry three is awful. They completely ruin it, but it presents an interesting choice or idea that like, he he's like the classic millennial generation z person who he didn't have meaning in his life and through like murder and being part of a rebel army he's found meaning and like something important in his life he's actually like really good at killing people and so he's kind of posed with this interesting moral question of like do i go back to the united states of america do i go back to that life try to get a job in an office somewhere or do i stay here on this island you know, and still try to like continue forward as this like serial, you know, brutal, you know, murderer of people. You anyway. gotta go with the killing. I mean, what are you yeah. gonna do? But even you that's kind of people. That's right. a small price to pay, right? For your well, passion. he's killing bad people, so they deserve it. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, guilty people. Right. Though even that would have been kind of the it's it's interesting because in my head canon both options are the wrong option because because if he stay on the island, the people were only using him the rebel people were only using him they didn't actually like him, so he wouldn't really actually find true happiness there. Um, he would just basically become a thug of the new regime when they took power, and then if he goes back to America, you know he's he could never re he'd be kind of like a like a guy who was in war trying to like get back into modern society he could never really fit back in properly. Because he'd been so like PTSD'd out. So, yeah, we've anyway. all been there. Right. Okay. Thoss Apprentice for $5 says, quickly, I don't have much time. CT hates getting gifts. She's threatened to decline anything I get her. What do I give her to troll that she can't? What, that she can't return? Um, I don't know. Adam, do you have an, do you have an, an idea for this? A gift for CT? That she can't return. Yeah. That she can't return. Right. Maybe a gallon of milk. <laughs> I mean, the, that's the can't return thing. Because it is, expires? Yeah, so. yeah. I think it has to be something over the internet. So. Uh, oh, I mean, look, there's apps and stuff. Right. Just get your, they, they don't deliver a gallon of milk with a, one of those food apps. There you go. Look, I've never used one of those food apps, but I don't. I've, yeah, there you go. I don't think Thoth knows her address, so uh, that. But 
Oh, okay. I don't know. Get her a Steam game, Thoth. Okay. Is that the thing to do? A Steam I game? I guess so. I guess But those so. can be returned, though. Listen, she's going to do what she's going to do, okay? You just, have to, you just have to deal with it. Uh, Goro Sarah for 20 months. Thanks so much. Says, when did the pro-life movement get hijacked by Christian fundamentalists? I just want to make hoes mad, not make them birth potatoes. <laughs> was the pro-life movement always hijacked? Was there a pro... Was there... I don't know the answer to that question. Was there a big pro-life movement before the Christian fundamentalists made it a big movement? I don't know. It's always been a Christian movement in my entire life, so... Yeah. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I know when you go back to like Margaret, I don't know, because I'd have to go back. Because when I was like researching Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood, I wasn't really looking at to see like who were the forces opposing her. I just assumed it was from a religious perspective, but I didn't really look into it. I was more looking into, you know, the accusations of whether she was like a Nazi or racist or a eugenicist or whatever. So I don't know the answer to that question. CT says he better not know my address. Uh oh. There you go. Well, he doesn't. So there you go. You're safe. Listen, I didn't give him your address, okay? CT, what do you want as a gift? Let everyone in the chat know what what do you want as a gift? Hmm. Uh, Caleb Basinic for five gifted memberships. Thank you so much, Sugar Plum Lucy. Thanks so much for the guy, five gifted memberships. Even though you're a dirty sticker. Look at that. Lucy's always so uh, holiday festive. Look at that. She, she was spooky for Halloween. Now she's like sugar plum for Christmas. That's awesome. You weren't you weren't Thanksgiving for Thanksgiving. Hmm. Hmm. You missed one. Could have been a turkey. There you go. Turkey Lucy. Uh, let's see. I read that one. Read that one. Adam Gadboff for 16 months says, quote, you, if if you disregard all human right issues, quote, is never the, the, the good way to start a compelling argument. <laughs> What's that? When what uh, Dr. Miller said, quote, if you disregard all human rights issues, <laughs> they said that's never a good way to start the argument. Is that, does, did Dr. Miller say that? He, when, he, when we're talking about China, he said something about like, well, if you disregard human rights issues, Right. And then he said, you know, he's talking about like the economic achievements. <laughs> there was a little bit there where I was getting nervous. I was like, are we going to get him in trouble? I know. That's why I was kind of like, oh, I don't know how much I want to talk about this. Yeah. He was a professor in China. He was right. a, a teacher in China. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, if anyone from China is listening, he was, he was defending you guys pretty well. So, uh, yeah, don't yeah. arrest him. There you go. Don't black bag him. Okay. Right. Thoughts Apprentice says, I do know it's not my fault she kidnapped me. Wow, look at that. Is that true, CT? Really? Kidnapped Thoth. CT's giving her address out now. Look at this. Wait, this is weird. It says, it says, look, we were just talking about milestones. It says, let's celebrate Thoth Apprentice 20th super on a live stream. Wow, look at that. We were just talking about this. Well, how, what are the milestones? We didn't know it went up to 20. That can't Look be, at this. There's that's no way that that's true. There's no way that thoughts only given us twenty super chats. He's been like following us for years. What do you mean? Thoughts been following us for years and probably gives a super chat like once 
every stream or every other stream. There's no way it's that low. That's only 20. It's only 20, huh? I see. I don't believe this. See, I, that milestone, hmm. I don't believe that. It doesn't make any sense. Computers can't count. You know that. You know oh, how God. it works. Right. You know you're outputting your video and it says, oh, you got five minutes. But really, it's like 35 minutes. Sure. There you go. You can't trust the computers. Yeah, they don't know. It's like, oh, this feels about like the 20th Super Chat. Right. It's really number five. Um, Let's see. Moondoggy for $10 says, Adam, I was looking for your street epistemology with Peter. Did that end up happening? It did. And I don't, they film everything live and edit it together with a bunch of graphics and stuff. So I don't necessarily know when it's going to be out or if it's going to be out because they had a real, I hope we got something we can use vibe. So, oh, really? Yeah. That's funny. I was particularly arguing argumentative mm -hmm. and i just it didn't we didn't have like a pleasant resolution <laughs> it just kind of ended right wow i kind of wish i wish that i would have recorded it i wish i would have like just recorded the audio but i guess i wouldn't have heard what peter was saying because they had us both mic'd up with little tiny mics on our lapel but i mean i can talk to reed maybe reed will Give us a little bit of it where we can upload it to our channel if they're not going to use it. But I'm sure. Well, we'll see. Sure. If not, maybe we'll, you just come on and you'll recreate the argument live. How about that? We were arguing about the definition of morality. And I was, I mean, it was a, a tad frustrating because I didn't feel like Peter was fully like listening to the argument. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, let's see. I think I read that. Yeah, I didn't read that one. Stug, thank you so much, Stug, for the happy face on the two dollars. Soto's for ten dollars says, Thanks for bringing this guy on. A good reminder that we libertarians are the sane ones. Remember, next time weird tradcons ask what the Judeo part of Judeo Christian values is, just say ending wokeness. That's a good, that's hilarious. I put up a poll that is pretty interesting. I don't know if you saw it. So the poll is up to about 700 votes, and it's does defamation violate the NAP, the non-aggression principle? I saw that. You were triggering lots of people, yeah. Yeah. Don't you like libertarian it? questions today. So what do you think the results are to that poll? Obviously, the libertarians have a clear, unambiguous what philosophy, was the question? right? Does defamation violate the NAP, the non-aggression principle? So defamation is obviously lying about somebody to destroy their reputation. It's not telling well, truths about people. Like truth a, is right. a defense to defamation. I could see a conceivable problem would be the way that I would have to answer the poll is when you say defamation, you mean that we know that the, what the person, number one is what you just said, that we know what they're saying is untrue. And that number two, it's reached the legal definition that we would consider defamation. Right. Yeah. And so then it would, then that would violate the NAP. Otherwise I, I people, would say alleged defamation. Right. 
but I but so I would say yes, it does violate the NAP. But I think a lot of people might wrongly interpret defamation not in a legal sense. They'd be like, "Oh, you're just talking shit about someone," and so right. they might answer no. Okay. Well, it's a so split. It's like 50, 50 49. Fifty point nine to forty nine point one, and there's like a bunch of people arguing, right? Right. And I mean, I don't, are I don't very see how, upset that it's like. I don't goal. see why it wouldn't. How would it not? What do you mean? Why how would, would it, how would defamation not violate the NAP? Well, the the intuitions in conflict are speech versus. versus well i would conceptualize it as property rights but people are right i guess that's how people are splitting it up they're they're saying look i can i'm free to say whatever i want even if it's untrue lies about people it's actually and, hilarious that's yeah what are you saying well and there's a lot of people who don't i've discovered there's a lot of libertarians that don't even believe in intellectual property so they're for really? property rights, but not only tangible things can be property. Hmm. Yeah. That's so reputations, celebrity endorsements, things like that, they don't consider property. Wow. That's yeah. Odd. It's, Go that ahead. What were you going to say? Um, well, no, I, it's actually, it's funny. It's kind of a, a hilariously genius, a wickedly evil genius question you asked. Um, cause it would make everyone, it would make a lot of people upset cause it is like a weird interest. Like you're really, that's like a Jonathan Haidt, you know, like, can you eat the dog before you, you know, the diet question. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was going for. Right. Like, it's like, yeah, it's like hitting some intuitions that some people might not feel comfortable, but like, wait a minute. So, but yeah, no, I would say hundred percent defamation, hundred percent violates the NAP completely. Mm -hmm. Um, just as it, like, of course you can have speech that can violate someone, someone else's NAP. I don't, I don't see the argument against that. So anyway, uh, thanks so much, Todd Sullivan for five, get the memberships. Thank you. Um, boo -boo. I can't believe there's libertarians that don't support intellectual property. Like, that is weird. Well, yeah. What the heck? I mean, people spend their lives developing intellectual property. Are you sure they're not libertarian socialists trying to sneak in? Maybe. I don't know. That's what like Noam Chomsky is. That's where Vosh got that label from. Noam Chomsky says he's a libertarian socialist. Huh. Uh, Sammy G for $2, thank you, says, there is no war in bossing say. <laughs> Listen. Listen, I don't want I don't want him to get in trouble, okay? So if he wants to say there's no war, then, you know, there you go. There's no war where? In Bossing, say. It's a Avatar, the last airbender reference. Oh. Uh, Salundre for $10 says there's an outbreak of upper respiratory infections in China, but they aren't related, was informed about it just like they did with COVID. There you go. That cringe for two hours says, ask him if China has a lying culture. I mean, that's our, that's your understanding of it, Adam. But It is, yeah, but I didn't, I don't, the, the, 
my I'm not sure that we get an accurate answer out of that because my understanding from Ser- Serpenza, whatever his name is. Right. Serpenza. Yeah. What's it? Wendell is his name. My understanding from Wendell is that Chinese pretty much are very racist and lie to foreigners all the time and take advantage of foreigners. And since since Dr. Oh, Moore is a foreigner, a they would be foreign. easily yeah, exactly. Wow. So yeah. Right? I mean maybe. Uh Libertarian Sasquatch for five dollars says China, a communist country, wouldn't know how to manufacture consent is a truly wild take. Yeah, I don't agree with that either. I agree. Uh, as for 30 NTs, thank you. Says shove these Taiwan dollars up China's ass. Oh, is that what NTs are? I didn't know that. Well, thank you. Wow. Well, there you go. As must be in Taiwan. There you go. Look at that. Based. Chad Powers, thank you so much for joining the Free Will Seekers and for being a 14-month member. There you go. Says, sorry, Sis, you'll have to continue to deal with me for now. Well, I listen, I look forward to it, Chad. As long yeah, as we you continue love to pay for it. Anyone named Chad Powers has <laughs> right. got to be cool. There you go. Anyone named Chad Powers who pays me money has to be cool. That's my take. Jeez, come on. <laughs> Listen, I'm I'm virtue all about transparency for, here. Okay. Virtue for virtue's sake. Remember? No, shut up. That's not real. <laughs> uh very dead horse for 16 months says Hans Molman was a strange guest. His view he views his home countries through a spectrum that the rest of us don't get, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I mean he has a very unique worldview that it's hard for me to understand because obviously my worldview and my experiences are very different from his own. Well, just the the response, and I get maybe it's just an internet phenomenon. But whenever you talk about something like a social credit store score in America, just Americans revolt at the idea, right? Yeah, yeah. And I have heard the I have heard the argument that Chinese like it because it, they it's like a level of trust they can tell if somebody's trustworthy whether or not they want to deal with them or date them or anything like that, which I can see that, but I just, I think you have to be in a much more collective society just to be cool with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we had a social credit score in America, would that reduce crime? Yes. Is it worth it? I would say no. Like so that's kind of the the thing you have to weigh. Is like there's always the security versus freedom trade-off. You have to kind of you know weigh in your mind. Yeah. Um and so like to me it's like okay, well I wasn't really going to argue with him whether it was good or not. It's just that it exists and it existing descriptively means that China is a lot less free than America. And I don't think it's fair to or accurate to say, well, America is a larger police state than China just because there's more people in prison, supposedly. It's like, well, the, you know, being you know, something being quantified or qualified as a police state is more than just how many prisoners exist literally in prison. Especially when in China they just harvest their organs and like dump them out by the shed. There you go. That's why there's that's why there's less prisons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Uh no Campbell, hey, for five months, thank you. Says, I really hate when people, even the right does this, say the right aren't creative. Who do you think makes up farmers, crafts, marks, markets, and quilts? Yeah, a lot of people, I was going to read this, but then we kind of got sidetracked. A lot of people got 
uh, kind of triggered when um Rudyard when when Rudyard said that like the right makes shitty art and <laughs> is not creative. A lot of people yeah. got triggered by that, which I get. I mean, there, you know, he's big too generalized. Obviously, there is you know very good right wing art that is you know and memes and funny things that come out of the right. So. Um, but I understood what he was trying to get at. Yeah. Uh, Coding Jesus for five hours says, can you ask what if all hist if wealth stratification is overblown issue? People who claim it's an issue seem to have a fixed sized pie worldview. So I remember we asked him this last time because there's this weird thing that's going on where people feel, it seems like the general attitude is that they feel like wealth inequality is very high. But then a bunch of people produce statistics and studies that claim that it's actually not that bad and that it's just kind of like this weird perception. Uh, when I asked him about this the last time, he said his view was that he thinks the studies and statistics are wrong or lying. So that seemed to imply that he thought it is a big deal. Thank you, Coding Jesus, for joining the Free Will Seekers. As for nine months, hey, says, hey, guys, check out the Mage Ascension RPG from 1993. Predicted the Matrix factions of mages controlling reality. Elon Musk equals the Sons of Ether. That sounds interesting. Mages of Ascension. I'll check it out. There was some, some study they were talking about on All In Podcasts where people's perception of the economy was driven by their political affiliation and they had i'm sure yeah that. that makes sense completely yeah so it was completely their 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 under their not their understanding their how they felt the economy affected them was more driven by their financial situation Right. Or less driven by their financial more situation, by their politics, more driven yeah. by their politics. Right. right. Exactly. I wouldn't be surprised by that at all. Which is hilarious. Everyone's just fucking, everyone's got right. cognitive dissonance. Right. They're well, like, I mean, I'm they're... making $300,000 a year and buying my second house, but this Biden nomics sucks. I, I know I've seen, yeah, exactly. I know I've seen <laughs> studies where like, you know, when a Republican's president, the Republicans are all like, oh, the, ec the economy is like amazing. Right. And the Democrats are like, the economy sucks. And then it just reverses. You know, when the Democrats president, the Democrats are like, oh, the economy's amazing. It's like, oh, the economy sucks. It's like, okay, like every time, like, you think that's what's going on? You know, so. Uh, Lucifer has a funny point. He says, Sitch, the CRT people would lose their mind when they would see which group has the lowest social credit score. I mean, that's interesting. There would be a whole like element that would be a whole thing that would be a big issue of this country. So. Uh, Filthy Casual for five dollars says, Adam, have you listened to Expert Political Judgment? It's a book about predictions of the future, and essentially, even experts are terrible at it. It <laughs> okay. The no, I haven't checked out the book, but I will. My, I, I don't disagree that people are terrible at making predictions. The whole my my. Thought experiment doesn't rest on whether or not the prediction can come true. Right. Yeah. My thought experiment rests on what if it does come true? What if it has come true? Well, well how would society evolve? 
Which right. I do. You had interesting things to say about it, Sitch, obviously. Thank so. you. Yeah. Uh, Wooster for $2 says, Quackademic Asian updates, my favorite part of the show. Well, okay, let's. what's going on? What happened? No, I, I already said it. So already oh, said it. damn. Um, let's see. I'm looking for Ramera, Ramera 3 for $10 says, I think Final Fantasy VII Remake is actually a sequel to the original. That the way Aerith, Aerith acts in the games makes it seem like she knows things she shouldn't. Yeah, no, I, I get that it's spoiler. I get that it's really not a remake. It's really like a weird multiverse sequel shenanigans because everything has to be fucking multiverse now. Like, I get it. Um, which, in my opinion, is a bad idea. It should just literally be a remake. You don't need this multiverse shenanigans sequel nonsense. Um, but even that, so they still sort of just made Cloud the way he was in the original game instead of making him an emo emo bitch so ct for two canadian says that abandoned warehouse is not where i live thoth <laughs> there you go i like it so dollars for two hours says sitch i sent you a fun video and a question in the dms did you well let me open that right now to see if i want to react to it or not let's see Give us the second order observation of it. What is this fine? Oh, are you talking about the Pierce Morgan video? Yeah, I don't know if we'll react to that, um, but we might. I don't know if you saw this. I watched the whole interview. It's insane. Pierce Morgan had a conversation with this doctor uh, who is of uh, Muslim or Islamic. I always forget. He's of Arab descent, I guess. He's Muslim. I don't know what country he, I forget what country they said he came from originally or his family came from. And he's like super, super sympathetic to Hamas. And he has this insane fucking interview with Pierce Morgan where Pierce Morgan is like really putting the thumbscrews to him about whether he will denounce Hamas or not. And he won't. And he's kind of like saying like simultaneously saying Hamas is based, but also saying they didn't do anything wrong. Like he's trying to say that like what they did was justified, but also say that they didn't do any of the bad things that they're accused of doing. And it's just like this totally insane um, interview. And Pierce just keeps being like, how do you work for the NHS? How do you work for the NHS? Like he's obviously like really trying to get him canceled. It's pretty funny. Wow. So. Crazy. I don't know. Maybe we'll do a video on it because it's a pretty wild interview. But uh, Dr. Diller, thanks so much for $2. Says cancel the warehouse bomb quickly. Don't ask. There you go. CT for two Canadians says Thoth spends all his money in warehouse things, not you. <laughs> and then Thoth for $2 says, I showed you my Warhammer collection. Please respond. There you go. Uh, Dr. Diller for $5 says, chat, look, I'm abusing my mod power by posting blood and gore through a super chat. Uh-oh. Did you see that, Adam? No, but cancel him. Take his wrench. Did you see that? Well, listen, I'm going to send you the picture of, of Dr. Diller uh, giving blood and gore i think you should bring up on screen no we can't do that it listen it might get the stream demonetized but i think it's worth it so okay look they show they do the same study in the u.s france germany and the uk and you can see in america the divergence between the experience and the actual is the biggest like this doesn't exist in other countries really that's interesting yeah that's got to be our media manufacturing non-consent there you go 
Okay, let's see what what terrible nonsense. Okay, I guess we can bring this up. <laughs> Guys, are you ready? You ready to see some some blood and gore? This is awful. You, you ready to see some blood and gore? Yeah. This might be the worst dad joke we've ever encountered on the stream. <laughs> I think it's but pretty here, good. But here it is. This this joke is so bad. <laughs> so horrible. <laughs> that it belongs in a weird Al Yankovic. Video. This is a great joke. <laughs> okay. This was a fantastic joke. You're just mad that Dr. Diddler is S class. Okay. Right. Okay. So okay. you see, for those of you who didn't, for those of you who are not dads, <laughs> yeah, you have Al Gore here wearing a a blood do rag. Blood uh, do rag. Yeah. Yeah. So it's blood. The bloods and gore. are the red, and the crypts are the blue. For those yeah. of you, yeah, yeah. For it's those clever. who haven't seen colors, it's clever. Yes. Dr. Diller for two dollars says regarding the Chinese internet companies, Canada is also very protectionist in that they have to they have to levy high taxes on American companies like Comcast because they outcompete Canadian ones. Yeah, I mean, I think there's ways to to I think there's ways to be protectionist without you know building the Great Firewall. So I believe that that was done primarily not for economic reasons but for social reasons. Dr. Diller for two dollars says, unfortunately, we all recognize that protectionism doesn't really work in the long run. In the same way, isolationism doesn't really work. Bring it up is kind of pointless when they use it to oppress people. I agree. I do it for another $2 says it's difficult to take CW seriously on his Chiba points. He's implying that the U.S. food is worse while open air wet markets exist. The Chinese COVID numbers, frankly, don't make any sense. Some degrees of separate. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I say that's why I don't trust China statistics at all about COVID or their mortality rate. I mean, it's, you know, it seems to me that they're very clearly lying about how many people got COVID. I mean, they're lying about the lab leak, too. I mean, that seems to be pretty obvious now, doesn't it? So, uh, Dr. Diller for $2 says, It's funny because I agree with Rudyard on a lot, but his doomerism talk is so abhorrent to me. I think it's a combination of arrogance of trying to think you understand people and the line graph problem. You're standing on a dot with a line graph behind you in an infinite expanse ahead of you. Your odds of guessing the angle going forward are extremely low. There's also no penalty for saying everything will be bad. Yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely an issue. Um, so, I mean, he does say that he thinks he's probably wrong. So, I, I mean, I, I appreciate that. But I think, yeah, I think we're all going to be wrong. I think we're all going to be wrong because there's going to be some unforeseen thing. I mean, like, before ChatGPT came out, who the fuck was predicting that shit, right? Like three, four years ago, who was like, listen, AI is like going to be a huge thing. We're like right there. Social <laughs> yeah, media never... was never really predicted in sci-fi or anything. You didn't have people on the Star Trek, you know, checking their Facebook or Instagram no, or anything like they that. They weren't, yeah. They yeah. weren't using AI. They weren't checking uh, social media. They didn't have all the holographic displays. I mean, I mean, it is true that we really bad, seemingly bad at like predicting the way that shit breaks down, the way shit goes, I should say, in the future. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, Doctor, there for for two dollars says did the have AI in two thousand one though. That's like the AI we had, right? 
Well, even that, I mean yeah. that did that got the time scale wrong. That was two thousand and one, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, Doctor Dill for two hours says Final Fantasy VII remake was the first Final Fantasy I've played. Wow, that's shocking. The second was Final Fantasy sixteen. I have no expectations going into that game, and I still came away disappointed. The story is convoluted, boring mess, and mid is extremely annoying. Well, there's another problem too, which is that they chose a really fucking weird way, and I don't know why. They did this. So the original Final Fantasy VII game was broken into three chapters. I don't know why they didn't just make Final Fantasy VII remake the first chapter of the game. They instead took like, I don't know, the first... They took like the first third of the first chapter and they made it... Then they dragged it out to be an entire length of a game. And so I was like, yeah, it's going to feel like the pacing is going to feel way fucking off at that point. I don't know why they did that. It seemed like a really bad decision. Like if you played the if you went back and played the original Doctor Diller, you'd be like, "What? You get out of Midgar in like, you know, four out three four hours? What the fuck?" Uh, CT for two dollars says, "Adam, I got a new tablet stand and it's awesome. It's up high, so there's enough room. I'll show you later. Now, not what this is about. Sitch in terms of smoking, I know a lot of people who still do it." Oh, sure. Listen, I'm not saying people don't still smoke. It's not anywhere near as pervasive as it used to be. It used to be like literally every fucking person smokes. Right, and now you can spit on them. It's great. There you go. I mean, can you imagine? I I grew up. Now, I got the tail end of this. Because when I grew up, you were not allowed to smoke in airplanes. Can you imagine that? There was a time period where you could smoke in a fucking airplane. Yes. Can you fucking imagine that you could smoke in an airplane there used to be if you're old enough you might remember you'd look up on the little airplane thing and there'd be two lights there'd be a light to buckle up your seatbelt and there'd light to tell you not to smoke <laughs> at that moment do you remember that then the smoking light the don't smoke light came on and never went off again and then one day that light stayed on and it never went off and then but even before that they used to they used to before they made smoking uh, you could do it on the airplane. They put all the smokers in the back of the airplane. So you could still smoke. You just all had to sit in the back. There's literally a, there used to be a fucking smoking section on airplanes. Okay. I remember that. Oh my God. I can't even, do you fucking remember that? I just had like a fuck. How did I forget this? For so much of my life, when I was like a little kid, not even when I was a little kid, when I was just a kid. And when I was like in high school, I would go, like my parents would take me to a restaurant and they'd be like, oh, like this many people non-smoking section yeah when you were a little kid remember when you'd go to a fucking restaurant and you'd ask for a non-smoking section yes now you can't fucking smoke in any fucking restaurant i remember when they made the law that you can't smoke in any restaurant and i was I like too. yeah people were like what yes i, I, I was, was like, about it, I guess. thank god yeah and they totally they did it because the people who worked in the restaurants you know, obviously they have to get, they have to be around the cigarette smoke. Yeah. In a work environment. Oh, that's, that's so bad. Well, and also the property damage it causes to the restaurant because the smell right. gets like into everything, you know, so. Yeah. Oh my God. Now, the only time I experience it is when I go to Vegas and you walk into the casino yeah, and you're like, oh my God. You're like, this is what it used to be on. like everywhere. Can you imagine? I just, I can't take it. And then they're like, you know, but you can go up to the non-smoking floor. 
you go up to the non-smoking floor first of all still fucking smells like cigarettes yeah and there's no good games they don't have craps they don't have (laughs) fucking jack shit i'm like this is bullshit right where's the non-smoking casino listen at least at least if vaping takes over for smoking it like that's tolerable to be around is it i don't have that smell that like smoking does okay um i mean so bad for you but it's not like doesn't have that doesn't have that secondhand smell that's like disgusting but yeah no i mean and i still remember like i remember going on airplanes when i was a kid and there literally were ashtrays in the arms of the of the chair so like yeah like smoking used to be this fucking insane thing it's funny you know when people say like oh people look younger now you know because everyone quit smoking right that's just the funny. i'm like yeah people it's funny because i'm like well if you actually you know they say oh people look younger now then you look at back at these old you know from the 50s 60s 70s people looked old and people make a wrong assumption or they think that's that was normal and now people look young i don't think that's the case because if you go back and you look at like really old photographs like that early 1900s like the late 1800s people looked young too i think that all the smoking and all the lead and the gasoline just made everyone look old and aged them up for like a generation. <laughs> it yeah. made everyone like super unhealthy. They got so screwed. That's, like, yeah. So when we say people look older. It's like, well, they're smoking and inhaling lead all day. So that's why they look old. That's a boomer generation. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like the, it's like kind of like the, the boomer, the, the, the generation of before the boomers, you know, silent, I guess it was a silent. Yeah. So, uh, CT for another $2 says a couple of them tried to quit too. So I've seen firsthand how hard it is when I was a kid under 10, I used to buy the chocolate cigarettes and thought smoking was cool. Media do be like that. Yeah. That was a thing that was crazy. Cause yeah, there used to literally be candy cigarettes. Oh, I remember. And they got rid of those. Cause With I mean, powdered listen, sugar on them. So you could blow right. and make a little puff of smoke. That's right. Yeah. And it was like, like, no, look, we shouldn't I'm smoking be, uh, mom. How cool should... am I? We shouldn't be uh, making smoking look cool. And I, I don't have a problem with media trying to make smoking not look cool, but I don't think that really applies to Sid. You know, Sitch, I got Final an Fantasy idea. Seven, but how about Sitch and Adam branded cigarettes? Oh God, that's awful. <laughs> what do you think? Look, everyone does coffee. We'll be our own. We'll do our own thing. Yep. We'll give them their nicotine. Their nicotine fit. I mean, you remember in like there'd be the old Looney Tunes episodes where like or Tom and Jerry episodes where like the, the character was like showing off for a girl and he'd be like rolling a cigarette oh, and yeah. then lighting it for her. Like that was like the cool move. So yeah, or the I fat mean, cat is always smoking a cigar. Right, right. Well, the cigar kind of is a symbol kind of for the fat cat. That's so weird because cigars I never had a cigar, but they look and smell disgusting. So I don't know why the fuck that's like a thing but uh sodos for two hours says while not my position the libertarian opposition to intellectual property is that it physically cannot be exclusive two people can own the same info for something without physical infringement a la you won't you wouldn't be downloading the car meme. two people can't own your like likeness though two people that's can't true. own your reputation maybe yeah um so whatever the one oh look academic agent academic agent for two dollars says sitch finally noticed me again dave what do i do 
The distributor then replies for another $2, says, talk about how slavery is good again. That always gets him high and popular. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we never watched that video. Well, we didn't watch it on stream, but I mean, I've I seen it. Uh, the academic agent for $2 then replies, good idea. Should I mention the 2% again? He looks so cute when I do that. The distributor for another $2 says, okay, but don't endorse segregation again. Last time I did that, he yelled at me. I don't think he likes it. <laughs> That's true. It did happen. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, CT for two dollars. Thank you. Says, oh, speaking of chat, GBT, uh, GBT. Hey, chat. You know you can get the character AI to teach you languages, like have the practice conversations you need to actually get good. You can. Shrek is my Spanish teacher now. Oh, that's cool. I didn't even think. Yeah, you could definitely do that. You could have it. You could have Shrek teach you Spanish if you want. Yeah. That's interesting. That's gonna... chat GPT to figure out if that guy was MMT. How fun is that going to be for the future when people are learning languages? They're going to have any fictional character they want speaking with the, with the voice acting, the language they want to, to learn the language. So be awesome. I loved future. Dr. Dealer for two hours says worded last super chat poorly. I was. Complain about Final Fantasy 16. Oh, okay. I actually found Final Fantasy, I actually found Final Fantasy 7 remake enjoyable. Final Fantasy 16 is not worth $70. Had a lot of issues with that game in almost every aspect. Oh, well, there you go. Interesting. We should play the original Final Fantasy 7. See how you feel about it. So uh, Academic Agent for $2 says, for the record, I am not obsessed. I have to watch your channel to keep up with Sitch's Jewish sexual interest. The fact that I get a raging stiffy when he mentions my name is completely unrelated. <laughs> well, thank you, Academic Agent. Wow. I do feel that way. TMI. Whackers, what are you doing? No one wants to hear about your raging stiffy. Uh, Very to Horse for Five Dollars says, I can't believe Sitch missed the pun in my member chat. Maybe we reread it with the emphasis on the capitals. I guess this means I'm A-Team Supreme. Uh-oh. Uh, Where were you? Hans Molman was a strange guest. He he views his home countries through a spectrum that the rest of us don't get, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah, I tried to read it that way and it didn't. I don't get it. Yeah. The, you capitalize spectrum and don't get. SDG, what does that mean? I don't. What does that mean? Listen, I'm I don't, an idiot. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. This is like, I don't know. Um, sorry, very dead horse. Adam doesn't get it either, so I guess you can't be a team. Eric uh, Diode, thank you for the 20 Canadian. Says, you guys got to look at the predictable future. Sitch and Adam's uh, Jays with enlightened centric haze. There you go. We'll check it I'll out. check it out. The predictable future. Spectrum like internet company or spectrum like autism? I don't know. There might like be autism. a lot of books that say people are bad at predicting the future. Sure. I mean, it's got to be easier to write a book with bad predictions than Obviously. write one with good predictions, right? So you'd think there would be a lot more of those books. That was a good call, Adam, to get him to turn his video off because that did help substantially. Okay. 
anyways that's it that's it we really we're all done we're all done it's a oh, short man. stream guys it's only six hours today i thought that was uh what we do we gotta play the outro for daisy that's right that's for right. daisy the orange tabby cat everyone this one's out for daisy mm. this is let me turn my let me turn my um noise suppression off right so i can make it particularly bluesy right anyways thank you all for coming thank you all for your incredibly generous donations thank you for coming on our great guest today uh dr hans uh, moeller and thank you what if all is for coming on and talking to us and this one goes out to you daisy brick noses wonderful beautiful yellow tabby cat thank you so much for being there when he needs you for filling his life with love and joy and may you find peace in the next life in the great great uh, cat daycare in the sky Bye, Daisy.